This is Audible. Through it all, I've always loved. By Count Arthur Strong, the author of it. Chapter One: The Early Years. Wah! Went the cries of the one-minute-old newborn baby. Had the midwife possessed a tuning fork, she would be able to tell you that this precociously talented child, by now some one minute and thirty seconds old, had hit a pitch-perfect top C, a talent I still possess to this day. For you see, I was this small, precocious, and by now pushing two-minute-old child. But perhaps I should explain to you. How this miracle birth came to be. Let me take you back in time to a night some nine months prior to the birth of myself. Mother and father, as I call them, were in pantomime at the Watford Palace doing a dog act. After the act, they went home and had sexual relations, and that's how a baby like I was is born. He was always good with dogs, was father. I think that's why he married my mother. She had a nice cocker spaniel, a ginger and white one called Nuts. I don't know why she called it that. Perhaps it liked nuts. There's nothing wrong with that. I like a nut myself, apart from Brazil nuts. Ever since I had a chocolate Brazil nut stuck in my throat in 1960 something, which led to a near-death experience. Luckily for me, though, I coughed it up and finished eating it. Not the last time I would go on to cheat death. Anyway. That mother and father would meet, fall in love, and form a dog act was inevitable, and they enjoyed some moderate success on the variety circuit. However, when I came along that fateful day that changed the course of so many people's lives, myself included, it was decided that father would go solo and do an act of his own until mother recovered from my birth and her stitches healed up because of my hat size. The act Dad decided to do was playing the William Tell overture by hitting himself on the head with a mallet with two cymbals strapped to his knees. After a few performances, though, he realised that he hadn't quite thought it through properly, and he had to stop because it quite hurt, and he kept blacking out, and he was spending a lot of time in casualty. However, worse was to come, much, 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 much worse. And I make no apologies for using much a lot in that sentence, because it was much worse, much, 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 much worse. In 1939, Adolf Hitler started the war. Why? Well, we can only guess at that. He must have been absolutely mad. Carried away with the thrill of it all, my dad enlisted as soon as the magistrate made him. My mother, as I called her, was left on her own at a very vulnerable time. Now, everybody, if you're not already sitting down, I want you to sit down for this next bit, because what I'm about to tell you will be a huge shock to you, and I don't want you to keel over and then send me a solicitor's letter making out I did it. What it is is that I later learned that whilst my father. Or Dad, as I sometimes called him, I forget which now, was off hanging his washing on the Siegfried Line. 
that my mother took solace in the arms of another. A variety turn called Wee Billy Bugle and his Hoop of Flames, or Uncle Willie, as I came to know him as. Oh, he could make that bugle talk, good Billy, and he was always very good to me. God rest his soul, he's no longer with us. I remember his last words as though it was tomorrow. Put me out! I'm on flipping fire! Uncle Willie went up like a bazooka. They do say there's still some bits of him on the ceiling at the Bradford Alhambra. They haven't the heart to clean him off, or a long enough ladder, if truth be known. Anyway, all I know is, he was like an uncle to me, was Uncle Willie. With Dad away at the Maginot line, or whatever it is, and Uncle Willie all over, firstly my mother, and secondly the Alhambra ceiling, things were very hard for us. I helped as well as I could, tried not to cry too much, and soiled as few nappies as was physically possible. The war years were terribly, terribly hard for a young child like myself, and all the other people in the country too. Every night when I went to bed, I could only pray that the war would last another eighteen years, so that I could sign up and fly a spitfire, like Kenneth Moore did in that film about Douglas Bader's bouncing bombs. But at the moment, I had more pressing things to do, like learn to walk. You'd be happy to know that through my dogged perseverance and a few false starts, I did learn to walk, and to this day it's something I still have great success doing. So stick that up your pipe and smoke it, Mr. Hitler. While the Blitzkrieg raged, this precocious talent writing this was getting on with it. During these war years, I took great solace in all the postcards my father managed to hurriedly pencil. I still couldn't read, obviously, but I used to like ripping them up and chewing them, etc. I would wait by the letterbox for the postman and rip up anything that came through. Mother would sometimes lose her temper with me, but I was a beautiful, lovely child and would just look at her with my big eyes, and any anger she felt would melt away. Plus, most of the time now, she was on the gin. After Uncle Willie had blown up, there was only Mother to support the two of us, and she needed a new act. She'd heard there was a job going with a contortionist in Doncaster, so we packed our bags and moved up there to stop with my Auntie Irene. Being a contortionist really suited Mother, and I don't think I've ever seen her as happy as when she was bent over backwards doing the splits and eating grapes with two dislocated arms. She'd always been supple. In fact, she could still sit on the floor at ninety, which was remarkable. She couldn't get up, mind. She always looked younger than she was, did Mother. In fact, we're all like that in my family. My Uncle Ernest looked like a toddler right up until his seventies. We all look younger. We've all got elastic skin, like my mother had. Oh, yes, I've never had any of my buttocks siphoned off and squirted in my forehead like some of them, thank you very much. Cliff Richards has it done once a fortnight. It's a wonder he can sit down. His bottom must be red raw some nights. Lulu, she's another one. Oh, dear, it would be dreadful if they got the syringes mixed up and you ended up with Cliff Richards' buttocks in your face. Ugh, I wouldn't know where to put myself. I mean, I liked mistletoe and wine, but I wouldn't want his buttocks in me face. Chapter 3 Missing, Presumed Dead I'll never forget the day that telegram came. 
missing, presumed, dead, it said, which coincidentally is what this chapter is called, if you look at the top of the page. I wondered where I'd heard it before. Mother opened the envelope, read the contents, then howled like a banshee. Why? Why? she shrieked. Why has this happened to us? She sunk to the floor with her head in her hands, a variation of this move she would later use to great success in the act. Curse you, Adolf Hitler! Curse you! I had never seen the old girl like this before, and I consoled her as best as a just coming up to one-year-old that couldn't speak could. It was this day that I resolved that even if this accursed war lasted until Armistice Day on the 14th of August, 1945, I would not rest until I had brought Hitler to book at Nuremberg. Hitler! The very word would bring me out in nappy rash. It still does. I would imagine him stood at the other end of where the Channel Tunnel might come out if it had been invented then, hands on hips, head tossed back, laughing like a hyena while we starved, eating a three-course meal of, perhaps, prawn cocktail to start with, followed by maybe a nice bit of liver and onions with apple pie and custard for his pudding, or perhaps rhubarb. The unfairness of this was not lost on me, despite my tender years, or year. And so here I was, the fatherless son of a contortionist mother, one year old, living in war-torn Doncaster, in the south riding of Yorkshire, starving for some dinner. In later years, I would immortalise this moment in song, set to the music of Ronnie Conway. Not his real name. He made it up because he thought it made him sound big, which I think is a little bit sad. And when I say set to the music of Ronnie Conway, I actually hummed and laughed all the tune to him, to start with something which he consistently chooses to ignore as he travels round most of Lincolnshire, making a fortune off the back of my back. And if I wasn't involved in an ongoing copyright dispute with Ronnie, or Colin, as his real name is, at the moment, I was going to put that song up for the Eurovision Song Contest, so it's highly likely Ronnie Colin is responsible for us not winning that as well for the last 50 years. Anyway, my contact at the Citizen's Advice says he can't stop me reproducing the lyrics for your enjoyment because I am the sole lyricist of it. The song in question is just below this sentence I'm just finishing reading. It's called Doncaster. Doncaster, a small talented child in Doncaster, afraid and alone in Doncaster. Laughed at because of the posh way I talk in Doncaster, at the house of my Auntie Irene in Doncaster. Please don't make me eat tripe, Auntie Irene. I promise I'll be good. And then, like a flower that blooms in the garden, I bend in the breeze that blows through the trees in Doncaster. A man can walk tall in Doncaster. Your worries are small in Doncaster, in Doncaster, in Doncaster. And incidentally, everyone, I have recently been in communication with someone who will have to remain nameless for obvious reasons about them releasing that song out in time for Christmas one year. 
because I think it could be as big a hit as Candle in the Window was for him. And I'm expecting a reply any day now to my stamped self-addressed letter I sent to him, care of Watford Football Club, where he is the goalkeeper. So when Elvis John finally deigns to get back to me, I might not have to finish this book should Doncaster go to number one in the hit parade and I make millions, which I apologise in advance for if you've bought it and are disappointed because it stops suddenly. But I digress. For a naturally inquisitive, talented and precocious, posh-sounding, posh, small child like I was, wartime Doncaster wasn't all bad news and growing up around the variety theatres of the North proved to be the making of me, although I didn't know it at the time. And frankly, if you'd tried to tell me that at the age of one and a bit, I would have probably told you that you were mad, if A, I could have talked, or B, I could have understood what you were going on about in the first place, in the first place. It took Mother a long while to get over the bad news about Father, and for a time she turned to spiritualism to try to ascertain once and for all whether father was dead or alive or had just deserted again. I had always had special feelings, shall I call them, that I was not alone and could see through walls and read minds, etc., like Doris Stokes does, or did, if she's dead. Mother was aware that I was attuned in to the other side, by the other side, I don't mean ITV, I mean the spirit world, which I always think would be a good name for an off-licence. Spirit world. It's nearly as good as bargain booze. Anyway, sometimes Mother would use me as a spirit guide at her seances I forgot to tell you about. I recall at one such seance, channelling the spirits of Henry VIII, and do you know, to this day I can still remember his eight wives off by heart without even thinking about it. Anne Boleyn, Anne of Cleves, Anne of a Thousand Days, Catherine of Argon, Catherine Parr, Catherine Hepburn, Audrey Hepburn, Felicity Kendall, Glenda Rogers. There you are, that's at least seven. And Glenda Rogers is definite before you say anything, because she was on the telly doing it with Keith Michel. So deep were these mamma-induced trances, that the only thing that would bring me back from the spirit world was our parrot pecking me on the head. I was very close to that parrot. In fact, I could probably remember its name if I put my mind to it, and was devastated that when rationing bit deep, we had to eat him with a few of last night's potatoes. In fact, even now when times are hard, I will talk to that pigeon as if it's there, and I find this a great comfort to a point. Not pigeon, parrot. Pigeons can't talk. Some people refer to them as vermin. In fact, some other people call them rats with tails. Or is that squirrels? What does that even mean, rats with tails? Rats are rats with tails, surely. Squirrels are squirrels with tails. Pigeons don't have tails. Only an idiot would go around saying that. Plus, last time I looked, pigeons and squirrels don't talk, apart from Tufty, who wasn't real. Anyway, so here I was, the fatherless son of a contortionist mother, one year old, living in war-torn Doncaster in the south riding of Yorkshire, starving and parrotless. I remember thinking, what would life hold in store for me as I approach chapter three of my book? Chapter three of my book. Growing Pains.
Listen, before I start writing chapter three, what about this for an idea? A cookery book with all the recipes from the Bible in it. The menu could have lamb of God, fatted calf, fish with bread, water into wine, doves. Can you eat doves? Or does the Queen own them all? Find that out. And, and there must be a kebab recipe in the Bible. It's a big, thick book. And how many people go to church? Millions. And they all eat. Listen, instead of bread for communion, we could do little canapes. That's got to taste better than bread. And, and anyway, if they don't like the food, they would have to turn the other cheek, wouldn't they? Hey, I could be dressed like Moses on the cover, holding a food mixer. Unleavened bread. That's another one. Put that on the menu. I'd quite like to have my own chain of ecclesiastical restaurants, all done up with church pews. We could even have a pulpit and an altar in there. The font could be full of crabs and lobsters. Then people could pick which one they want to eat. All the staff could be dressed like vicars for the waiters and nuns for the waitresses. The manager could be dressed like the Archbishop of Canterbury. And like I say, I could be Moses because it's my idea. And I would be the figurehead. Get back to me. Chapter 3 again. Growing Pains Ouch! That hurt! Was something I seem to be saying more and more and more these days. Of those days, if you want to split hairs. Despite rationing, I was growing fast, like forced rhubarb does. Every three months, my mother, as I called her, bade me stand with my back to the wall, and she would chalk my height upon it, which was fine until they wallpapered. Then nobody knew how tall I was any more. I still don't know how tall I was as a child to this day. By this time in the war, like most people, we had a pig and were growing all our own vegetables. Peas, cauliflowers, potatoes, cucumbers, grapes, turnips, cabbage, cress and grapefruits are just some of the vegetables I can remember. Swedes, beetroot, sprouts, apples, yams, avocados and porridge are some of the other ones I can also remember now I've had a look in a book. As we approached that Christmas, father's absence was beginning to tell on us. We'd always been inseparable when he was there, and not knowing if he was alive or what was taking a cruel toll on those left behind. On Christmas Eve, I went to bed feeling very sorry for myself. Suddenly, as I was putting an old sock up, I heard loud voices downstairs. Seconds later, Mother burst excitedly into my bedroom. Darling, if you could have one thing for Christmas, what would it be? she ejaculated. Anything, I asked her, tears forming like a misty day in my head where my eyes were. Anything, she repeated. Before I could answer, I heard unfamiliar cough on the staircase outside my bedroom door. Is that father come home, mother? I asked her, my voice just a croak in my throat. Yes, 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 she said three times. Yes, she added a fourth. Has he got a parcel shaped like a bike with him? I intoned, as father burst into the room and raced towards me. I soon got over the disappointment of him being bikeless when he gave me a collection of bottle tops of all the different bottled beer he'd drunk since he'd been missing. It was a comprehensive collection, and if I knew what had happened to them, I would cherish them to this day. 
mother laughed gaily like a young idiot, and we were, at last, all together again. When we'd all calmed down, Father explained his absence to us. Apparently, he'd been involved in a secret mission behind enemy lines that only Winston Churchill and the King knew about when a horrible, big German just came up to him and for no reason at all shot him in the foot, leaving my father in a total state of disbelief that something like this could happen in this day and age. He limped painfully back to the British lines, but when he got there they callously accused him of shooting himself in the foot to get out of doing the war any more. Father protested his innocence vehemently, but they would have none of it, citing the fact that his own bullet had just been removed from his foot. Anyway, in my young eyes, my father had returned a hero. It mattered not to me that it was himself's foot he'd shot himself in. At least he'd shot something. He held me at arm's length and looked at me. "'My goodness, Arnold!' he exclaimed. "'Look at you, my boy. How you've grown!' How tall are you? Alas, I could only give him my height before we wallpapered, which I feared was by now out by a good two inches. If you're under the age of forty, or you come from France or somewhere like that, and you don't know what two inches is, look it up. Chapter... Uh, moving on. With Pater at home once more, and because of his war wound, unable to walk properly, apart from inside the house our life slowly began to return to normal. Mother had built up quite a following on the variety circuit with the act, so it was decided that she should continue with that and Father should just live off what she earned until it was safe for him to walk properly outside. Dad was a jealous man by nature, and he took against one of the other contortionists in the act, Lenny Longarms, claiming that he kept rubbing his hands up against Mother. Lenny was a very talented individual, and, as his variety moniker suggests, he did have extraordinary long arms. The things he could reach with those arms of his was the stuff of legend. Ask Roy Hood. I myself once saw him reach a bottle of tomato sauce, true as I'm stood here, or sat here, to be accurate. I should perhaps point out that the sauce was a, a long way away from him, and again stress that there was abnormal length to his long arms. The high point of his solo act was when he stood on the middle of the stage and pretended he had an itch on his back that he couldn't get to to scratch. So he reached off into the wings, stage left, and after a minute his arms reappeared stage right behind himself and he scratched his back that way. Wonderful. Of course, he had an assistant. Nobody's arms are that long. It's a shame they don't have things like that on the telly anymore. There's, there's a right load of rubbish on. I was flicking with the press it yesterday, and there was hardly anything on worth watching. I'd seen the Wheeler Dealers before, that was a repeat, and David Dickinson's gone right down since he went over to ITV. Don't want to get me on that. Uh, uh, even the news was rubbish. I, I used to like it on news at ten when Terry MacDonald always ended up with a funny little story about a telegraph pole being stuck up a cat and the fire brigade coming out, or, or a steamroller flattening a house when they're all in bed, something you could have a bit of a laugh at. But now it's all terrible news, and, and, and all the news readers are sober. Want to get me on that? As for the politicians, oh dear, don't get me started on that. Have you noticed? It doesn't matter who the Prime Minister is, they all get on my nerves. All that apart, 
I was, at the age of three or four, about to enter the most salient point of my life. Chapter 7, I think. Moving on more. I was, as I just intimated on the previous page, approximately three or four years old now, and, as you would expect me to be, quite a bit intellectually advanced for someone of that approximate age. To give you a rough guide to how clever I was, if, say, the Sun newspaper had been around in those days, I would estimate that I'd almost be able to finish the crossword by myself. Not that I buy, I buy the Sun. I mean, if there's one in the barbers, I'll have a look at it and maybe take it home if no one's looking. But I wouldn't pay good money for it. You know, being a busy celebrity, I can't be seen to be favouring any one of the newspapers over another, and, and I have to make no exception about that rule. It's very important to me that I'm not seen to be breaking the Hippocratic Oath about that, uh, except the ones that have given me nice reviews, obviously, like The Telegraph, The Independent, The Guardian, The Sunday Mail, The Daily Mail, The Mirror, The Times and The Sunday Times. The quality newspapers, I mean. Uh, you know, you scratch my back and I'll scratch you back, which is fair enough. The rest of them can go and stick their heads where the sun hurts. And again, I don't mean the sun as in the newspaper. I mean the sun as in the sky. It's, it's just an expression, isn't it? Stick your head where the sun hurts. Everybody says it, or something similar to it. Anyway, back to my story. My parents, wanting the very best education possible for me, enrolled me at the nearest school to where we lived. And at whatever age I would have been, on whatever date it was, a Monday, I would presume, um, if you're starting something, normal people tend to start on a Monday, don't you? I nervously walked what seemed to me an endless thirty feet to what was to be my hallowed hall of academia for the next however long I was there before we left. I will look all that up. I have a cardboard box somewhere with all that stuff in it. Photos, the lot. I arrived in good time that first day. Mother had packed me a satchel containing my writing slate and a stick of chalk, which she said I was not to eat. The chalk, not the slate. Who eats slate? Well, I suppose the Welsh might. That would make sense. Ever since I was a small baby, I'd like to eat chalk. I don't know why. But I do think it has laxative qualities, and I still have the odd stick now and again when I'm having a bit of trouble in that department. But this stick of chalk was for my writing slate, and I followed Mother's instructions implicitly. And she didn't say I couldn't suck it, did she? It was on this first day at school that I had a chance meeting with someone which would change my life for a bit. I'd only just gone through the school gates when I was greeted by the head boy. A small, grey-haired man with his trademark big glasses. I mean small boy, not man. He's a man now, that's why I said that. But then he was a boy and a small one. The name of that small man boy was Barry Cryer. And although he was a few years older than me and looks it, he and I were to become a lifelong friend of mine. Chapter 7 My School Days Despite the war, the next few years were the happiest days of my life, and I took to school like a duck. All the teachers loved teaching me because I was so receptive. My favourite lesson was on a Friday afternoon, and you won't be surprised to hear that it was drama. 
They say you'll always remember a good teacher, and our drama teacher was no exception. He was called something like Mr. Parkinson. It wasn't that, but it was similar sounding, and it's near enough for our purposes. I'll never forget him, whatever his name was. Mrs. Parkinson was a wonderful man, and he was like a father figure to me, borrowing money off me and getting me to go to the off license for him to get his drink and woodbines. In those days, they didn't ask you to prove your age when you bought alcohol and fags, so most people's children got all that sort of thing for their dads. That's just one of the things that was better then, and you could leave your front door open. We used to. All right, fair enough. The door was actually stolen eight or nine times, but they never set foot in the house. There was a line, and people didn't used to step over it. Everyone knew everyone. We knew who the bobby on the beat was as well. It was my uncle George. Not like today. I can't think of a single policeman or policewoman that's a relative of mine today. How can that be progress? My uncle George would come down our street, pushing his bike twice a day, come rain or shine, unless it was raining, and all the children would follow him and tell him they all wanted to be a policeman when they grew up, and he would give them a stick of chewing gum or candle wax during the war when chewing gum was scarce. Now that is policing. I had another piece of bad news that week. It was that my good but older than me friend Barry Cryer was to leave the school. To move to Leeds. In the few weeks I'd been there, despite the fact, as I've said, that Barry was a good few years older than me and looks it, he and I had probably become inseparable, and I'd never forget his tear-stained face as I rather suavely bade him farewell. I didn't get much time to dwell on his departure for long, though, because an exciting new chapter of my life was about to start, which was a huge surprise to me. Chapter Eight, the next chapter. The next chapter in my life I'm talking about, just for clarity, isn't what we've come to understand by chapter in this wonderful book. It's a figure of speech, and it means the next bit of my life, the next part of my life. It's only confusing because in books you have chapters, and although this chapter is entitled the next chapter, it isn't what I meant. Oh, it is. What I meant, I mean. But simply put, it's a chapter called the next chapter, and it's a very clever device in a book to do that. It's only because you know some of you might be a bit slow that I'm having to explain to you what it means. A lot of writers wouldn't do that, you know. They'd just take it for granted that you had some intelligence. I'm not like that. I believe in helping people less fortunate than me. When I got home from school on whatever day this was. I was just about to change into my playing out clothes when I heard Father's voice speaking as he spoke to me from the next room. Come into the drawing room, there's a good fellow. My ears heard, which surprised me greatly because I didn't know we had a drawing room. Still, like Bear Grylls, I followed the trail of his voice, or I should say, like Bear Grylls' granddad, because Bear Grylls wasn't born yet when this happened. So, having cleared that up. I found myself in what I called the front room, but Father called the drawing room for reasons best known to himself, which I never asked him about for the rest of his life. Perhaps he was delusional. I'm not a psychiatrist. In fact, I'm sorry I mentioned it because it's irrelevant, and possibly this bit will be cut out. I don't know. And anyway, I prefer the other one, the fat one whose name escapes me,、um, Ray. Someone. When I entered. 
Father was standing by the fireplace, his hands in his trouser pockets, winding up his pocket watch somehow. A furrowed expression graced his troubled visage. "'You wanted to see me, father?' I remarked. "'Ray Mears, that's the one. That's who I was um, talking about.' "'You wanted to see me, father?' I remarked again. "'Yes, my boy. Pull up a chair.' I pulled up a chair and waited expectantly for the next thing to happen. He took a deep breath in, blew a bit of it out, and continued with what he was saying before the breathing. "'Arthur, there comes a time in every boy's life when it's the time to become a man. This is that time.' "'What, half-past four? I inquired. "'Though I didn't mean the exact time, like on the clock. I meant a more general period of time.' I must have looked a little confused, because father went on. I mean time as a dimension in which events can be ordered from the past through the present into the future, and also the measure of durations of events and the intervals between them, like it says on Wikipedia, more that sort of thing. I nodded, slightly puzzled in truth, as I watched a fly relentlessly circling the paisley patterned lampshade. Auntie Irene loved that lampshade, and would stare at it for hours if you let her. What did father mean? Why was he talking like this? Had he been in the Red Lion all day again? I remember the last time. I had been practising scales on the pianola. Suddenly the door opened. Father took two steps into the room, put his hand on top of the piano to steady himself, and slid the length of it, knocking a George V coronation bowl off, which hit the cat, killing it outright. He then started to crawl up the stairs, muttering, I'm not drunk, it's only shell shock. Don't tell him mother about Fluffy. He then threw a sixpenny bit at me, and still on his hands and knees, disappeared up the stairs. I was aroused from this reverie by my actual father actually talking to the actual me. Arthur, are you listening? he interjected. I nodded. I hadn't the heart to tell him I was actually writing a book at the moment, so couldn't give him my full attention. "'How old are you, my boy?' he interrogated me. "'Frankly, I can't really remember, father, and I wish you hadn't asked me that,' I replied. "'Let's say I was five. We don't want to fall out over a year or two. Five, father,' said I. Father suddenly went quiet and stared at the floor. It was almost as though someone had switched him off. And it's partly because I've lost my thread, and it might be time to go to the bookies anyway.' Try my daily patent, each way, six cross-doubles, three trebles, and an accumulator. If you get one of those up, you're laughing. Chapter 8 again. The next chapter again. I'll never forget that moment when Father broke the news to me. It's burned into my memory like a cow being branded in a western. In fact, whenever I smell burning leather, I'm right back there in that drawing room. A small, approximately five-year-old, wide-eyed boy, with a lifetime of triumphs and awards ahead of him. As I intimated before I went to the bookies in the last chapter, the next chapter, he had called me into the drawing-room to tell me some news. The news was that he and Mother had decided to take me out of school and take me on the road with them, educating and tutoring me themselves. At first, Mother was against the idea. See how, in the next chapter, she comes round to it. Chapter 9. A Star is Born 
At first, Mother tried to talk me out of following her into the profession. It's such a hard life, my darling, she said. So very few people make it in the profession, and you have such a fine mind, Arthur, that I really think you could one day be the next Lord Mayor of London. You've got to be better than Boris Johnson is, who, in my opinion, has got something wrong with him, and gets on my nerves with his stupid hair. And if I ever found myself next to him with a pair of scissors, I'd cut his bloody fringe off. She, she mused, possessed almost with a second sight. But I wouldn't listen. I was four years old with everything ahead of me. What cared I for the affairs of state? What cared I for the trappings of high office? What cared I for the other one I'll think of after? Finally, seeing I could not be shifted in my resolve, she gave in and ceded to my request. We put a new act together, and it featured myself dressed as a baby in a pram. Father played my father, and mother played my mother. Its genius was its simplicity. The act was this. Mother would push me on stage as though we were walking in the park. Father would be drunk, and he and mother would have a row. She'd storm off, and he'd have to look after me. He kept falling asleep on a deck chair, and I would keep getting out of the pram and kicking him up the behind, then getting back into the pram before he'd realised it was me. And do you know, it was even funnier than it sounds. After that first performance at the Newcastle Hippodrome, or somewhere similar, I'll never forget us sitting up all night waiting for the reviews to come in. We sat up all night waiting for the reviews to come in, and I'll never forget it. And here, published in full, is the relevant bit of the review which I'll never forget sitting up for all night, from the Newcastle Echo or something similar. In 1945. The performance of the baby, played by a certain Arthur Strong, was a non stop tour de France. His timing was impeccable, and this reviewer is in no doubt that he might go on to be as big as someone like Michael McIntyre in the future. A non stop tour de France, it said. I couldn't believe it, and at that time I didn't even have a bike of my own. That a reviewer thought I was capable of winning the Tour de Force without even having a bike meant so much to me. Of course, the Michael McIntyre of today hadn't been born yet, and, and anyway, I said someone like him. It was just pure coincidence, and use of that name is for purely illustrative purposes only. Frankly, I couldn't believe what I was reading. The thought that someone thought that one day I could be like someone like Michael McIntyre. Was beyond the comprehension of a five-year-old. In fact, I'm still having trouble with it, and I might have another go at that after Eggheads. Note to editor: Here we are. Here's my detective book I was telling you about. See what you think. A girl named Doris, a Who Done It by Count Arthur Strong. Apart from her cruel mouth. She was the kind of dame that had all the curves in all the right places, blonde, tall, with to die for deep blue, get yourselves up to bed now eyes, the kind that sucked you right in. In spite of everything, I felt kinda sorry for her. I lit two cigarettes in my mouth at once and handed one of them to her. Silently, she took it and had a puff, inhaling deeply. The smoke caressed the inside of her lungs, satisfying her need for nicotine. 
So tell me what you know about Moose Murphy, I uttered. She looked up at the ceiling, silently rolling both her eyes of hers, inhaling deeply on her cigarette as though her life depended on it. Listen, lady, this ain't no kindergarten, I snapped, losing my patience with her. I took my cigarette case out of my inside pocket and angrily opened it, lighting and cigarette from the other cigarette I already had on the go. I think they called it chain-smoking. I could see I'd upset her, and for the second time on this page, I felt kinda sorry for her. Without speaking, I crossed to the filing cabinet. I slid open the drawer and pulled out a bottle of white horse. I poured two glasses out and drank them both. It had been a long night. I inhaled very deeply on my one or two cigarettes I'd lit, momentarily losing count. Then I sat down on the chair, but not the way you normally do. I sat on it backwards, like they do in films. I pushed my trilby with the finger of the one next to my index finger of my left hand, so it tilted back on my head, and let out a sigh that seemed to go on forever. Finally, I looked at her, and with a half-smile on half my face, I forget which half, I poured another glass and pushed it toward her. She took it and drank from it hungrily. "'Why are you half-smiling at me?' she said. "'I'm sorry I behaved like a louse just then,' I intoned, ignoring her question like men do to women. She smiled a half-smile all of her own back at me. Touché, I uttered. "'You know, I can't quite work you out,' she said ruefully. "'Joined a club lady, I wisecrapped. "'Do you know, I don't think I've ever been as happy before for a long time, "'sitting on that chair backwards, wisecrapping, "'blowing our smoke out at each other and drinking our white horses. "'For a second I almost forgot myself and started singing The River of No Return, "'my favourite Robert Mitchum film.' But I knew somewhere deep down inside, call it a hump if you like, I just knew that that door would open and someone would let the outside in. Suddenly the door opened just like I'd prophesied, and from the outside a head poked its head round the corner. Better come quick, chief, the poked head said. We've had another anonymous telephone call. How do you know it was another one if it was anonymous? I quipped faster than an express train. I turned to Doris. It looks like I'm going to have to take a ten-four. Stay where you are, I uttered. Sure, I ain't got no plans, she spat back at me like next-door cat. Swell, I'll see you around in a bit. Then I turned to the man whose head it was and said, I want to know if she as much as breathes. And without so much as a backward glance, I left the room behind me, returning only to get my hat. Then I left the room behind me again, properly. As I drove at speed in the precinct squad car, I ran over in my mind again and again that time Doris and I had met. It was etched in my mind like a cut glass is etched at the factory. I could remember it like it was tomorrow. August the 12th. It was kind of raining. The kind of rain that kind of wets you all over if you're not careful or have an umbrella. I was working the east side when I got a call saying the neighbourhood's hoods were in the hood, having a meet. So I thought I'd show my face 
and throw them a frightener, see if I could pick any leads up. When I rounded the corner of East and 42nd, I saw the four of them standing there. Smelly Joe dipped the stick, Jones the post, and Moose Murphy himself. We nodded our heads at each other. I took out my packet of cigarettes out, lit five in my mouth at once, and gave each of them one each between them. Then I lit another five for myself. Moose looked up at me and said, You know, you ought to quit. I said, Yes, but what you forgot, Moose, is that when this book is set, they didn't know smoking was bad for you, because I've just researched that up in woman's own, so come back in another twenty years. Just then, the door opened, and we all looked to see what it was. It was the door opening, and through it came Doris. Ah, Doris. She walked over, swinging her hips of hers, like a pendulum does in any clock that might have one. We all lit a cigarette for her, and waited breathlessly. She surveyed the scene for what seemed an eternity, before she elected to choose mine. Moose glowered at me. Can I get your cocktail? I uttered to her, the breath catching in my throat as I was uttering. I'll have something long and cool, she retorted. Just like you, I retorted myself. Nice retorting, added Moose Murphy, enviously. There's plenty more where that came from, I retorted once more, yet again confirming my superiority at retorting. Moose didn't take the bait this time. He knew I was a better retorter than him, and he could only ever come a poor second at retorting when I was in the room. Chapter 4 A Book, A Book, My Kingdom for a Book So successful had our act become that we were asked to stay on in Newcastle for an unprecedented five-week run. Dad and Mum, or whatever I call them now, rented a two-up, two-down, one-round-the-corner Victorian terrace house with an outside lavatory. For some reason, the Victorians thought having a toilet in the house was unhygienic, the idiots, preferring to urinate in a basin they kept under the bed. Then some poor sod like me had to carry the bloody thing to the outside toilet without spilling it, whatever the weather. Where's the sense in that? It's what the ergonomists call double-handling that. We are not amused. You say that again. I tried to fit in with the local children, but frankly they resented me because of my success and top hat. Let's face it, I wasn't like them. I wore the aforementioned top hat, blew my nose on a monogrammed handkerchief, and was well-spoken when I spoke. They wore holy balaclavas, ones with holes in, not religious, used their sleeve arms to wipe on, and couldn't really speak to speak of, instead choosing to make a series of almost musical grunting noises, which I came to understand is what they call Geordie. It's a bit like what they call speech in Liverpool, but not quite as bad. You know, I can't understand a single word that that John Bishop says. He said something last night that was like, It's like he's choking or something. I wonder how many times people have jumped up and tried to give him the kiss of life during his act. Oh, the Heineken manoeuvrement, if he, if he can call it an act. It's just a lazy way of speaking. It's like Welsh. 
That advert for the postcode lottery, I can't understand what him in the Welsh rugby shirt saying in that. My numbers could have come up and I wouldn't have a clue. Maybe that's why they're doing it. Get announcers that don't speak properly to do it and then no one will ever know they've won. Then someone's pocketing the money. They must think we were born the day before yesterday, that lot. That's what they did in the war. The BBC got Wilfred Pickles to read the news because they thought the Germans wouldn't understand his dialect. Nobody else could either. For five years, no one knew what the news was. Despite my celebrity's status, I was, is, and always have been a shy, humble, and sensitive person when I'm away from the cameras or an audience or a bus stop. And unbelievably, though it may sound to you about someone like me, I found it difficult to make friends with my peers. I found I had so little in common with them. There was the language barrier for a start, as I outlined previous, and for another thing, I just couldn't bring myself to eat coal like everybody else did up there. It wasn't so much the taste. In fact, him that sells the big issue says it's actually good for you. It was the smell of it. So all these things put together made me feel a little bit ostriched by the people up there. I was working every night, of course, at the theatre, so I decided that during the day I would put all my energies into self-educating myself. Little did I know just what a momentous decision that decision was I've just told you about was. Through my life, the fact that I'm well-educated has opened doors for me, quite literally almost. Because of my education, I have walked with paupers and Lord Mayors in equal measure and I have always treated everybody as equal. From the dirtiest person you cross the road to avoid that's asking for money, to dukes and duchesses, all are equal in my eyes, more or less. And that's all down to me being educated. Sometimes people ask me what was the most important facet, the most important part of my life's journey, and I always tell them, without hesitation, it was being able to swallow a sword and my education and having uh, my bunions done and learning to drive. Oh, I might rethink this bit. There's a, there's a bigger list than I thought there was once you get going on it. I'd always been an avid reader. Magazines, newspapers, the back of the sugar puff packet, anything with letters in it formed into words and then sentences, paragraphs, chapters and ultimately books. In fact, it was said in the family that when I was born, I came out of mother with a book in my hand. I don't know whether that's true or not, or if it was what they call apocryphal. I have no memory of it, so I cannot rule it in or out. If it was true, I'd like to know how the book got up there, and what book it was. Probably a Dickens, knowing the young me, as I did and do. I devoured the works of Charles Dickens and would pour over them under the eiderdown with only a tin of sardines and a box of matches to illuminate the pages long after I was supposed to be asleep. My favourite one of his was Alice in Wonderland and if I read it once, I read it a hundred times. Or oh, fifty then. Funnily enough, one of my favourite places to read has always been on the toilet. It's got nothing to do with the usual use of the facilities, I hasten to add. It's just for some reason I always feel like reading in there once I get sat down. 
I'll often end up reading the back of a bottle of shampoo or something if I'm taking short and don't have time to pick a book up on the way in. Fortunately, that doesn't happen as often as it used to. Now I'm on the other pills. Anyway, that's how avid a reader I am. I came up with a marvellous idea for breaking the ice with the Geordie Cole children. I decided I would perform a benefit show for them to raise awareness for their plight, just like they do on Children in Need. In fact, you could say because of this, it was me and not Terry Wogan that invented and created Children in Need. A fact that everyone has conveniently seemed to forget. Not that I believe you should go around blowing your own trumpet up yourself like he does. I mean, I've been involved in charity work for longer than I can shake a stick at. In fact, I was at a charity garden the other night for my favourite charity, which I'm a figurehead for. Stop the Dolphins. No, it wasn't that. Um, not Stop the Dolphins. Stop the Orphans. No, it wasn't that either. You can't stop orphans, can you? Um, the, the one where she stood outside the chemist with a leg in a caliper. Dr Barnum's houses, that's it. Yeah, you buy houses for them, off Dr Barnum. Yeah, and I'm a figurehead for that. Oh, yes, I'm a great giver-backer. Do you know, I think I'm only truly happy when I'm surrounded by those less fortunate than myself. Over the years, I've raised so much for so many with so little that people affectionately refer to me as the Jack the Ripper of the charity world, which is lovely of them to do that. No, not Jack the Ripper. Uh, Robin Hood. Uh, you'll check all this, won't you, in case I've done that before. Jack the Ripper was a murderer, I think. Chapter 15. Old Friends The wonderful thing about the variety theatre in those days was, being on a circuit, the acts were constantly changing, like bags of luggage on an airport carousel do, and there was always the opportunity to meet old friends. I say that because this next bit after this line is about just that, and this has been a preamble into it. It's a device we writers use for such things as this. And I want you to feel free to take all these tips I'm giving you for only a small voluntary contribution, which you must let your conscience dictate. It was a damp Tuesday afternoon. The north-eastern wind was gusting, blowing a leaf across the cobbled Newcastle streets, a sentence that perhaps a young Catherine Cookson might have dreamed about writing in one of her books. Possibly one about a defrock vicar having an illegitimate child that the squire's son falls in love with, then he gets killed in the war and she realises she's having his baby. Then she ends up marrying the squire to cover that up and when he finds out, he throws her out and she's found a week later on the roadside by some travellers and she has the baby and dies. So they take the baby with them and when it grows up, it comes back to claim its inheritance from the squire, who's never got over it and welcomes it back with open arms. And I'd be good as the squire in that, if they made that into a film, because I've been told I have authority. A flat-capped man, coat muffled up against the elements, struggles against the wind as he crosses the road and enters the stage door of the theatre, just in time for the afternoon matinee. Once he'd unmuffled himself... I could see that it was none other than our old friend, Bendy Bob from Doncaster, from the contortionist act my mother used to be in. It was wonderful to meet an old friend again. In fact, it was just like meeting an old friend again. Uh, and after we all slapped each other on our backs and said our hellos, 
Bob told us that after Mother had left the act, the rest of them all went their separate ways. Jerky John was arrested for burglary, Elastic Eileen became a nun, and Bob went solo, apart from another person in his act, whose name escapes me. What Bob's act was is he used to come on stage and there'd be a suitcase in the middle of it. He'd then squash himself into it and the other one of the solo act, whose name escapes me, would come and carry it off. And do you know, if Bob was short of money, he'd sometimes stay in the suitcase after the show and the other one, whose name escapes me, would carry it on the train. Oh, he saved himself a fortune in travel and expenses. He did it for years, that. And he was doing all right until the great train robbery. No, he was never heard of again. Imagine the look on Ronald Biggs's face when he opened the suitcase and Bendy Bob fell out. Oh, he thought he'd stolen a suitcase full of letters from the post office, not a Doncaster-based contortionist with dislocated arms and legs. Anyway, it was lovely to see Bob before he went missing, and I never saw him again. Chapter 15 the pages of my journal. One of the things that's been a useful tool to me in the writing of this wonderful memoir are my scrupulously dated and detailed diaries I've always kept since I was a small boy child. And I just thought, when I was having my egg, that it would be marvellous for you to see some excerpts from them in their true form. So what I've done is I've just delved into them at random, and here follows some salient and pertinent entries. Wednesday, January the 7th, 1963. Great news! England have just won the World Cup at football with goals by Nobby Styles and Alf Ramsey, which is marvellous news, particularly for people that like football. Because there are so many idiots out on the street celebrating, I'm almost late to arrive at the Adelphi Theatre for my show tonight. When I do get to my dressing room, my understudy, a spotty youth named Albert Finney, whose name escapes me, is already in his underpants with one leg in my show trousers. Would he be so fast to jump into my grave, I mentally make one of those mental notes of. He's a strange young man, is Finney. He has the look to me of someone who might put on a lot of weight and not be very good in Skyfall sometime in the future with me being barely able to understand what he's saying in it in parts. I didn't know it was him at first. I thought, who's that dirty old sod? Where have they got him from? In fact, when he came on, I nearly got up and left. I would have done if I hadn't been at home watching a VD of it. Oh, he's really let himself go. Don't get me wrong, I've seen him be good in things. Mind you, he's not really done anything of note since some mothers do have him, has he? But credit where credit's due, he was good in that, doing his whoopses for Betty all over the carpet. Anyway, our show is a musical version of Bridge Up the River Kwai, in which I'm obviously playing the lead role, made famous by the Alex Guinness of the same name. And actually, everyone I know says I should have done the film instead of him, though you'll not hear me saying that, because I'm magnanimous about it. Left the theatre at 10.25 to have dinner with the late Max Bygraves and Jimmy Clitheroe, who was on time. He may have been on time, but Jimmy is in a foul mood. First he wants ice cream with his potatoes, then he messes his trousers and won't stop crying, and all night long he's blowing on a little plastic trumpet. I tell you, I wouldn't have come if it wasn't his turn to pay. After the pudding, Semolina, I make my excuses and leave. Fall asleep on the 31 again, awaken at Terminus.
get home half past three, straight to bed, to sleep, perchance to dream. Saturday, August 7th, 1980. An audition for The Sound of Music by Rogers and Hammerhead. For a tour of sports halls, I think, or something. Although no one said, I'm obviously up for the Christopher Plummer part in it. And I have to say, they were terribly rude people I saw. Terribly rude. The, the one that had his glasses on a chain round his neck stopped me halfway through the song I was singing. When I said, what you stopped me for? I was just getting to a good bit. He said, you don't seem to know what the name of the song you're singing's called. It's called Edelweiss. I said, oh, no, it is not. I said, listen, I don't know what version of the film you've seen, but I've got a video of it when they did it on Russ Abbott's Madhouse, and it's definitely Idleswine, the singing in that. I've done my scrupulous research I'm famous for on it, I said. I said, I think you'll find it's a song about a lazy member of the Hitler Youth. That shut him up. Yes, and I said, hey, I'll tell you something else you never hear them saying about the sound of mucus. She makes those children, seven of them, she makes them clothes out of a big pair of curtains, 15 foot high, as if that's a cheap way of doing it. Have you seen how much curtaining is? It's a fool's economy, that is. And there's a war on, the blackout. Light flooding out the window through all the dress-shaped holes she's cut. All the Gestapo would have to do is match the clothes against the holes and bingo, you're in a concentration camp. It's a wonder we ever won the war with Julie Andrews on our side. Absolute madness. Then I offered to do 16 going on 17, but they didn't want a second song, probably because Idlesod couldn't be bettered. December 12th, 1980. No post this morning. Get batteries. Still nothing from the sound of mucus, people. If I've not heard by Friday, I'll give them a call. They're probably trying to make me sweat because I put them straight on a couple of things, which I think is quite pathetic. Want to grow up, if you ask me. Be more mature about it. Had a big row with her at the post office, putting the stamps up again. I said to her, can you explain to me how the post office can justify putting the penny black up year on year until we're where we are today? It's scandalous. Anyway, I didn't have time to stand around because I had to get home to do my horoscopes for the church magazine. Oh, do you know, I'd forgotten I did horoscopes in the 80s. Hey, I'll tell you what. As a bonus here, on the next page, everybody, are tomorrow's stars, at no extra charge, unless you feel moved to offer me something for it. Eh? What about that, then? You wouldn't get Charles Dickens doing horoscopes in the middle of one of his books, would you? There's Mr Trick there. Tomorrow's Stars by Count Arthur Strong Aries, the sign of the ram a letter brings you news about a loved one. In the afternoon, your telephone may stop working. The steering will fail on your car. Heed my warning. Gemini, the sign of the twins. For most Geminis, things come in twos for obvious reasons, which could be deemed a bit greedy if it was, say, two dinners. Just remember that and mind your manners. I always thought it would be nice for me to have a twin brother. Capricorn, the sign of the... Uh, well, I don't know what it is. It looks like another ram, but there can't be two rams, can there? It's possibly a goat. We'll call it a goat for now. The sign of the goat. Look out for a wolf in sheep's clothing, bearing gifts. Eat some raw garlic and keep all your windows shut. Unless you're outdoors, obviously. 
Serpico, the sign of the lobster. Not to be confused with the film Serpico, which I enjoyed and was on last night. Serpicoreans are by nature shy and retiring, so just keep what you're doing and stay out of our way. Virgo, the sign of a woman holding a plant. I knew a Virgo who was round the twist, and I've never really liked him as a consequence. Um, read a book. Leo, the sign of the lion. The lion is the king of the jungle, and like the lion, you are refined and have great charisma, are a natural entertainer, and much loved by all. You deserve to be. You've worked hard to get where I am. Congratulations. Aquarius, the water you are holder. You're too trusting. If you were more suspicious of people and not so stupid, you might have made something of yourself, Anne. Come back tomorrow and I'll do your tarot cards. Lucky colour, turquoise. Cancer, the sign of crabs. The crabs can be nasty, so you want to guard against that, and they can give you a nasty nip if you're not careful, like ferrets. I like them with a bit of mayonnaise and some salt on them in a sandwich. It's crabs, I mean, not ferrets. I wouldn't eat a ferret, um, unless it was me or it. A house move might be on the cards. Favourite colour, magenta. Libra, the weighing scales of justice. Librarians tend to make good judges or justices of the pieces. So, if you're not one already, it sounds like a career change is in the stars at the end of the rainbow. Get a book on it and stop bothering me. Favourite thing, the seed drill. Sagittarius, the horse with a man's front. Well, I'm saying man's front. I've never been sure how far down it goes if you get my drift, you know. There was obscure that bit out whenever I've seen one in drawings or in a film. So I can honestly say, hand on heart, that I have no idea how you lot go about your ablutions, shall we call it. You must just hope for the best in the cubicle. Good luck with it all. What I do know is that a centaur's lucky favourite colour might be green. Scorpio, the sign of the lobster, although it looks just like a crab. Not to be confused with the film Scorpio of the same name. Famous Scorpioreans include Al Pacino from one of my favourite films, coincidentally also called Scorpio. Hoo-ha! And that's typical of you lot. Clear as mud. Favourite celebrity... Oh, the Rusky. Chapter 9. The End of the War It was 1945 when it happened. I remember I was fast asleep in bed when I was woken up by a cacophony of loud noises from outside my window pane. At first, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I thought I must be dreaming it, and then I thought... What if I'm dreaming, thinking I thought I was dreaming it? And then I remembered I'd been dreaming about a big cat wearing a dress that was hitting me with a stick because I wouldn't eat my soup. I didn't know what to do, where to turn, or what to say, or who to say it to if I knew what to say or do or where to turn. Suddenly, I was wrested out of this conundrum by what sounded like a military band playing. I arose out of bed, and crossed sensitively to the olive-green curtains, unceremoniously flinging them aside in my haste to look out of the window. Obviously, we didn't know the curtains were olive-green then. No one knew what an olive was in 1940s England. 
In fact, I didn't have an olive until 1974, and when I did, I wished I hadn't. Even now, I will ask for a bowl to spit them into if someone puts them in a meal at a restaurant. I had to put some in a plant pot once when I was at a variety club of Great Britain do for David Burglass. I think it was David Burglass. He, he is an illusionist, so it might not have been him. Um, oh, I can't abide parmesan neither. It smells like sick. I had some in a sandwich once and it tastes just like candle wax, but not as nice. Outside, I could see that what I'd thought was a brass band playing was a brass band playing and people were marching behind it, shouting, It's the end of the war! It's the end of the war! What on earth did they mean? I pondered to myself, trying to make some sense out of the scene being acted out before my eyes of mine. Once I'd collected myself, because it would have been stupid to go downstairs without me, I rushed downstairs. Mother and father were on the doorstep with the door ajar their eyes shining with tears of joy in their eyes. "'It's over, old fellow! It's over!' ejaculated father. It was then I realised. It was over! It was over! "'What's over?' I said, puzzled. "'Why, my boy, the Second World War, of course!' "'Does that mean you won't have to limp any more, father?' I intoned. Father dropped his head back and laughed like an infectious hyena. Mother joined in, and soon they'd infected the whole street. We must have looked quite a sight, but we didn't care. The war was over, and we'd survived it. Chapter 14 Back to Normal With the war over, things were slowly getting back to normal. The news had filtered through to us from Germany, that Adolf Hitler had killed himself to death in a bunker. What he was doing in there, I guess we'll never know. Perhaps he fell in whilst trying to fill the scuttle, reaching out desperately for the last bit of coal in those just post-war days. Perhaps a small kitten had got trapped in there and was mewing, I reasoned. Hitler might have gone to see what the noise was, tripped over his own jackboots and Bob's your uncle. It was just a senseless accident and ironic that it should happen just when peace broke out. To think he'd got all the way through the war, only to die, possibly rescuing a cat. Mother had always told me to stay out of our coal bunker, and the fact that I'm still here today attests to the astuteness of her good advice. God bless her for that. If you would have been Hitler's mother, mother, he may well be here today. A sobering thought. Although we were still proving popular on the variety circuit, Mother wanted to move back to London. So move back to London we did, stopping off in Doncaster to say a quick farewell to Auntie Irene, who said she didn't know who we were and wouldn't let us back in the house. I've always had a soft spot for Doncaster, because of my time spent there during the war, and consider it my second home. Well, third home, I should say. I do have a half-share in a beach hut in Kilnsey with my butcher, and I'm able to stay there unmolested every third week in November, when it's not burnt down, which wasn't my fault. And just like Patrick Moore, I've had many lovely nights there, sat in a deck chair with my binoculars out, looking for the Aurora Borealis. After the celebrations of VD Day had died down, it became clear that things would be hard for some time yet. 
we still had rationing to contend with, and the pig had gone missing, like Shergar, presumed eaten by person or persons unknown. That's the pig, I mean, not Shergar. That is a mystery. My theory is that someone took it, stuck an onion in its mouth, and cooked it up with some apple sauce. The pig, I mean, again, not Shergar. I wish I hadn't mentioned bloody Shergar, it's just confusing. I, I personally think that whoever took it must have been someone known to it. Shergar, I mean, not the pig. Of course, we were still growing our own vegetables, which I'm not going to list again, I've done it once. If you're that bothered, look for the page and read it again. And while we're on vegetables, I, w I went out to get some sausages last night from Londis, because John said they had some on offer. And when I got home with them and cooked them up, I thought there was something wrong. So I got the packet out of the bin, and they were all made of vegetables. There was no meat in them at all. There were Paul McCartney's ones from the pop group. So I had to go out again with my knees and get some proper sausages. And then I had the Paul McCartney sausages with those sausages as vegetables. Which looked a bit odd, because all I had on my plate in the end was what looked like about 50 sausages. Mind you, it's a good use for the vegetable sausages, that, having it with your meat. I'm still going to try and get my money back, though. Trades Descriptions Act. You can't call it a sausage unless there's a good about 6 to 8% meat in there. Yeah, I'm going to send John Lennon a letter about that. Through it all, I've always loved. By Count Arthur Strong. Chapter 15. What's that all about? Mother wanted me to go back to school, and for a time I did. But frankly, I was so far ahead of everybody, even the teachers, that it was pointless. I would just sit there every day waiting for them all to catch up. Eventually, they all saw sense and asked me to leave, because I was so brainy. In fact, I was the top percentile in the school. I've always had a natural aptitude for everything, and in 1980-something I was paid the highest accolade possible and made an honorary thesis, or something, of Oxford University, and asked to address the famous Oxford Union. I spoke without notes for what someone later told me seemed like an age, and I reproduced for you after this sentence what a stenographer wrote down verbatim just after I'd uttered each word. Count Arthur Strong, full transcript of address to Oxford Union, 1980-something. Subject, creationalism v. naturalism. Nice to be here. At my age, it's nice to be anywhere. Go on, be honest. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And there was light, radiant and bright. God called the light day, just like we do and the darkness he called night, again, which is just what we call it. So, so far, Oxford University is only calling things what we already know they are, and that we call a trend. On the second day, God created Adam and Eve from some spare ribs. I don't know where he got those from. No one thought to ask. Adam and Eve, naked as the day they were born, walked hand in hand through the Garden of Eden. They nibbled on one delicious fruit after another. Apples, oranges, 
pears, nectarines and tangerines are just some examples of what fruit is. When I was researching up on the Garden of Eden, I asked my greengrocer, Alan Clifford, who drinks in the woodpecker, for a ballpark number of just how many fruits there would have been in those days. And he said, did Alan, that there would have to be somewhere in the region of between 50 different ones. And that's coming from an expert in the field who's had his own fruit shop established 1963. Now, I don't know if you believe any of that, what I've just said to you from the good book. Because there are people who come down on the other side of the tent. And these people we call the natural selection people. And perhaps the most famous of them was Charles Dance, the explorer, who sailed to the North Pole on HMS... Um, oh, it was named after a dog, not Labrador. Um, it's got longer ears than a Labrador. Uh, oh, we'll say it was a basset hound. It's not that, but it's near enough. Now, I've read his book, The Oranges of the Species, scrupulously from cover to cover. You would expect no less of me. And I think I've found it's Achilles' heel, if you will. According to him, we all come from the gorillas. Fair enough. So far, so good, Charles Dance. Well done, you. But the question he never answers is A, who made the gorillas? And B, how come there are still gorillas today if they've all turned into us? You can't have it both ways. It's, it's, it's like Charlton Heston. One minute is Moses, the Ten Commandments. Next minute, he's talking to a gorilla, and it's talking back, riding round on a horse with a rifle in its hand. Now, it's not my job to tell you what to think about Charles Dance and his naturism. I simply present you with the facts. If they want to play tennis in the nude, or tiddlywinks, or fry eggs in the nude, that's their business as long as they don't start imposing their beliefs and letting it all hang out around us. Though, frankly, I wouldn't go near hot fat in my underpants, let alone in the altogether. That's just an accident waiting to happen. And, and you'll find a lot of the women that do it are quite fat. You have a look next time there's a programme on. So, Oxford University, did we come from the gorillas, as Charles Dance advocates, or were we made by God? as the Archbishop of Canterbury and Cliff Richards would have you believe. The choice, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, is yours. Thank you for listening to what I spake. You've been a lovely audience. I've been Count Arthur Strong. Apart from all my drink, I never got paid for that, you know. In fact, it wasn't about the money. I did it to give something back. Although it wouldn't have hurt them to pay me a bit, would it? I mean, they're supposed to have a bit of money, aren't they, Oxford? Morse drove a Jaguar Mark II, didn't he? Hey, and I tell you what, they've never done a time team on their Garden of Eden, have they? I might write into them about that. They find all sorts. Though it never says anything in the Bible about what they had then, does it? Just says they ate fruit, really. It's not my idea of paradise. All the fruit you can eat. I'd want some proper tinned soup and a nice car. Uh, and I know they had snakes because one bit Eve on the asp when she was having a bath of milk. But um, did they have any other animals there? Because that would be quite dangerous. Anyway, whatever they had is slipped up there, Tony Robinson. He's got his fingers in too many pies. That's what's up with him. He wants to pack the acting in and concentrate on the alcoholology programmes. I, I couldn't understand what he was saying when he did the waiter in 40 Towers. 
Mr Fawlty had to keep explaining to people he was from Spain. It was a bit of a cock-up in the casting department, if you ask me. Strangely enough, I can understand him in time, team, so I suppose he must have picked the language up. So, fair play to him for that. Chapter 20 Huey Green Opportunity Knox was the biggest television show on or off television through the 1960s, and in 1960-something, I auditioned for it. I can still remember how delighted Huey Green was to see me again, having only that afternoon shouted at him from across the street. I'm sure if he would have remembered that, I would have been a shoo-in for the television stages. By then, I was playing a saw with a violin bow for an act, and although someone had been on the television rounds of Op Knox doing it once before, they hadn't cut themselves badly in the auditions like I did and I was fast making a name for myself with this new take on playing a saw. I had fourteen stitches in that cut, breaking my record. In fact, cutting oneself playing the saw was such a natural hazard of the act that I actually wrote Roy Castle a letter to try and get him the Guinness Book of Records. But he said there was no such record as cutting yourself with a saw whilst playing Colonel Bogey, which I think was the Guinness Book of Records loss. Still, he sent me a nice signed picture, did Roy of himself and a trumpet. Him and that trumpet were real gentlemen. Mind you, it's changed a bit since then, the Guinness Book. There's a record for everything now. I was looking in one in the charity shop, and I've got a record for some idiot standing for 60 seconds with 250 tarantulas on him. Honestly, the things people would do for the two minutes of fame. You wouldn't catch me humiliating myself like that. And anyway, the pet shop near me said they couldn't get hold of 251 tarantulas. I said, well, thank you very much. I said, where does that leave me now? You've just cost me a world record. Have you got lots of any other animal? He said, we've got a llama. I said, no, I know you've got a llama. You keep it out the back, don't you? It spat at anyone that's stupid enough to come up your back passage. Anyway, anyway I'm not going to stand for 60 seconds with a llama all over me. I'm, I'm not an idiot. He said, oh, I've got four hamsters. So I asked him to put them by for me for a day or two until I'd had chance to go back to the Oxfam shop and see if there are any records you can do with four hamsters. Anyway, to cut a long story short, when I got back to the Oxfam they'd only sold the bloody book, hadn't they? It's like I'm destined not to get in that. Might just give it up and concentrate on my who's who entry. Chapter 18. Where to now? I'm late starting writing this this morning. So I'll have a job on to do my words you want, because the tape recorder I bought, so I could start dictating all this, instead of thumping away on this bloody thing until my fingers are stumps, was malfunctioning. I've had to go all the way back to Argos with it, and I'd done about half an hour of solid dictatoring on it, or so I thought, about the Royal Command performance. And that's all lost now. I'll have to make all that up again. The second time's never as good if you have to make things up twice. You won't believe the trouble I had getting the bloody thing changed. I've said to the woman in there, Listen, I haven't got time for malfunctioning machinery. I'm a very important and busy writer and author. She said, What's wrong with it? Listen to this, I said, and I pressed the play button. Then this woman's voice came on saying, I don't know what to say. Shall I say something about my new shoes? Well, the black patent with a stiletto heel. Ooh, I sound just like your Auntie Lily on the tape recorder, don't I? Then I switched it off and said to her, What have you got to say about that? 
She looked at me like there was something wrong with me. Then she ejaculated, What's wrong with that? It sounded clear enough to me. I said, That's supposed to be a funny anecdote about Kenny Ball and his jasmine. That's what's wrong with that. She said, Look, what's your complaint? There's people waiting. I said, My complaint is that what you've just listened to on that machine your shop sold me is not the voice of myself doing it back to you. Not only is it not the voice of myself, whoever it is that is doing it is not even saying what I said. So it appears to be faulty on a number of fronts. Then she tries to be clever. Where did you get the cassette tape from? I said I got it from Harry Underwoods, who she'd never heard of. I said, you know, Harry Underwoods, the second-hand shop on Whitfield Street, next door to where the school used to be, the knockdown. She said, I don't remember a school on Whitfield Street. I said, they've knocked it down, I've just told you. She said, this cassette is a very old cassette. It's obviously a recording of someone else that was on the tape when you bought it. I said, well, thank you. I knew it couldn't be me. I'm not a woman for a start, despite your inferences to the contrary about black patent stiletto shoes. She said, what do you want to do about it? I said, I'll have my money back, please. I have absolutely no confidence in the technology as advertised. Never known anything like it. And I dictated a lovely bit this morning, and that's gone forever now. By rights, I should be constipated by August for that. I'm all behind now. Anyway, fair dues to them. They gave me my £12 back. So, so I've had to come back to thumping this thing. That'll be tomorrow, though. I've done my quotient for today. Well, just about. Just coming up to about what you said I had to do every day without fail, which I'm almost there with now. Just another seven words by my reckoning. Reckoning, 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 reckoning. There we are. That's me finished. And despite all that with the cassette player, I still managed to write all my words for today. Plus this extra bonus paragraph explaining that. Wonderful. Chapter 21. Motivation. People often say to me, Arthur, you have had such a long and varied career. How is it that you keep yourself motivated up? Well, that's a very interesting question, and coincidentally, in my spare time, as well as my lay preaching, I am a motivational guru, available for block bookings and one-to-one -one consultations, things like getting football teams to win games, although getting Leeds United out of the bloody championship is probably a step too far even for someone with my prowesses. But seriously though, if they want to get in touch with me, now Neil Warnock has got the push, I'm sure I can make them win the World Cup next time Leeds are in one. Now, I do motivational talks all over the place, tooting, um, etc., everywhere. In fact, I'm lauded and revered for it. And I always start my talks off with this little speech to inspire people. Hello, everybody. Count Arthur Strong, motivational Google here. Before I start... I'd just like to say that if during my introduction speech you feel moved to tears, it's good to cry. Let it all flow out of you, as long as it doesn't go on. That's indulgent and annoying, and there is a fine line to be not stood over with regards to that. You know, when I was a little lad, I used to sit and read about the top film stars and matinee idols of the day. And I used to think to myself, 
It could never happen to me. And then I used to think, well, why not? And then I used to think, because things like that just don't happen to me. And then I used to think, but that doesn't mean that they can't. And then I used to think, oh, I'm just being stupid. And then I used to think, now, who are you calling stupid? And then I used to think, come over here and say that. And, and, and I would have gone on forever if the um, bus hadn't have come. What I'm trying to say, everybody, is that the power to change course lies firmly, very firmly, within you. Now, I know it'll be hard for some of you to imagine, because of who I am and what I've gone on to become, but I used to suffer from low self-esteem about myself. And if I found myself in a room full of empty people, I wouldn't know what to say. And pretty soon, that room full of people would be an empty roomful. So what you have to do is focus and be positive. You see, when I look at a half-empty glass, it doesn't look half-empty to me. It looks half full. Well, the bottom half of it does. Obviously, the top half of the glass is half empty. But that's not the half I'll be drinking. That would be stupid. would be just air. You can't drink air, can you? Man, you, it would be marvellous if you could, wouldn't it? Uh, although um, that would make air water, wouldn't it? So that would be like being underwater. And we don't have gills like a cod does, so you'd possibly die. Well, you might die, but I'm a half-glass-full man, so I wouldn't, because I think I've got liquid in the glass, haven't I? Also, if air were drink, all the pubs would close down. So there are all those implications to weigh up as well. Really, it's probably not worth it. Now, if you like what you've just read, why don't you book up for a chance to turn your life around and make something of yourself for once? Instead of always being in a room full of people by yourself, tongue-tied and wanting to go to the lavatory when anybody speaks to you, you could be just like me. Well, you might still need the toilet, but uh, you won't be tongue-tied. Of that, I can assure you. I'll put one of my flyers in between the pages, if they let me, and all the information you need is on there, not that I'm touting for work. Here follows some testimonials from top celebrities who have benefited from me. They are completely unsolicited and a big surprise to us all when they came in the post. Melvin Hayes I just want to say that when I was in summer holiday with Cliff Richards, I was motivated up by Count Arthur, and even though I am quite small, they let me drive the bus once, although it was cut from the film. I've never looked back since and look forward to another job with eager anticipation. Chris Akabusi My hurdling was literally all over the shop until I had a one-to-one -one with Count Arthur Strong. I then went on to win the bronze, I think, at the Olympics or Commonwealth Games. Bless you, Count Arthur. Whatever you charge, it's not enough. You could easily double it. Eunice Dubbs I was in summer holiday with Melvin Hayes, and what he says is true about the bus. Coincidentally, I also saw the Olympics when Chris Eubank won the bronze hurdles, and that's true as well. Count Arthur helped me overcome stage fright, and I can honestly say with my hand on my heart that I'm not bothered by stages at all now or anything. 
Oh, dear, they're really embarrassing me, those letters, and I do wish they hadn't put them in. Uh, I'm just a simple man with a gift who might be able to help you for a small fee of money. Anyway, it's up to you. As I say, I'm knocked out in for work, and I do one-to-ones and block bookings. All the numbers are on the flyer. Chapter 40 Queen or King and Country I'll never forget the date when my National Service conscription papers fell like a turbulent waterfall through the sluice gate that was our letterbox. It is etched permanently on my mind. I opened the envelope with trembling hands. It said I was to report somewhere for a medical check-up the following morning. At six o'clock that following morning, I left the house, got on my bicycle, and cycled to the town hall somewhere where the medical was to take place. In a kind of daze, I stood in line, dropped my trousers, um, I'll gloss over what they asked me to do then, and was passed A1 fit for battle, despite having a bad limp, my dad's idea. I was given three days and told to report to Catterick Army Barracks, which was to be my home for the next six weeks, whilst I was being honed into a fighting machine. After that, I was told I would be posted, which surprised me, because I didn't know you could post people. I'd imagined that the army had a better way of doing it. Must cost quite a bit, if you think of it. Mind you, in those days, postage was a lot cheaper than it is now. Goodness knows how much it would cost to send an actual person these days. It costs an arm and a leg to send a letter, let alone to send two arms and two legs, plus all the other bits, feet, knees, head, etc., Hair isn't heavy. Anyway, whatever it costs to send an arm and a leg, it doesn't matter, because I'd misunderstood what the sergeant major said, and it was a different kind of posting he was talking about. He made that abundantly clear to me when I said I couldn't be wrapped up because of claustrophobia. Three days. Three short days before I was plucked away from everything I knew. Like a leaf is wafted off a dandelion by the warm summer breeze so I too was going to be wafted into the army. In many ways I knew so much, but in other ways I knew so little. For instance, I could mind-read and had a phenomenal memory. For the last year I'd been gaining quite a reputation on the variety circuit as Count Arthur Strong, the memory man. On the other hand, I was a sensitive young man, not unlike John Mills when he played the grown-up Pip in A Christmas Carol. The three little days passed so, so, so quickly, and before I knew it, I was reporting to Catterick, a brown paper parcel containing my few precious belongings tucked under my nervous arm. I was told to go to the quartermasters by the shouty sergeant major to be kitted out with my uniform. It was there in the queue that I bumped into someone who had become a lifelong friend. Brian Connolly, not the comedian off the teddy, or the blonde one out of sweet, and actually I'm a bit fed up of hearing about those two whenever I mention Brian. This Brian Connolly I'm talking about was the same age as me, though not as privileged. He came from a rough working-class family, whilst I, it was rumoured, was a direct descendant of a one-time Lord Mayor of somewhere in the Forest of Dean, who owned a chain of shoe shops. But for all my good fortune with my rumoured lineage, Brian had one thing I did not. 
a trumpet. We got kitted out, and by the time we got back to the barracks, we were chatting away like old friends. A couple of the other feathers, Keith Moon, not the one out of the who, and Stuart Granger, not the one off the films with the grey sideboards, could play the washboard and stand-up bass respectively, and I thought I might be able to play the piano. I mean, how difficult could it be? We had an upright piano at home, and I walked past it often enough. It seemed to me it was only a matter of stopping in front of one and putting the lid up. So we decided to form a tea band, like Spike Milligan did in his book, Only Better. Unfortunately, the training was relentless, and they used to make us get up at the crack of dawn. Getting up at six o'clock in the morning was an amathenema to me. I was used to staying up late, performing two or three shows a night, then having a lie-in until dinner-time, something I tried to explain to the shouty man. But he made me peel a big sack of potatoes, which I thought was a bit odd. They did make you do some strange things in the army. You, you had to shine your shoes with the back of a hot spoon. Uh, if you were naughty, they made you peel potatoes or paint coal white, which I couldn't see the logic of. I mean, if you're going to paint coal, it should be a nice sea blue or something, coral delight, something from that side of the colour wheel. I still have nightmares about peeling potatoes. The doctor says it's like a form of shell shock, except with potatoes, a kind of potato shock. They, they try and brush all that under the carpet, but I bet there's a lot of ex-army lads suffering in silence. You never hear anything about that on Poppy Day, do you? And I've written to the British Legion about it. Nothing. I wrote, if Marks and Sparkses can give me a £5 gift card for a Brazil nut shortfall, surely the Legion can work out some constipation. I still have repetitive arm syndrome from holding that peeler as well, but you'll not hear me complaining. I was only too happy to serve king and country, or queen and country, whichever of them was on the throne, whenever this was. Anyway... Our six-week training raced by in a blur of whitewashed potatoes and peeling coal, and before we knew it, it was the day of our postings, which I've already explained to you what that is. If you're skim-reading and you've missed that, it's your lookout. It's nothing to do with the post office, I'll say that much. And frankly, you shouldn't skim-read anyway. It's insulting to us writers who put our life and souls into our craft for a good hour a day. Every word part of an intricately structured journey, leading us all, sometimes willingly, sometimes reluctantly, into the unknown. Even now I can recall the trepidation with which I walked on my legs up to the notice board in the Naffy to see where they would be sending me. Strong, Arthur, Alexandria, it said on the list. Look at us, they've got my name wrong, I said, and anyway Alexandria's a woman's name. No, said Brian, Alexandria is a place. Where is it? I implored him to tell me. It's not in bloody Scotland, is it? I remembered what the audiences had been like up there and was in no hurry to return to have more things thrown at me, if that was possible. I didn't mind the edible things, but because it was Scotland, most of it was past its sell-by. I once had the skin taken off my ear by a such humour that must have been at least a year old, I would estimate. That was at the King's Glasgow. Not like Buxton Opera House. The fruit was beautifully fresh there. Everyone wanted to play Buxton Opera House. In fact, most of the acts took a carrier bag on stage with them. It was there, I remember, I first tasted a lychee. No, Arthur, it's not in Scotland, Charlie replied. 
Alexandria is on the other side of the world, in Egypt, near Australia. And look, I'm going there too. I looked. It was true. They couldn't have called us both women's names by mistake. We were going to Egypt, near Australia. Chapter 40 The Land of the Pharaohs I'll never forget walking down the steps of that old Dakota aeroplane. It was like walking down any other set of steps I'd walked down before, but with one difference. Egypt was at the bottom this time, not the downstairs cellar. Oh, Egypt! Little did I know just how large a part this wondrous place was to play in my life, and I'll do that bit in a minute. But first, there were my duties to do. We were told to assemble for a briefing at fifteen hundred hours o'clock, which we duly did. It's often been said about me that I lead a charmed life, and I think there's some truth in that. Never had that been more evident than during this next bit I'm about to tell you about. Our commanding officer was an affable chap who I'll call Captain Something, because his name just escaped me for a minute. And, as he walked along the line and inspected us, he stopped in front of me for what seemed like an age, all the time eyeing me in the eye. After what seemed like another age, he said, "'Don't I know you?' "'I don't think so, sir,' I replied, smartly saluting in the British fashion, "'longest way up, shortest way down.' "'I used to be theatre manager at the Watford Palace,' he said, "'and he remembered me doing my act.' and he asked me to put some shows together to entertain the troops, like in Spike Milligan's book again. Not that I'm copying that. In fact, I can hardly remember reading it. So you can forget any legal actions if you Spike Milligan or his publisher. As you'll have probably gathered by now, this is a much more highbrow enterprise than your book. No offence intended. The only similarity is, and I hold my hands up to this, is that we're both using the alphabet, and there's not a court in the land would find in your favour on that basis. Almost all books use the alphabet, and, and, and I'm amazed I'm having to explain that to you. How long have you been a publisher for? I mean, that's just basic, is that? Junior school stuff. The weeks that passed in Egypt were some of the happiest moments of my young life. The Egyptians really took me to their hearts. You can say what you like about the Egyptians, but the possibility they extended to me went before them. It really did. Most of my time was taken up auditioning aspiring performers, writing sketches, composing music. I had never been busier or happier. But I also managed to find time to get off and do some sightseeing. I'd always been interested in Egyptian alcoholology, ever since I went to school for that bit, and in a break from rehearsals, me and some of the cast hired some dirty camels and went to do a bit of exploring across the inhospitable dunes of the Gobi Desert. Ah, the pyramids, the Sphinx, the Valley of Kings, the Valley of Queens, and the tombs, the tombs! Do you know, if I live to be an hundred... I'll never forget that night when we arrived at the cursed old tomb of King Nebuchadnezzar, if I live to be an hundred. At either side of the entrance, hewn from solid granite, I would imagine, stood two giant colossuses, 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 
Colossus. Oh, I know. I'll come at this another way. At one side of the entrance stood one giant Colossus, and at the other side of the entrance stood another giant Colossus. See, there's ways round all that. We stood in awed silence, transfixed by the sheer scare of it all. Imagine that. The entire cast of Fiddler on the Roof struck dumb. It's a good job it wasn't a matinee. I turned to Charlie. You stay with the dirty camels, Charlie. I'm going in the pyramid. With that, I made my farewells, and flaming flambeau in hand, I turned and walked through the entrance. Once inside, I could see in the half-light ahead of me a doorway. It seemed to beckon me. Onward I went, ever onward, passing several of the royal sarsophaguses, 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 must be sarsophaguses if there's more than one of them. One goose is a goose, two geeses is a geese, it's a plural, sarsophaguses. Above them were writ the hieroglyphics, abandon hope, all ye who enter here, beware the curse of the mummy's tomb. I come too far to turn back now, Onward I went, ever onward, until finally I arrived at the entrance of the burial chamber of King Nephew Ferneza. Once inside, there were no prizes for guessing which was Nephew Ferneza's thoth of the goose. It shone like solid gold in the half-light, almost half-blinding anyone who even half looked at it. To my left, hidden to the naked eye, I spotted a concealed chamber. My throat went as dry as a bone. Could this be the final resting place of the most famous this pharaoh of them all? Now, I'm going to stop at this point, because here's a good tip for you for remembering all these stupid names. You turn the name into English and break it up into syllables. So, let's go back to where we were, and I'll show you. Could this be the final resting place of the most famous pharaoh of them all? Toot the car horn. See? Toot the car horn. That's how you remember them. Yeah. And there's a patent pending on that, so I don't want to come across any of you going round saying you thought it up. Specifically, Paul Daniels I'm thinking of there. I pushed open the door. What secrets would lie behind the... Just like Bruce Forsyth's trousers only without making a fuss about it. People often ask me, where did the name Count Arthur Strong come from, and am I a real count? Well, I'm glad you asked me that, because the explanation is very interesting and quite believable. Originally, the name was my variety moniker from when I started doing my Memory Man act everybody knows me for. Then, in 1960-something, I was afforded the great honour of doing the Royal Command performance. And, I believe, and this can be verified by Debrecht and Wisden, I'm almost sure of that, I believe that by dint of the fact that the Queen Mother called me Count and shook my hand at the same time, that that made the title official. Well, let's put it this way. I've heard nothing to the contrary from the palace, and surely they would have let me know if it wasn't. Oh, what a star-studded line-up there was on the Royal Command that night. Mike and Bernie Winters, Acker Bilk. Oh, I used to get very nervous, did Acker, before he went on. I remember saying to him in the wings, You'll never be a Pavarotti, Acker, but stick to what you're good at and you'll eat fifty-six weeks of the year. Now, have you ever thought of wearing a bowler hat? 
And do you know, he took my advice, and he has eaten 56 weeks of the year. In fact, he's playing near me soon with Kenny Ball. It's a wonder he's still got the puff. It was that evening I recall saying to a young Cliff Richards, Will you get down off that staircase? If your mother were to come back here, it wouldn't just be you that'd get into trouble, it would be me as well. Now act your age, not your shirt size. There was only one blot on that whole wonderful evening, and that was we had this American singer, that's what he called himself, Perry Como. What sort of name's that for a full-grown man? Anyway, I went to his dressing room before the show to see what song he was doing. He said, Wow, I'm going to do, she wears red feathers and a hula hula skirt. I said, No, you're bloody well not. I'd heard that on the wireless myself and was going to do that as the finale to my spot. I quite liked the imagery behind it. He tried to crack on it was him on the wireless, but I wasn't having that. I'm not an idiot. Well, things turned a bit ugly then, and we had a bit of a set too. It didn't bother me. I've done boxing. Who is a nasty man, that Pericomo. Nasty, nasty, vicious man. Anyway, he threw a right hook at me, and I sidestepped, and I was going to counter with a left uppercut, because that is the natural counter to a right hook. Unfortunately, when I sidestepped, I put my foot in the orchestra pit, and I fell right in, right down to the bottom. Oh, it was very serious, very serious. Thank goodness there was someone from the St. Andrew's Jumblins Brigade there. They have to call an ambulance and everything, and I was rushed straight off to hospital, where I received immediate treatment for a suspected leg. So you can see how serious that was. Anyway, I think I had the last laugh, because the very next morning, at least two equerries from the royal family came into the ward where I was recuperating, carrying a big basket absolutely full of fruit from the Queen Mother herself, and extending her well-wishes to me for a speedy recovery. So, I'm sure you'll all agree, I had the last laugh there. Apart from not getting to do my act in front of the Queen, and millions at home, at the Royal Command performance. Chapter about 40. More excerpts from my daily journal. Thursday morning, 1966. Start work at the BBBC. I'm doing a bit on a radio play with Anna Massey and Anton Lesser, who seem to be in every bloody radio play the BBBC have on. I'll tell you something, if I was a small child, I'd think that's what radio was. Those two, banging on ad infinitum. It's not like the BBBC was. Yeah, we're lucky if we get a cup of tea out of them these days. I'll tell you something. If I was Director General, the first thing I'd do on day one would be I'd be down the canteen sorting the food out, getting morale back to what it should be after Watergate and Jonathan Ross and Russell Grant. Fancy having an elephant in a room. No wonder they were given the push. Anyway, I'd sort the menus out. Never mind hobnobbing with Alan Yentob. I'd be, I'd be having hobnobs with Yentob. Chocolate Yentobs. And in a side issue, he's very small, Alan Hobnob. I walked past him in the corridor. If he hadn't said hello to someone I was with, I wouldn't have known he was there. I told them anyway. I said, I've had no breakfast this morning because I thought there'd be food on. There wasn't even a bottle of drink on. Obviously, some people have never heard of the word possibility. 
You'd have thought that at least I've had some bits of quiche, something you can wrap up and take home with you when you're finished. I once took a whole salmon home when I did just a minute. Ooh, must have been twenty pounds if it were an ounce. Salmon for me breakfast, salmon for me dinner, salmon for me tea. I was sick of the sight of the bloody thing in the end, laid on its plate staring at me with those cold accusing eyes, playing its bloody mind games with me. I went to hell and back with that fish. I can still see it now, looking back at me from across the table, tormenting me with its barely suppressed insolence. In the end, I had no option but to flush it down the toilet, face first. Of course, Nicholas Parsons had the pick of the table, what with it being his show. He took all the cheese. I can still see the look of triumph on his face as he waltzed out of the door, holding one of his great big balls in each of his hands. Avedam. Mind you, they were all at it on that show. Clement Fraud went home with at least three pounds of hummus in his cupped hands. Poor old Pam Ayres only managed to come away with a half-eaten Cornish pasty. She was livid, swearing like a trooper. Me and Derek Nimmo had to pull her off the producer. That is a side of Pam Ayres I hope never to see again. I tell you something, when you're listening to your radios at home, you lot, it all sounds glittery and lovely, doesn't it? Sitting there dunking your biscuits with your feet up, or having a cream cracker with a nice bit of cheese on it. Once you get the other side of that metaphoric curtain, it's all for one and one for every man, all for himself each back there. Half the cast suffering from malnutrition. The wonder we can get the words out half the time. I was saying to an absolutely ravenous Edward Woodward, I think it's very short-sighted of them not to lay food on. They get the best out of us then. He said he'd only had a two-egg omelette with a few chips all day, and he had to pay for that himself in the canteen. It's not my idea of a public service broadcaster. No wonder the BBC is in trouble. I'll tell you something, if I was Director General of it, the first thing I'd do on day one is sort out the food. Lest we forget, an army marches on its stomach. And that was Winston Churchill, or someone that said that. Chapter 29. After Dinner Talking about food, as I was in the last chapter, before you say anything, one of the benefits of being a celebrity like I am is that we're often asked to do after-dinner speaking engagements. These can be for anything from a charity engagement, like the World Wildfowl Life Fund, whatever it's called, a favourite charity of mine, to a corporate business do for a lot of loud-mouthed drunk people who think they're wonderful. And one of the first rules when you get one of these is you must know your audience. It's meticulous research that keeps these people coming back and booking me again, hopefully. For instance, I did one for a chain of lavatory bulb manufacturers once, no pun intended, chain, and I wish I'd have thought of that on the night. It's funny how a lot of things occur to you to say after the event, as it were. Even someone as clever as me will often seem to come up with a very acute riposte some day or so later after the thing I'm reposting to has occurred. Often, coincidentally, when I'm uh, seeing a man about a dog in the smallest room in the house, or toilet, as it's more commonly known. For instance, when that bloody woman on the till in W.H. Smith says, Would you like any of our half-price sweets or chocolates today? The best I've done in the shop was a curt, No, I don't. Stop asking me. 
Whereas, if you give me a bit of time on the toilet, I can come out with all manner of clever replies, like, why is that, um, why is, is that when you, you, I'll be able to think of one in half an hour. Um, when I do, I'll come back to this bit and write it in, if I remember. Anyway, if I'd thought of saying chain, I would have been flushed with success. A pun intended this time, flushed, which I did use on the night to great effect. This is what I'm talking about, all these references. It's gold dust when you're doing an after-dinner. Frankly, I've done that many now, it's like falling off a bike to me. And you never forget how to fall off a bike, do you? Or if you do, you shouldn't be on the road in the first place. Or the pavements. That's just an accident waiting to happen, is that? You see them on the pavements all the time now, don't you? I had to stick my umbrella through someone's spokes on the pavement the other day. It's disgraceful. Not falling off a bike, um, a log... Like falling off a log. Why do people say that? That's even more stupid than falling off your bike. At least if you're on a bike, you're going somewhere. If, if you're on a log, I don't know what you're doing, frankly. I can't think of a single thing you'd be on a log for. So that's that maxim scotched. Another thing about ADSs, as we call them in the business, for short. It's short for after-dinner speeches. If you're that dozy, you need me to tell you. If you're not that dozy, then apologies to you. It's people like the thick ones that get us all a bad name. If you didn't understand that acronym, then you're probably better off reading a comic or something. The Beano's a comic, and perhaps you're more suited to that. I used to like the Hotspur and the Valiant. Dennis the Menace is all right, though I don't like the dog. It's never made me laugh. Another thing is, you often get royalty turning up at them. The Duke of Edinburgh is often there at the foul wild wildlife fund thing. I had a very interesting chat with him as it goes, because I had a bet with someone who will remain nameless because it's not his bloody book, is it? Last time I looked. It's not as though he doesn't have a shelf full of his own, which I can't see why anyone would want to read. They're just one half a story after another. But you won't hear me saying that, because he is one of my oldest friends, is Barry. Anyway... One night, on the way home from the public house, I had a bet with him about what meat was in a kebab. He said it was lamb, and I said it was all sorts of assorted meats compressed together so it stuck on the stick like a big kind of lump of luncheon meat lollipop, and with a pint bottle of Mackison on it. So, a couple of months later, I'm doing an ASD for the World Wild Werewolf Foundry Fund, whatever it is, and the Duke of Edinburgh's there, because he's the Duke of it. And I had an Eureka Johnson moment, because I thought, wait a minute, he's from Greece, isn't he? It's his national dish is a kebab. So I waited for an opportune moment, but one didn't happen, so I'd push my way in. And do you know, he was a lovely man. And I asked him about kebabs, and he said I was right, and what Barry said was rubbish. And he said he would take me out for a kebab, because he knew the best place near Tufnell Park tube station. And that was the Duke of Canterbury. Oh, I've mixed with them all. Chapter 31 Christmas Every year at Christmas... I do the story of the Nativity for the Scouts at St Aidan's, and one year I got one of them to record it. I thought it would be nice, as it's Christmas now, if while I nipped out to take some shoes back to the charity shop, my cleaner transcribed it off the tape, and I bunged it in here underneath this. So that's what's happening.
the Nativity, as done by Count Arthur Strong to the Scouts. "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all the children were in bed, excitedly waiting for Santa Claus to come down the drainpipe, when suddenly, in the east, a bright new star appeared in the sky. Just then, the angel Gabriel appeared and told them to follow it. This new star had not gone unnoticed by the three wise mice, blind blind men, kings, the three blind wise kings. They put gifts in their saddlebags of gold, Frankenstein, and a big bag of sweets. Pick a mix if you must know. Meanwhile, in Damascus, King Herod was killing all the babies, which was very, very naughty of him, and he shouldn't be doing that. So Mary and Judas had to flee. But when they got to where they flew to, they wished they hadn't bothered, because all the hotels was full. And I know what that's like firsthand, because that's happened to me, that. I had to phone Doris up and get her to come for me. But of course, in those days, there was no Doris. Anyway, they managed to find a pigsty and the bunk the nice in that, which I couldn't do. I do have my standards. Meanwhile, Adam and Eve were dead, I think, by now. Now I come to think of it. So they'll have missed the wedding then. But they might have left Jesus a bit in the will. I've, I've actually just done my will. And uh, frankly, it's a bit of a weight off my mind. I was going to be cremated, but my friend and butcher was telling me he was reading that they're making real strides in cloning, and one day they might be able to reanimate people from just a bit of them. So I'm thinking I might be buried now. Um, I was going to have not dead, only sleeping on my gravestone, but I might have to probably have to have something like, can you be a bit careful round here, because they might reanimate me. Your cooperation is greatly appreciated. Or if that costs too much, because some of these monumental masons charge by the letter, I suppose I could keep most of the first one and have not dead, just awaiting reanimation. Then Santa Claus turned up and got all the presents out, and there was such mirth and merriment. Now get yourselves off home. Where's the vicar with that communion wine? Chapter 41 Pantomime one of the things that I love about performing is the interaction with an audience, and there's nothing better for that than pantomime. Over the years, a pantomime role I've made my own is that of Robin Hood in Babes in the Woods. Now everybody knows about Robin Hood. He stalked the streets of Whitechapel in the dead of night, looking for his next victim. Oh no, I'll, I'll start this again, that's not right. Chapter 41 Pantomime one of the things that I love about performing is the interaction with an audience. It really can't be beaten. And there's nothing better for that than pantomime. Over the years, a pantomime role I've made my own is that of Robin Hood in Babes in the Woods. Now everybody knows about Robin Hood. He lived in Sherwood Forest, robbed from the rich, gave to the poor, and singed the sheriff of Nottingford's beard in the Spanish Armada. Richard Green played him on the telly, which was ridiculous. I would have been a much better choice. I had all the costumes as well. Lincoln green tights, tabard, hat with a peacock feather in it, the lot, jockstrap. And I researched up on it all, which is, I bet, more than Graham Green did. 
Robin Hood facts. 1. Didn't like women. 2. He could have been a surgeon. 3. Michael Caine nearly caught him in that film. 4. He might have been Prince Albert. 5. Or he might have been that Victorian painter, Walter Sick. I was reading that someone had a theory that it could have been Hitler, which is a thought. Someone ought to check the dates of the war and see if they match. There might be another book in that. But whoever he was, we know he wore tights, knocked little John off a tree trunk with a big branch, kissed Maid Marian on the back of a horse, and slaughtered prostitutes in the back streets of Whitehall. That much, at least, is beyond conjecture. And it's research like this that comes in very handy for all those Oh, yes he is. Oh, no he isn't. Oh, yes he is. Oh, shut up moments that the kiddies just love to participating when you're doing a show. I remember my forays into pantomime with great affection. One of my favourites to do was Cinderella, which I was in at the Leeds Grand Theatre, uh, possibly. Lonnie Donegan as Buttons and Yana in the eponymous title role of Cinderella herself. Danny LaRue, which is French for the road, if you're interested, was an ugly sister. And the funny thing about that is that Danny was a man. Barry Cryer, who's a lot older than me, wasn't in it, but I remember him getting around in in the Wrens opposite during the interval. Three pints of bitter, a small sherry, a barley wine and a baby sham for Danny. It's just stuck in my memory, I don't know why. Oh, I do know why. He forgot my nuts. I had to make him go back. Well, you know, as I said to him, when you're getting around in, you're getting around in, aren't you? Don't half do a job, Barry. Not the first time I've said that to him. Anyway, fair dues to him. He went back and got them, and I wolfed them down hungrily. We always nipped over the road to the Wrens for a few quick drinks during the interval. Strictly speaking, you weren't supposed to, but we were all top professionals, so it was all right, and there was never any danger of us being late back more than on the odd occasion or two, like when Yana, who never came with us because she was a bit snooty, had to cover for us for half an hour or so, which she made a fuss about. As I said to her, you got to do your song twelve times, didn't you? You couldn't buy that exposure. You should be thanking us, Dana. We had two donkeys in that show that pulled the pumpkin. I would always volunteer to look after the livestock during a pantomime season. You could make a bit of money on the side bagging up the doings and selling it to people for the gardens. That's a little tip for all you budding actors out there. I feel a bit like Peter Barkworth must have felt when he did his book about acting. Mind, I think my style of writing is just a little bit more accessible than his was, although you won't hear me saying that. He did his best, and that's all any of us can do. I mean, when you think about it, this book is full of tips. People will be buying this for its tips. I might put that on the cover, full of tips. Anyway, I was knocking the manure out for half a crown a bag, and there were a couple of rose growers in Leeds that swore by it. Apparently, they were telling me, horse muck, or donkey muck, if you want to split hairs about it, has a high level of acidity in it, which is perfect for roses. One of the rose growers won a prize in a flower show in Weatherby, thanks to a shovel full of my two donkeys doings. Despite the fact that the manure business paid better than the theatre, I just never got the same buzz when I was bagging it up as I got from being on stage in front of a live audience. So regretfully, I sold the business to one of the up-and-coming young dancers in the show, who was playing the part of a petrol pump called Lionel Blair. The dancer was 
called Lionel Blair, not the petrol pump. That would be stupid. Lionel always looked like he could do with a good meal, so a bit of extra manure money coming in probably saved his life. Not that he ever mentions it when I bump into him. He's got very grand since he started doing Give Us a Clue. I always say, be nice to people on the way up, because when you're on the way down, you might meet them again when they're on the way up, and they'll remember that you never said thank you for selling on what was a thriving compost business with a large client base. I tell you something, it's a shame catmuck's not good for flowers. There's about half a ton of it in my garden, all round me misanthrocums. Everybody's got cats in my row. Them at the end ones always having kittens. They brought one round asking me if I wanted it. I said, no, I bloody don't. I cut one out of cardboard and nailed it to the fence because someone said it would frighten them off. It's encouraging them, if anything. Him that sells the big issue was telling me that if you get lion's droppings and put that in your garden, the cats won't come near it. Mind you, you might end up with a garden full of lions and nobody in the right mind would want that. So, swings and roundabouts, really. Chapter 42. Stage Fright Lawrence Olivier Dustin Hoffman Peter O'Toole Kevin Branagh Des O'Connor and Lawrence Olivier Just some of the actors who I think I remember hearing have, like me, suffered from stage fright. Now usually someone like me would sweep what I'm about to say under the carpet, but that's not my style. That's someone like me's style. I know people who have just walked off the stage because of nerves and able to continue with their performance, but it's nothing to be ashamed about. I went through a period of having stage fright, but I got through it. And here, in a bit of a scoop for my book of mine, I'm going to write about it for the first time. It was in the early sixties. I was busier than I'd ever been. It looked like, with a few breaks, I would go on to become the household name I was to go on to become. I'd started not being able to sleep at night. I would get into my pyjamas and go to bed, but just couldn't switch off. I would lay there, my mind racing like a Formula One racing car, with Jensen's button at the wheel. Often I would have to get up and have a second cup of Horlicks, before finally the Sandman would conclude a successful visit, and I would slip into the land of Nod. But that's not where it ended. When I did finally get to sleep, I also had a recurring dream, more than once, that I was standing in the wings of an old theatre, in my underpants, with an empty whisky tumbler in my hand, about to make my entrance. I still have this dream sometimes. I have no idea what play I'm in or what part I'm playing or what my lines are. I keep thinking maybe it'll all come back to me once I start talking. Brian Blessed is on stage shouting something about car insurance. I look around to see Carol Vorderman standing next to me. She asks me if I want my debts consolidating. The sweat is pouring down my face. I can't move my feet. I look to my left. A grotesquely made-up version of the woman from W.H. Smith stands there. She has lipstick smeared all over her mouth. Her yellow teeth protrude. Would you like any of our half-price sweets or chocolates, she intones. I begin to scream. I begin to scream. 
Fortunately, this time the librarian woke me up and I hadn't broken anything in there so she couldn't ask me to leave. And anyway, it was their fault. It was too hot in there. How they expect you to stay awake reading the advertiser when it's bordering on the subtropical, I do not know. Mind you, from what they say, it'll only get worse with the ozone hole closing up. Which one's at the top? The Arctic or the Antarctic? Because if whichever one of them's at the top melts, it'll all run down to the bottom one, won't it? Surely, though, if it did, it would drip off. If you get a football and a jug of water, and you pour the water on the top of the ball, it would just run down, collect at the bottom, then drip off, probably into space, where it would most likely evaporate. You don't need a no level to work that out. So what's all the fuss about? You see, there's an awful lot of nonsense talked about globular warming. I might write that up and send it to the Kohoto Agreement people. That is the first time I've ever thought about it, and I've just turned everything they thought they knew on its head. And some so-called expert will be getting paid hundreds of pounds to sort the Uzo hole out. Honestly, you can't believe it, can you? It, it's often been said about me that I'm good at problem-solving. That's why I think I go down well on countdown. I might reapply and mention that. Chapter 43 Drink and Drugs The perils of drink have been well documented over the years, and show business has its fair share of big drinkers and hell-raisers. People like Richard Burton, Peter O'Toole, Richard Harris, Marlborough Brandon and John Inman all have a certain reputation, shall we say, for hell-raising. And it may be a surprise to you to know that for a time I myself was a big drinker and hell-raiser. Fortunately, though, one day I took a long, hard look in the mirror and didn't like what I saw looking back at me, it was me, and said, Enough is enough, and so did the reflection. I'll never forget that time I looked in the mirror and didn't recognise myself looking back at myself. I was at my very lowest. It was sometime in the mid-1960s. I couldn't say when with my usual precision. It's all a bit of a blur. I'd been invited to what they used to call an all-night party at someone or other's house, or mansion, probably, most likely a mansion, possibly Vince Hills, but I couldn't swear to that. It was the time when I wasn't sleeping well. i just finished a show, I would imagine, and I'd heard there was a party going on, and the word on the grapevine was that it was going to be an all-nighter. Stopping only to pick up a party seven, I jumped in a taxi, and with the lights of London flashing by like a kaleidoscopic strobe light through the windows of the taxi, I sped to the party. What we used to do in those days when we were going to a party was turn up with a party seven and let everybody see you'd got it, so they all thought you'd brought some drink, then you'd hide it somewhere, drink everybody else's drink, and take it home with you when you went. I've still got that party seven. That's, that's another good tip for all you actors to remember when you're at your premieres and TV Times award dues, etc. Book awards as well now. Ooh, I'll be going to all those with my party seven when this comes out. Anyway, I got to the party, and I'd been there for a bit, and I was just sitting cross-legged on the floor, pretending to listen to some hawkwind or, or something, when somebody sitting next to me nudged me in the side of myself. I turned round 
and someone that looked like Engelbert Humperdinck handed me what looked like a really big fat cigarette about a foot long. It looked like one you might get from a joke shop, so I put it in my mouth and started doing a joke with it. The man who looked like Ankerbert Dumperthing convulsed with laughter. It was as though we were best friends, although I always preferred Tom Jones. I didn't tell him, though. He was my supplier, and I had to keep on the right side of him. Pretty soon there was a crowd around me. They were all shrieking with laughter. I, I'd never felt like this before. I could do no wrong. I felt I was immortal. Little did I know that what was happening to me was what they call a trip. The man who looked like Anglepoise Humberduck's big cigarette had been stuffed full of drugs, and I had become turned on by them. Well, the next thing I knew, I was having an out-of-body experience. I was doing yogic flying, astral projection, and everything. At one point, I remember dancing wildly with Anita Harris, almost out of control, my arms flailing like a windmill in a typhoon. And all the time, I was laughing, laughing like a baboon. Apparently, I was told later, I tried to bite Rodney Buse. It wouldn't have surprised me. So out of control was I becoming, on drugs. I'd never behaved like that before, and while part of me liked it, wanted it, desired it, craved it even, I knew deep down inside that it couldn't go on. The only thing I could do was go for some cold turkey. The next twenty-four hours were the hardest thing I had ever done. Sitting up in bed with a plate of cold turkey, shivering under the eiderdown, imagining I was seeing things coming out of the walls. It was just like Ray Milland in The Lost Weekend, except I was doing it better. Finally, though, finally, as the sun came up, I finished the plate of turkey. I'd got through it. I'd come out the other side. I was one of the lucky ones. Many didn't make it. It taught me a salutary lesson. Drunken drigs don't mix. My advice is either do one or the other, but never both. You're asking for it. Because of drugs, to this day, I can't look at a turkey without feeling nauseous. Christmas has become all but meaningless for me now, apart from presents and it being Jesus' birthday, of course, if that's true. It's on the calendar anyway, so someone thinks it is, and that's good enough for me. And I've just got over all that, and then some bright spark comes up with the idea of having turkey for Easter as well. Another thing I have to live with. So in conclusion, I had the strength to walk away from all that, and I've never regretted it. It's why I've gone on to have such a wonderful career, full of highs and some lows, but no illicit ones, except the ones I have just been describing to you. Chapter 44 The Musical My Fair Lady, Oliver, The King and I, The Sound of Mucus, Cats, Dogs, Chess, Annie Get Your Gun, Miss Saigon, The Wizard of Oz, Liz Miserobulous, Miss Liz Orbulous, Miss Liz, Miss Liz, Miss Liz or or Orbulous, or, 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 oh, it's a stupid name for a show, that anyway. Worse than sodden Welsh. 
Since the very first caveman howled at the moon and blew on a flute, literally hundreds of years ago, man has always had the urge to set words to music. It's what differentiates us from the animals. That and going to the toilet properly, not going where you just stood up. Oh, and eating with a knife and fork, that's another one I've just thought of. Although I have seen a monkey doing that. So perhaps not quite so black and white as you might think at first glance. Do you know, I think it was Sophocles who once said uh, to me, if the eye is the organ of sensation, then the ear is what you listen to with when you hear something through it. Unless you're deaf, of course, then, sadly, you're on your own. In this chapter, everybody, of this potentially award-winning book, I would like to celebrate that wonderful theatrical genre that is the musical. Music is a constant in all our lives. It envelops us wherever we may go. From the Royal Albert Hall to the Asda, there's always music playing somewhere. They even have it on in the lavatory at the Asda. Tom Jones was on last time I was taken short in there. The boys from nowhere, if you must know. So you see, music truly can be a wonderful means of communism. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to announce to you, everybody, here in these pages, that after many years of people going on at me, I have finally succumbed and bowed to the incredible pressure and have finally agreed that when this book is finished, I will be setting it to music and taking it to the West End of London, as through it all I've always loved the musical. My musical director will be the Lincolnshire legend Ronnie Conway, who I alluded to earlier in the book when I mentioned my Doncaster song uh, somewhere near the beginning. I don't know what page it was before you ask. If you're that bothered, you, you have to find it yourself. I'm not reading all this back. Bad enough writing it. Anyway, since I mentioned it before, Ronnie has phoned me up and unreservedly apologised to me. So, because I'm rather magnanimous by nature, I have decided to swallow the hatchet and revive the partnership that was so fruitful that summer season in Ingo Mills. So, you can forget Rice and Weber. Strong and Conway are back in business. But what really pushed me over the edge and decided me up once and for all to do it was a very special letter I got from a very special lady. One Beckenham Palace, near Pall Mall, London. My dear Arthur, When me and my husband and I heard the news that you will be setting your life story to the music of Ronnie Conway, to be honest with you, I felt like crying. As you know, you were good enough to send me an autographed photograph of yourself in a good quality black felt tip, which has pride of place on my sideboard. It really is a wonderful conversation piece, and I just love explaining to visiting dignitaries who it's of. You are truly a showbiz legend, and I can't wait for this book to come out when you finish it. And frankly, the news that one day you would be singing it out loud on the West End stage of London delights me highly. In fact, it's hard to remember when I was more highly delighted. If you're not doing anything for your dinner one Sunday in the near future, 
It would be delightful to see you again. We can always make room for you at our table. Edward can have his on his legs if needs must. All the best, Elizabeth R. P.S. Phil says to say kebabs. Honestly, you too. Through it all, I've always loved. By Count Arthur's drum. Chapter 46. The 1970s. A wake-up call. Now, I am a self-confessed workaholic, which is nothing to do with drink. It's to do with work. Workaholic. It's like being an alcoholic without the alcohol, and you work instead of drinking. Which, on the face of it, now I've seen it written down, looks stupid. But it is a good thing, I believe, the way I mean it, though possibly not quite so nice as having a drink. I'm split on that, actually. Never was I working longer or harder than through the seventies. I was one of the hardest working acts in the business. It was this guest appearance after that guest appearance, driving the length and breadth of the country to do a show, one theatre after another. I was burning both ends of a bitten-off candle at once. It was more than I could chew, and it just couldn't last. Something had to give. One morning, I recall, I woke up one morning with chest pains. At first I thought nothing of it. I often had chest pains and thought this was another one of those. However, this one didn't go away when I burped like the other ones did, and by the middle of mid-afternoon the pain had become like a tight knot in my tightly knotted chest. However, I was guest speaker at a water rat's do that night for David Burglass, and I wasn't going to miss that. I think it was David Burglass. He was an illusionist, so it could have been someone else. Whoever it was, I thought, the show must go on. So I dosed myself up with an Aspro, or it might have been an Anodin. I did use both. To be honest, it's whatever came to hand when I was in the shops. Might even have been a Disprin. And on I went. The next morning, the pain in my front was back. I thought to myself, this is ridiculous, and I reached for my St. Andrew Jumden's handbook off the shelf in the alcove to the right of the fireplace as you face it, which I am acting captain of. I then performed a thorough examination of myself with it. After no more than five minutes, I reached my alarming diagnosis. For a moment, I just stood there, stunned. Then I leapt into action, put my trousers on, and telephoned my doctor, who agreed to squeeze me in, to see him. Dr. Baker had been my doctor since I was a baby, and he was something of a family friend. For some reason, though, which I've never been able to fathom, he would insist on calling me Robert. He said, "'What can I do for you, Robert?' "'It's Arthur,' I said. "'I've told you.' "'Who am I thinking of, then?' he said." I don't know, but it isn't me, I replied. Anyway, shut up and listen, I would have liked to have said. Dr. Baker, I continued, having woken up with chest pains two consecutive mornings on the trot, I was compelled to perform a thorough examination of myself from top to bottom, using a medical dictionary I keep on the shelf in the alcove to the right of the fireplace as you face it. Because of that, 
I know what is wrong with me, and I know what I need prescribing. Oh, it sounds serious, Robert, he said. I said it's Arthur, and it is serious, and if left untreated, could prove fatal. I cleared my throat before I went on. <coughs> I have suffered, Dr. Baker, from what I suspect to be an suspected heart murmur, and I've come in for a prescription for some of those... Oh, what are they now? Um, I forgot what they're called now. Um, not odour eaters. It's a double battle name, like odour eaters. Beta blockers, that's it. I've come in for a prescription for some of those beta blockers all the snooker players are on. If as well as giving me a few extra years to live, it also helps to improve my snookering, then that's a side effect I'm only too happy to live with, my current highest break being somewhere around the 12 to 14 point area in front of witnesses. So anyway, he gave me a prescription, and later on I've gone into Clark's the chemist to cash it in. But when I got to the counter, it wasn't in my pocket, so I said to Clarky, Listen, Dr Baker has given me a prescription for some odour eaters. I must have left it on my nest of tables. I said, to stop me going back and fetching it, because in my condition any exertion could prove fatal, do us a favour, give me the odour eaters now, and I'll drop the prescription off later on when I'm out getting me meat. Well, he's looked at me right funny as Clarky, and he said, you don't need a prescription for odour eaters. Anyone can buy them. I said, well, what's Dr. Baker playing at then? He's definitely given me one. I, I watched him write it out. He said, I don't know, but you don't need a prescription for odour eaters. So anyway, he's given me a packet, and when I've got home and opened them up, they're not for your heart at all. They're for your feet. I phoned Dr. Baker up. I said, I said, what do you think you're playing at, you lunatic? Giving me something for me feet when I've had a heart mumble. And I slammed the telephone down. I said, you want striking off, you do? You're the danger to everyone. And I slammed the telephone down again. No use at all. Mind you, credit where credit's due. They are comfortable, those odour eaters. I'll give that to him. It's like you're walking on air. No wonder all the snooker players are on them. The distance they have to walk round the table. Must add up to a few miles a match if you think about it. Chapter 47 Still the 1970s Awards galore Whichever year this is I'm doing now was a wonderful year for me. It was the year I was recognised for what it is I am and do beyond my wildest dreams. Over the years, thanks in no small part to the time I spent there as a child, Doncaster has continued to draw me back to it. 1970-something found me back there once again to host a cookery programme on the now sadly no longer with us Doncaster Cablevision. And I'll never forget one episode of that show, in particular, when my transmission was interrupted by a special guest and I was presented with the inaugural first ever Donny Award for Best Cookery Programme on Doncaster Cablevision. This award, a great big wooden spoon with a bow on it, all engraved with a lovely little face, still takes pride of place on my mantelpiece, next to where the room for my other awards is. And do you know, I'd no idea I'd won it. They presented it to me live on air as I was chopping the ingredients for what has become my signature dish of mixed salad. I was speechless, and it was very moving, very moving indeed. 
I don't mind telling you, I had a bit of a lump in my throat. Piece of carrot, it turned out to be, when someone had a look. We got it out, don't worry about that. The cameraman had to do the Heineken manoeuvrement on me. Shot right across the room, that bit of carrot. It's a good job nobody was in the line of fire. That would have taken the eye out. Oh, I was surprised it went that far, actually. Very impressive. They got Matthew Corbett and Sooty to present my award to me. Well, I'm saying Sooty. Strictly speaking, it was just Matthew. He had to keep his sooty hand out the other side of the door in the corridor because I'll not have animals in a kitchen of mine. It's largely a hygiene issue, you see, because with a lot of animals, like mice, they do their mess as they're walking and it just lays where it falls. And you can't have too much of that going on in a kitchen. Health and safety would be down on you like a ton. A brick ton. After I got my breath back, I was whisked off that's an intentional cookery pun, to a star-studded ceremony where I made a wonderful speech, my words, not theirs. Everyone who was anyone was there, rounded off by the top pop group, the Wurzels, who I'd never heard of until that night. They all wear clothes like the dirty old farmers. In fact, when I first saw them, I said, who's let them in here? It's not a soup kitchen. You want to throw them out? Go on, I'll back you up if there's any trouble. They were touching all the sandwiches as well. I shouted across, Hey, we've got to eat those when you've finished fingering them. You shouldn't be in here, you lot. But anyway, it turned out that they weren't tramps at all. They're a proper pop group. They've got electrical guitars and a speaker and everything. A broomstick handle with bottle tops nailed to it. They've got the lot. They bring it all with them in a van. That's all included in the price, apparently. Despite our little misunderstanding... I'm now happy to report that me and the Wurzels are the best of friends, apart from the drummer who touched the sandwiches. He seems to enjoy bearing a grudge. I'm not that bothered. He's only about four foot tall, little twit. Anyway, we'll have someone decent playing for the awards due after this book comes out. The Beatles or um, Herman Hermits. Chapter Sammy Davis Jr. I say my farewells. Because of all my awards and everything, I was now considered what they call an A-lister. And what that means is that when people are making lists, you, uh, me, not you, get to be near the top of it because they use the alphabet, and A is the top letter to B. It's like being the number one in numbers is. In fact, it would be more straightforward if they use numbers, I think. You know where you are with numbers. Obviously, one can't spell with them, but that's not what they're there for. Anyway, I was top of whatever system you like. For instance, if I wanted to go to somewhere like Stringfellows, like you read about people doing, I wouldn't have to book a ticket. I could have just walked in like Rod Stewart or Vera Lynn. What I'm saying is a lot of doors were open to me because of who I was and still am. In fact, right up to today, I've never had to pay for meat in the butchers near me, and that's because I was in an episode of Juliet Bravo, and he recognised me. Because of my fame, I was getting more and more public appearance work, opening supermarkets and shoe shops and such like. I was becoming a terribly busy celebrity. I've always been able to think on my feet, so I was ideally suited to this kind of public appearance. In fact, I never wrote any speeches for any of these things, preferring the freshness of making it up as I went along. It comes naturally to me, and always has. 
I once spoke completely off the cuff for two full minutes on where paper comes from. The teacher put the watch on me and everything. I won a lollipop. Yeah, I can still remember it now. Paper comes from wood. Wood comes from the trees. The trees grow in the jungle. God made the universe, Mrs Andrews. I think there was another bit that went in the middle, but that's the gist of it, and I've always been able to do that. It was whilst opening a shoe shop in Leeds, Carter's Casual Footwear, that I got a telegram from Mother telling me that her and father had decided to emigrate to Austria. As soon as the doors of Carter's was open to the general public, and I'd done a photo session with Retail Footwear Monthly of me with a brown brogue, I rushed back to London to say my farewells. Farewell, Mother. Farewell, Father. These were the farewells I said to mother and father, and they were the hardest farewells I'd ever had to say to anybody since we buried what was left of the goldfish after the cat had it out the tank. I'd often wished that goldfish was a piranha, and when the cat stuck its head in, it had taken it clean off. I'd never liked that cat since it scratched me when I was trying to put it in the fridge. And all this was flashing through my mind as we three stood standing there, not knowing what to say to each other. Finally, one of us had to speak, to say what was on our minds. "'Won't it be cold in Austria?' I uttered, my voice thick with emotion. "'Probably,' my mother responded, her voice also thick with emotion, but not quite as thick as much as mine was. "'What are you asking me that for?' Just that you want to make sure you've got some warm clothes with you. We're going to Australia, not Austria. Oh, I said, thinking that I'd have to go back now and change that bit. And I might have mentioned Austria in the last chapter as well. I'm going to have to go back and look for that now, as if I haven't got enough to do. Wouldn't mind, but I'm only getting paid tuppence for this in the first place. I thought you didn't get a boat to Austria, I laughed hysterically, only stopping to say the next bit. Well, I suppose this is it, then. I suddenly didn't know what to say, so I looked down at both my feet, which were where I'd left them. The new brown brogues from Carter's suddenly surprising me. It almost looked like I was looking at someone else's feet, but I wasn't. That wouldn't be possible, that someone else's feet were there. I'd forgotten all about the frenzied adulation I received in Leeds, Opening that shoe shop was now just a distant memory in my mind. I looked at Mother. Isn't this long enough now, this book? Most Enid Blyton books are under two hundred pages, you know. Oh, sod it. I've forgotten to do Sammy Davis Jr. as well. I'm not doing it again. Here's the idea for the Battle of Britain book I was telling you about. The Battle of Britain by Count Arthur Strong. Chapter 1 Wing Commander Sir Herbert Mayhew, his rolled gold cufflinks glinting as they caught the light from the cut-glass chandelier suspended over his head, which was covered in neatly trimmed thick grey hair, reached into his solid walnut drinks cabinet and selected a single malt whisky. He poured out two large ones out and turned to his colleague, Sir Percival Lawrence, the Secretary of State from the War Office, who was leaning against the marbled mantelpiece, smoking Ancensitor's cigarette. 
Do take water with it, Percy. I never can remember, quizzed Sir Herbert. Just a little, old boy, to unlock the flavour, don't you know? If I knew, I wouldn't be asking, would I? Sir Herbert snapped. Sir Percy raised his eyebrows. I didn't mean, don't you know, like with a question mark. I meant, don't you know? It's what posh people say to each other. It's what keeps us separate from the proletariat people that walk everywhere. Sorry, old boy, I completely forgot we did that. It's this war. It's really getting on my nerves. He handed the other one a drink and had a sip of his drink whilst they both warmed their backsides in front of the fire. Hmm, not bad, said one of them to the other after sampling his drink. Single malt? Glenfiddich? It's all right, isn't it? I usually prefer Oban for a single malt, Sir Herbert pondered. It's a bit peaty for me, Oban, ruminated Sir Lawrence. I'll tell you one I do like. I don't know how you say it, but it's spelt like this. Laferoig. It's probably pronounced Laferoig. Something like that. Mind you, you have to go a long way to beat a Glenmorangie. It's a nice drop of Splossy's Glenmorangie. I'll tell you, though, if you're not bothered about single malt... "'What is a good bog-standard Scotch blend?' "'What is it?' said Sir Percival. "'Famous grouse,' replied Sir Lionel. "'And the commercials are funny, with that big bird waddling about. "'What bird is that?' "'Must be a grouse, mustn't it?' said Sir Lionel. "'That would make sense,' said the other one, back to the other one. "'Hey, I'll tell you who's got an offer on bottles of spirits.' "'Who?' "'Asda's, their own brand, eight pounds.' "'Oh, I'll try some of that,' he uttered. "'You need a voucher out of the sun, not buying the sun. "'Well, you won't get the offer then, will you?' "'I don't care.' Chapter 2 Sir Hubert Mayhew pushed his shopping trolley around Asda's, looking for the drink bit. "'Oh, that's all I'm doing. Um, "'It's a good taster, though, isn't it, for the rest of it, don't you think?' Chapter 38 Role-playing One of the things I do from time to time, to keep my hand in, as it were, is I do some role-playing for doctors and vets and such like, when they're training. I don't do it because I need the money. I do it because I don't need the money, and I'm giving something back to society. I'm a bit like Zorro or the Scarlet Pimpernel in that respect. What it is, is I pretend to be a patient or the dog owner or whatever, and they have to be nice back to me. Whatever I say to them, they have to be nice back to prove that they can deal with normal people. I remember one I did when they were training vets, and I took a dog and I said I wanted her to put it down because it messed on the rug in the hall, and I liked that rug which I had to put in a bin liner and give to the Oxfam shop because of that dog doing that. She said... Oh, no, I can't put a dog down just because it's soiled your whole rug. I said, all right, it's chewed one of my shoes as well, which ironically was a hush puppy, and I like those shoes. She said, that's still not enough reason to end a dog's life. I said, what about this then? When I got home from work last night, that dog had eaten a cushion off the settee and killed a gerbil, which I was looking after for a small child who has croup. Now, will you please humanely destroy it? She said, I'm not putting this dog down for those reasons. So I said, what if it cocked its leg on a pensioner? Well, I could see she was having a good think about this because she had her head in her hands. So I threw in, and it broke wind in church last Sunday. She ran out of the room shouting then. 
I couldn't repeat what she was saying, but it was disgraceful. Still, as I said to the panel afterwards, that's another one I've winkled out for you. Mind you, some of them are worse than her. I did one for some trainee doctors once, and the first one said, How can I help you? I decided I'd have an ear infection. So I said, I've got something wrong with my ear, I said. Oh, he said, what's wrong with it? I said, I don't know. What are you asking me for? You're the doctor. He said, no, I mean, what are the symptoms? I said, well, when I blow my nose, my ears pop. He said, hmm, could be sinus trouble. I said, I haven't finished yet. You're bolting my stable door before the horse has spoken. I said, when I blow my nose, my ears pop, and because of this, my hat sometimes falls off. And I get pins and needles in my leg, and I can't straighten this finger. And I showed him my finger, which is crooked, because I got it stuck in a deck chair when I was eleven. But he didn't know that, did he? He turned round to the panel and said, This is ridiculous. These symptoms are just ridiculous. I said, They might be ridiculous to you, but it's a matter of life and death to someone like me. I said, You could at least prescribe me with a placebo or some penicillin or something, couldn't you? I said, This is what's wrong with the national health, this kind of attitude. I said, I remember when hospitals were hospitals, and you had a matron like Hattie Jakes was in Carry On Doctor, and, and she was in love with Kenneth Williams. He was scared stiff of her. She chased him round the hospital. He had to hide in a cupboard. I always thought they'd make a lovely couple. I think James Robertson Justice was in that one as well, wasn't he? Was he, was he in that? Or was it Doctor in the House I'm thinking of? Well, he turned round to the panel again and said, my diagnosis would be lunacy. I thought, what an idiot. How can not being able to straighten your finger and your hat blowing off be lunacy? I said, Dr. Finley would be turning in his grave listening to something like this. He just stared at me with his mouth open, this so-called would-be doctor. I said, come on, you should know all these films about doctors back to front, you should. If you want to be one yourself, you've got to put the hours in. You can get them all on VDs these days. I did used to enjoy doing those, which I didn't do for the money, and I've had all the colours of the rainbow wrong with me for them. Scarlet fever, yellow jaundice, pink eye, red eye, gangrene, blackhead, purple bruise, blue tongue, black death, well that's twice I've had black, uh, turquoise eiderdam, no that wasn't one, um, I haven't had that. Where have I seen a turquoise eiderdam? Oh I know, it was on the washing line. Anyway, I'd be very surprised if any of the shower of doctors who examined me made it through. I know one of them's a security guard now, Simon. I see him down the Arndale. He would have made a terrible doctor. He's got no social skills. He doesn't even say hello to me, and I'm the one that helped him find his true vocation in life. He should be thanking me, not ignoring me. I've done him a favour, and probably saved a few lives to boot. Actually, that's a point. I wonder if the company you used to do them for have got the statistics of how many human and animal lives I've saved doing my role-playings. Be a few hundred at least, if not more. Thousands more like. But you know, I keep all that quiet, and I don't do it for the money, which is altruistic of me. Chapter 38 Still probably the 1970s All Creatures Bright and Beautiful Little did I know in the last chapter that one day those role-playings as a concerned poorly dog owner would stand me in good stead for a wonderful job offer. And that was when I was afforded the opportunity of playing opposite the great Timothy Christopher 
and Robert Hardy in that marvellous television series we'll all never forget, All Creatures Bright and Small. I had one of the happiest times doing that show since I did my episode of The Archers, which incidentally is nothing to do with the longbow, as the title suggests. And here's a very interesting fact. Robert Hardy, who plays Sigmund Freud in All Creatures Great and Beautiful, is one of the leading experts on the longbow in the country. Mind you, there can't be much to be an expert about, can there? With a bow and arrow, it's only a stick with a bit of string on each end, and you fire another stick from it. He's picked a clever thing there to be an expert on, hasn't he? There's only three component parts. It's hardly nuclear fission, is it? It's getting away with murder, Oliver Hardy, if you ask me. Anyway, I told him something he didn't know. I said to him, what do you think of this? And I stuck two fingers up at him, if you'll pardon my French. Well, he was furious, because he thought I meant he was to swear word off. But I didn't mean that at all. I said, all right, calm down, keep your hair on, Sigmund. I'm just showing you something that started at the Battle of Agincourt, which, frankly, you would know about if you were the expert you crack on to be. I then went on thus. Apparently, during the Battle of Agincourt, when Arlock caught a French archer, they'd cut his index finger and his middle finger off so he couldn't do his bow again. Then they'd let him go. And then in battle, the English bowmen would stick two fingers up at the French and wriggle them around to taunt them. And that's how we tell people to swear word off out of it today. It's a French taunt. Not that I'm advocating that foul-fingered gesticulations are the right sort of way of conducting oneself. By oneself, I mean you, to be clear. I merely report the facts. And if you're a minor and you've picked this book up and read that bit, don't crack on that it's my fault when you get caught doing it. You shouldn't be going round sticking two fingers up at the French at your age. Behave yourself. You're on a slippery slope, you. I had a wonderful, dramatical scene in All Creatures Little and Large. I was in a pub having a drink with my sheepdog, and Siegfried Farnham and Timothy Christopher walked in. Below this is a bit of the script, as near as I can remember it. Hello, David. Hello, Mr. Harrieria. Is everything all right, David? You look worried. It's Bessie, me dog, Mr. Harrieria. Why, whatever is it that's wrong? Well... I've given her the worming tablets and everything, like young Mr. You said, but she just sits around looking right stupid and licking her privates. I don't mind admitting I'm at my wit's end. Well, tell you what, David, why don't you bring her in to the surgery first thing in the morning? Right, I will. Thank you for that, Mr. Christopher. That's put my mind at rest. Good, that's settled then. Can I get you a drink? Locks, I don't mind if I do, young Mr. Sir. I'll have a pint with you, and no mistake in it. By the way, I like those adverts for the sun you do. Thank you very much, David. It keeps the wolf from the door. I'm just thinking, I haven't seen him in anything for a few years. What was the last thing I saw him in? Was it a morse? It was definitely a whodunit, or was it countdown? Well, it's a whodunit in a way, isn't it, countdown? You have to work out the conundrum out. Someone like morse would be good on countdown. Or Rockford, oh, I used to like that, the Rockford Files. He had a wonderful head of hair, James Garner. Who who used to get on my nerves on Countdown? He used to wear a, a big, stupid, knitted jumpers with things on the front. Whoever he was, he was an idiot. Chapter To Have Loved and Lost 
is better than not to have loved and lost in the first place. It must be the 1980s by now, surely. With my elderly parents now living in Austria, it was time for me to think about me for a change and put myself first for a change. For years I had selflessly looked after my parents, but now they were no longer just around the corner or wherever it was they lived, and it was time for me to find somewhere else to take my ironing and to take stock of myself. I'd had no time for love. I was too busy with my career. Work was my love, and I its obedient servant. One day I was walking past a florist shop on Tooting High Street. I'd always had a green finger, and I stopped to look at some of the flowers in it. I looked through the window, and there I spotted the most lovely woman I'd ever seen. The sunlight through the glass just catching the wisps of the auburn hair on her head. She was just standing there, sniffing. I often wondered who she was, and that if I'd have gone in and spoken to her, what would have happened? But I had a bus to catch. I had an audition for a stork margarine commercial. What a fool I was! What a silly young fool! If only I could turn the back of the clock back. There's not a day gone by since when I haven't rued that decision. Perhaps we'd have been married now with children, a boy and a girl, Charles and Diana, or, or maybe I'd be infertile and we'd have to adopt, or she could be artificially inseminated. I, I know there's not a high success rate, but we would have tried, we would have found a way, me and whatever her name was. We could have shared so much, but it was not to be. It was then and there I decided, like a Catholic vicar, that love and marriage didn't go together like a horse and carriage for me, and I pledged that day to remain true to the one love of my life, as seen through the misted glass of a tooting florist shop window. On the plus side, it's a balty house now, is that florist, and they do a very reasonably priced set meal for one, so, you know, swings and roundabouts, isn't it? Chapter 83 I learn a lesson. It was in 1980-something that I learnt one of my hardest lessons in life. Ever since I got started in the profession, I'd had the same top London agent, Larry Trafalgar of Larry Trafalgar Associates. One day I realised that my Dixon of Doc Green repeat money hadn't come through for some not inconsiderable period of time. I'd telephoned Larry several times about it, but there was no answer. I tried to tell myself that maybe he was on holiday and that everything would be all right, but I knew somewhere inside of me all was not what it seemed to be. I decided there was nothing for it but to call Ram to his office and see what the deuce was afoot. So I got the bus to Wood Green, the 147. When I disembarked off the bus, I still had a bit of a walk, which I didn't mind. It was a beautiful sunny day, and as I looked up, a little fluffy cloud sailed through the azure blue of the wood-green sky. As I turned into Larry's road, a magpie flew across my line of vision, and I saluted it. Not that I'm superstitious. I just think that some bad luck might happen to me if I don't do it. 
I should have saved myself the trouble. Larry's offices were located at number 22. I pressed his bell. A young man with a face on a head I'd never seen before opened the door. Yes, he said. How can I help you? I said, Larry Trafalgar, please. He said, sorry. I said, Larry Trafalgar, I usually go straight through. He said, Larry Trafalgar, you mean the agent? Congratulations, I uttered. You know who you work for. He said, I don't work for him. We're still stockholders, but I know who you mean. We still forward the odd letter to him. Well, I was stunned. What do you mean you still forward the odd letter to him? I implored. Well, we took over the office from him when he retired. What are you talking about when he retired? He's my agent. He he won't have retired without letting me know. He's got all my dog circuit Dick Green repeats money. He said, he's definitely retired. I know that for a fact. We took over the office from him. When? I inquired. Well, let's see. Must be about eight years ago. Eight years ago? Eight years ago? I thought, I'm not having this. Larry Trafalgar we're talking about. That's right, he replied. Of Larry Trafalgar Associates? That's the one. Small man with grey hair. Yes, I think he had grey hair. Glasses? I think so. Wore a hearing aid? Maybe. Walked with a limp? He could have, I suppose. Smoked a pipe? Possibly. Terrible lisp? Well, he might have. I said, listen, I don't know what sort of game you're playing, but that's not Larry Trafalgar you're talking about. He looks nothing like that, I said. Now, come on, spill the beans before I get the police involved. Well, that shut him up. He's given me a right funny look and said, look, this is our office. It has been for the past eight years. I know your friend has retired. Wait a minute. And he's gone inside and left me on the doorstep. After what seemed an interminable wait, which was broken only by the sound of Concord flying overhead, majestic in its individuality, he came back with an envelope in his hand. Here, he said, this is his address. I looked at the envelope. Leafy Glade Retirement Home, Chingford. I said, right, well, this better not be a wild goose grease. If it is, I'll be back with the chief constable, who is a personal friend of myself. So I had to get another two buses, because I won't go on the underground until they do something about the noise. They know that. Finally, I get to the sudden retirement home. I go up to the reception, and of course there's no one there. I mean, why would you ever expect to find the receptionist actually at reception? So I ring the bell, there's a bell on the counter, and this person, who I can only describe as an idiot, comes to the counter, and she looks at me and says, "'Shouldn't you be in your room?' I said, what? She said, shouldn't you be in your room? It's rest time. I said, I don't bloody live here. I'm visiting someone. She said, oh, sorry, it's been a long day. You're telling me it's been a long day, I confirmed. Shouldn't you be in your room? I'm in the prime of life, I am. I've got years ahead of me. Yes, well, I'm sorry about that, she said. Who was it you wanted to see? Larry Trafalgar, of Larry Trafalgar Associates. She said, right, well, he's in the day room, down there on the right. So I go down to the day room, and I walk in, and there he is, sitting there reading the Daily Telegraph as bold as they come. I said, Larry, what the bloody hell are you playing at? What's this about you retiring eight years ago? He said, I retired eight years ago. I said, I know, I've just said that. Don't start saying what I've just said to you back to me. That will just look confusing in print. He said, have you brought the dinners? I said, no, I haven't brought the dinners. Do I look like the bloody dinner man? 
It's Arthur, Larry. Arthur, why didn't you tell me you'd retired? No wonder I've not been up for anything recently. He said, well, it's very quiet, even for Arthur Askey. I said, are you on drugs or something? Of course it's quiet for Arthur Askey. He died 30 years ago, 16th of November, 1982. I was at the memorial. He said, what is dinner tonight? I'll not eat asparagus. I'll spit them out. I said, look, stop saying things like that. What's happened to my dog Dick Green repeats money? He said, we used to have a dog called Lucky, and my dad shaved it so it looked like a lion. Mrs. Dean says she'd tell the police. I said, oh, right, I know what's going on here. You're trying to throw up a smokescreen, aren't you? I've had enough of this. Larry, it's with very deep regret that I inform you that I am now considering other offers of representation. Good day to you. And with great dignity, I walked out of the room. So I get to the door, and it's locked. And as I'm rattling it, some half-wit nurse comes up to me and says, What's going on here, then? I said, I'm trying to get out. What does it look like? She said, Now you know the door's locked for the night, don't you? Come on back to the day room. You can do a jigsaw before bed if you're good. I said, Listen, I'm not a bloody inmate. I've had all this on the way in. I've just been visiting him, that half-wit there. She said, Larry, is this a friend of yours? He said, no, I don't know who he is. Have I had my dinner? Oh, I'd had enough by then. I said, look, I'm getting close to breaking point, and now I am. Of course you bloody know who I am. Arthur, Count Arthur Strong. And this nurse says, oh, a count, are we? I'm Princess Leia of Star Wars, pleased to meet you. I said, where's her that was on when I came in? She'd vouch for me. She said, if you mean Julie, she's had to go off. I'm covering her from the agency. So anyway... To cut a long story short, I had to stay in overnight until Julie came back. Actually, it wasn't that bad. I was pleasantly surprised, really. The food was passable. I had Larry's asparagus as well, because he just spits it out. And I finished the jigsaw of Big Ben. Oh, yes, I've stopped there several times since. If you get there at changeover time, they haven't a clue. So, you know, you could say I'm clawing my dick grain of duck leaf money back in mini breaks and asparagus. And I decided, because of how far back we go, and it's just the sort of person I am, to give Larry one last chance. If he doesn't get me a part in something like, say, Juliet Bravo, then we should go our separate ways, by mutual consent, with no severance payments involved. As an addendum to this, because I know you sat on tenterhooks about whether things worked out with Larry, I'm delighted to say, yes, they did. And if you'll just be patient, you'll find out that he did get me an audition for Juliet Bravo. And I'll tell you all about it in the next exciting chapter, which is coming up soon. Chapter possibly 50 Juliet Bravo I awoke from a deep sleep to hear the sound of rain pounding against the four-paned Victorian sash window of my bedroom window when suddenly the telephone rang. I looked at the Art Nouveau war clock that I must have got from somewhere. It said 6.03 a.m. Uh, not literally, obviously. I didn't mean that. They didn't have clocks that could speak in whenever this is. Well, we had the talking clock, of course, but that's not the same as the kind of thing I'm trying to describe. Uh, th that wasn't really a clock at all, the talking clock. It was a talking woman. 
I mean, she told you the time, but she wasn't a clock. It was a woman. They should have called it the speaking woman. That would have made more sense. I'm talking about my Art Nouveau wall clock in my house, which was a long time before you could get women that speak. Anyway, I put all this to one side and asked myself, who would be telephoning me at this unearthly hour and why? It seemed to me that the only course of action available would be to answer the thing. So I lifted the receiver up and placed it adjacent to one of my ears. Then, using my voice, I uttered, Hello? Arthur, it's Larry, the voice of Larry said to me. You know it's six o'clock in the morning, don't you? I informed him. Is it six o'clock? Thank you. Goodbye. And he hung up. Wonder what he wanted. Another time he phoned me when he was on the right pills, and it was a lot more straightforward. Arthur, I have an audition for you for the peak-time popular BBBC television show, Juliet Bravo. Be at the Hilton Hotel Mayfair, if there is one, at two o'clock p.m. today. Juliet Bravo. This was the golden chalice of television jobs. If you managed to get on Juliet Bravo, you had it made. I had to admit that operating from his new premises at the old people's home, Larry Trafalgar had really pulled it off. In fact, I remember shouting in his ear trumpet to him, Larry Trafalgar, you've really pulled it off, which he denied, saying it was loose when he picked it up. The rest of the day passed in a blur. I don't mind admitting that even an old pro like me was a little nervous. There was so much at stake. Apparently, Larry told me, I was up for the part of a policeman. So I decided, with my usual thoroughness and meticulousness, which I was known in the business for, to get a police outfit from a costumier acquaintance who owed me a favour, which I won't go into here, but it's partly because I used to clean her windows and she broke an Everly Brothers record of mine one bonfire night. Cathy's clown, if you must know. So I went and saw her, and I got a constable's uniform. I actually wanted a sergeant's one, because someone like me would have been at least a sergeant, if not a chief superintendent. But uh, I don't know if a chief superintendent wears a uniform. Morse was an inspector, and he just wore an ordinary suit. Smart casual, I suppose you'd call it. But whatever it was or is, I had to go dressed as a constable. I was nearly late getting there as well, because I came across two separate cars, a red Ford Focus and a silver Mazda, both illegally parked. I had to give them a ticket. Well, I would have done if I'd had any. I told the drivers to report to the nearest police station at their own recognizance. Anyway, because I'd done a bit of official police work on the way there, I was well in character when I got to the audition. It was the best preparation I've ever done for a job, and I would thoroughly recommend it to you aspiring actors out there. I got to the place, and I must have looked convincing, because everybody kept calling me officer, which I feel is a real testament to myself. And of course, I played along with it, because I'm a natural performer. I do wear a uniform well. Anyway, I finally got the assistant there to take me through to meet the director, who wasn't right in the head, if truth be known. He said, is there a problem? And I said, not yet, there isn't. Just as a joke, you know, like an icebreaker. He turned to his assistant, who was a knife short of a full draw herself. What's going on, he said. She said, I'm not sure, but I think he's here for the audition. I said, of course I'm here for the audition. Why do you think I'm dressed like this? He said, I've got no idea. You're supposed to be a doctor. I said, what? 
A police doctor? Is there such a thing? He said, I don't know, I don't think so. I said, well, what chance have I got if you don't know? You're supposed to be the director. He said, look, the part I wanted to see you for is the part of a doctor at the local hospital. It's nothing to do with the police force. I said, listen, my agent definitely told me I was up for the part of a policeman. Why else would I be wearing this? I shall have to phone the old people's home and get him to verify that. Anyway, the upshot of it was they were so impressed by my degree of commitment I bring that they found a part for me in it, of a porter. I had to push a trolley past the bottom of a corridor, which sounds simple on the face of it, but we have to do it about twenty or thirty times to get it just right. That's the projectionist in me for my sins. So here I was, at the very top of my game, in an episode of JB, as it's called in the business for short. It stands for Juliet Bravo. Not bad for someone like me, with such humble beginnings. And also, on the way home from my triumphant audition, I got a man to agree to voluntarily turn himself in at the nearest police station for throwing a paper cup out of a car window, and I confiscated a recorder off a child in a bush shelter who was causing a public nuisance with it and blowing it without the necessary documentation. And when I got in, I learnt myself to play Frere Jacques on it, Yet another string to my violin string of mine I've got, which again is a metaphor before you say anything. Uh, I don't have an actual violin. I have an imaginary one. Chapter 48 Tough at the Top After my success in J.B., Juliet Bravo, I'm afraid I rather let it go to my head, and for a time I burned the candle at both ends a bit. There were several lock-ins at the shoulder of mutton until goodness knows what time, near midnight probably, and I possibly didn't get up in the mornings early also. Thanks to J.B., Juliet Bango, I was living the high life, and I was loving it. But it couldn't go on. When you burn both ends of the same candle at the same time, eventually the fire will meet in the middle, and if it's your only candle you've got, well... You don't need me to tell you any more about that. Fabulous though J.T. at Juliet Tango had been, I realised I couldn't live off its success forever. I had to get back out there. I had to get back on the horse. It wasn't easy, though. Strangely, auditions began to dry up. Word on the grapeyard was that since J.B., my stock had risen so highly that everybody thought they couldn't afford me any more. I had, in effect, outpriced myself out of the market. Larry did what he could, but they'd only let him use the payphone twice a day in the home for a maximum of fifteen minutes a time, which I thought was rather harsh. As I tried to explain to them, sometimes he would nod off during a call, and in my opinion they should deduct any time he spent asleep on the telephone off the fifteen minutes. But she was a right jobsworth, the woman I spoke to, and even though I had the backing of the European Court of Civil Rights, if they'd have wrote back to me, the old battle-axe wouldn't have it. There was only one thing for it. Either press on and hope something big came up, or go back to my roots and do a summer season. It was a no-brainer. I decided to get the old act out of mothballs and flex my variety muscles again in summer season. I still knew a few people in the variety profession, so it was just a matter of making a couple of hundred calls, and I was back. 
It was an exciting new decade, and I was back where I started, in variety. Chapter 49 Back Where I Started, in Variety Thanks to yet some more new drugs Larry was on, he was now staying awake for longer intervals. And using his old contact book, he got in touch with an old contact. This old contact, whose name will come back to me, was delighted to offer myself a two-week run on the end of the pier at Cromer, which is on the coast in... well, I forget where it is exactly. Uh, if you look at a map of Britain, and here, at this junction, I'd do a little pause to accommodate you getting one. And what other writer does that for you? Plus, I need the toilet, so that's worked out for both of us. Don't go to buy one, though, if you haven't got one. I'm not going to do the full Monty in there. It's just a brief modesty break I'm having. Right, that's long enough. I was in there a bit longer than I originally intended. If you haven't got a map by now, it's your lookout. So, if you look at your map, it's the bit that's shaped like a head on it, on the right-hand side. I always think it looks like someone's sticking the head out of the country to peer at Belgium or Holland, whichever of them is opposite. Anyway, it's in the head bit, right on the coast. Harrywood the Wake lived there, if that helps. And anyway, you shouldn't be asking me where Cromer is in the first place. You should have paid attention at geography if you want to know where places like Cromer are. This is supposed to be my memoirs, not a geography class. So without even waiting to find out where Cromer was, I packed my suitcase, jumped on the train and headed to wherever Cromer was. As the steam train pulled into Cromer station, belching its smoke out of the thing that looks like a chimney pot on top of the boiler bit of it, I recall I was a little apprehensive. How would I be received by the other acts after my J.B. Juliet Bartram success? And it was with some trepidation that I entered the theatre. I needn't have worried. Everybody to a man or woman pretended they were totally unaware of my televisual triumph and just treated me like I was any ordinary Joe off the street, something I've always been grateful to them for. Though it wouldn't have hurt them just to say nice portering of something, would it? Oh, it was very moving when you pushed that trolley across the bottom of the corridor. It looks like a Spanish word corridor, doesn't it? When you say it written. Like matador. I slotted into rehearsals like I'd never been away. And the next two weeks were some of the happiest times I'd ever had since the chapter I did about Julia Bravo. The other acts were in no particular order, apart from it being the order I'm remembering them in. Des and Jade, a magic act. Derek Champagne and his premier crew, who did all the music. Sweet Georgia, two fat women that sang. The Crankies, and last but by no means least, my good self. I really warmed to the Crankies and got on so well with them. Jimmy, the little boy one, reminded me so much of myself at his age, and when we had a bit of time during rehearsals, I would often take him to the zoo and we would feed the lions and ducks and, 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 and bats and whatever else you find in a zoo. Really, he became like the son I didn't want and never had. I wasn't that keen on his mother, though. She was a very pushy woman. 
I mean, she was all over me, like she knew me. I only knew her to nod at. I actually felt quite sorry for Jimmy. They seemed to have no bond, him and her. She was never around when he was on stage. That's where we differed. My mother adored me, doted on me even, and it must have broken her heart when she decided to emigrate to either Australia or Austria. In fact, I had an argument in a pub with some idiot about the Crankies recently. They were saying there was a woman in it. I said, don't talk rubbish. It's a little schoolboy and his dad, or big brother. I never did work that out. I said, I used to take him to the pictures, little Jimmy. I took him to see Zulu. Uh, and he could put some bloody ice cream away. Chapter 51-ish. The Next Phase Before I start, I've just seen the headline on someone's paper that Abdul Qatada has said he would go back to Jordan. What happened to Peter Andre, the kickboxer? Dear me, she goes through him like a dose of salt, she does. She's been married more times than Elizabeth Taylor's husbands have had hot dinners. Anna was looking at the magazines by the tales in Marx's, and now she's worried about her implants bursting, Jordan. It was on the front page. That's all, that's all you have to do these days, have your bust done. I wish that's all I had to do to get where I am. I was saying to the woman on the till, why, instead of having an implant put in, don't they use a bit of an inner tube instead? Then you could have a concealed valve somewhere, possibly in the belly button, and you could pump them up to however big you wanted them with a bicycle pump. You'd need to carry a puncture kit around with you for emergencies, granted, and possibly some tyre levers, but they all have handbags, don't they? The super wags. Imagine how convenient that would be. You know, if you were going to church, say, you'd let a bit of air out. And if you were going to an awards do, you'd pump them right up. I'm surprised no one's thought of that before. I, I might submit a paper on that to the Lancet. That's another thing I've always thought of as funny. Lancet. You know, like your Lancer boil, and it's a medical journal. Lancet. Lance it. They must have done that deliberate. And that's how I came to one of the biggest shocks, both in my life so far and in this book. Chapter 52 Bankruptcy In 1980-something, I went to the bank to make a withdrawal, only to find that I had nothing to withdraw. I was bankrupt. Bankrupt. In those days, there was a lot of shame, some might say a stigma, attached to bankruptcy. I wouldn't say stigma, though, because I'm not sure what it means. I have a good idea, but I'd have to look it up, and I'm too busy doing this at the moment. You go and look it up if you're that bothered. I think it's part of a flower. And while we're on words, bankruptcy is a word which I actually think would look better without the tea in it. Anyway, I had no money left, however you want to spell it. I'd never had to worry about money before, and here I was, having to worry about it. This was a new sensation to me. I decided I had to take a firm hold of myself and put my heads together and come up with a plan to move forward. I racked my brains until finally I came to the unescapable conclusion that there was nothing for it but to auction off some of my belongings, like they're doing cash in the attic, except I wouldn't want Angela Rippon or Jenny Bond to do mine. Both newsreaders, please note, taking jobs away from proper celebrities. As for bloody Ben Fogel, what does he know about antiques? I have to turn the sound down when he's talking. On the plus side, though, my lip-reading is coming on in leaps and bounds. 
I tell you who I do like, though, Alastair Appleton. He's always very nice to the people on it, no matter how stupid they are. And he's on Start a New Life in the country as well. He's the same on that with them, even if they haven't even put their own house on the market yet, and it's obvious to everyone that they're time wasters and think they have personalities and just want to be on television, again taking away work from people who should be on television. He just is very nice with them. He started on House Doctor, you know, with Anne Maurice. Oh, she used to rub them up the wrong way. Your house smells as if a dead dog has weed on it. You'll never sell it if you don't get a new carpet and have the spaniel put down. And then he would come in and smooth it all over. So that was a bit of a shock then when she said that about the dog. Compelling television. And if Alistair had have been born in the past, whenever this is supposed to be, then I would have wanted him to do my attic now. Or then. It is actually a bit confusing sometimes, writing this now about what happened then, and trying to pretend you're writing it then, but you're writing it now. Still, why should I worry about that? That's a job for my highly paid script editor that made me have more expense going out that could have come my way. Anyway, I'm getting fed up with this chapter, so I wasn't bankrupt. I just put my wrong pin number in. I'd put 1490, and it's 1940. Chapter 54. I, author. I'm going to have to change my pin number now I've put it in a book. If there's one thing I've learned in the process of writing this autobiography of myself, it's that you can't write a book in a fortnight. If you take weekends off and Wednesday being market day, that's down to eight days. And for a probing piece of literary self-exploration like this is, that's probably a week too short. So I wish I'd started a bit earlier now. I'll know for the next volume. A lot of you will be inspired to write your own books when you've finished reading this, My Life's Opus, or Volume 1 of My Life's Opus. So I thought it might be useful if I logged down for you the things I have discovered during the process of writing this wonderful would-be bestseller. Plus, and this might as well be the first lesson, I'm using words up. Now, some people, like Barbara Cartland, Geoffrey Archer, Jilly Cooper, Barry Cryer, etc., get up at the dawn of dawn and crack on that they write 10,000 words before they've been to the toilet, which is rubbish, and they're just saying that to make themselves look big. Are you seriously telling me that a person can lie in bed all night for, say, eight hours and then get up and not desperately need to a bloot? I know for a fact that Barry... Doorbell... Can you believe that? I wouldn't mind, but there is a sign-up saying, don't press doorbell, and then they still go and press it. I've told them, I said, if that was the button for the nuclear bomb, and you ignored the signage, we'd be in all sorts of trouble. We wouldn't be having this conversation now for a kick-off, and that would be your fault. Willful flouting of a written instruction, countersigned by me as well. Excuse me a minute while I answer it. Chapter... Shakespeare, the Bard on Avon If music be the food of love, give me excess of it, so that suffeting my appetite will sicken and so die. That Cassio loves her, I do well believe it. Get thee to a nunnery, Ophelia. Nymph, in thy orisons, remember my dreams. Oh, that this too, too solid flesh 
would melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a dew. This septic isle sets in a silver salver, this teeming womb of royal kings, this England. No, not the words of myself, although my style is very similar, so I can understand you thinking that. The words, everybody, of Sir William Shakespeare, the bard on Avon, from a thorough speech to Titania, from the winter's tale of Love's Labour's Lost, part two and possibly three. Now there's a lot of nonsense talked about Shakespeare, and in this chapter I want to dispel some of those myths and, to a degree, demystify the bard, because I think he has been misted up by people over the years. I am on a mission to make Shakespeare more accessible. People who are doing an O-level might find this chapter particularly useful, and you're probably right in thinking that this book should be a syllabub textbook and bought by every school in the country as a teaching aid, which I am prepared to negotiate on the price if anyone would like to approach me about that, like that idiot Michael Grove, for instance, who I can't bring myself to look at. But that wouldn't stop me doing business with him. I'd sell him a few hundred thousand copies of my memoirs. He could wear a balaclava. You don't have to look at someone to sell them something, do you? That's one of the good things about me. It doesn't matter how stupid someone is or how much irritates me when he opens his mouth, I will still do business with them for the good of our children. Hmm? There might be an order form in this book. I'll see if I can get one put in at the back of it. So who or what was or is Shakespeare? Well, Shakespeare was a man, just like you or me, or I, who wrote plays many, many years ago when everybody talked like Stanley Unwin. This sometimes makes them difficult to follow. But if you follow the following, you will find what I tell you makes it all much easier to follow. Now, I'm going to take you through a Shakespeare speech, line by line, until I get fed up of it, and tell you what each line means. It's a speech from Hamnet, who was also in the Mickey Spillane books. Oh, that this too, too solid flesh. This means his fat. Solid flesh equals fat. Should melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a dew. This is Hamnet saying he'd like to lose weight, and I think something about water retention. Or that the everlasting had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter. Well, we all know what a cannon is, so I won't insult you by doing that one. It's fair to assume that the everlasting will be God. How weary, stale, flat and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. Self-explanatory. Oh, God! Oh, God! Well, that just means, oh, God, oh, God. Um, that's as much as I'm, I'm doing now, for the time being. It is very demanding translating from Shakespearean. I don't think you understand how much it takes out of you, translating all that gobbledygook. Now, when you go to see a Shakespeare, if you find there's a bit you don't understand, and let's face it, that's most of the bloody thing, if you're being honest, in those circumstances, just copy what the rest of the audience is doing, and you'll probably get away with it. Always presuming you haven't nodded off. I'm terrible like that, really, me. If I ever get free tickets to see a Shakespeare, I always have to have a little nap. Honestly, my eyes just start closing. It's not my fault. 
There's something mesmeric about them droning on. If you're ever having trouble sleeping, that's what you want to do. Get a ticket for Midsummer's Night's Dreams. Right, here's the idea for a kid's book. Fluffy the Tortoiseshell Cat, a book for small children to buy, by Count Arthur Strong. Fluffy was a tortoise cat. No. Fluffy was a tortoiseshell cat. Uh, um. Fluffy was a tortoiseshell coloured cat. Fluffy was a grey cat who could talk. Nobody knew it could talk but Walter, the son of the family. Fl oh, Fluffy was a magic cat. It would only talk to him. No, it was a flying cat. Fluffy was a flying cat with a secret. It could fly. Fluffy was a cat with a secret. It could fly. One... Right, this next one is it. Fluffy was a cat like no other cat with a secret. It could fly an aeroplane. It saved a magic elf it met in the woods, stuck in a man-trap, and something about a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And it gave him or her three wishes. The elf did. The, the elf gave the cat three wishes. Its owner, the cat's owner, not the elf, was a young boy called possibly Walter. Possibly Walter was a wizard, a bit like Harry Potter, but with square glasses and blonder and taller. One day, the cat was walking down the garden path, considerately resisting the temptation to do a mess on it, which sounds a bit far-fetched, I know. But you have to remember, boys and girls, Fluffy was a magic cat. If only all cats could do that, the world would be a much nicer place. People never pick cats mess up, do they? I've never seen anyone pooper in after a cat. You have a look next time you're at the park, children. That can be a project for you. Fluffy was sitting in the sun, licking all its fur nice and clean. Don't worry, boys and girls, if any hair gets in a cat's throat, the cat will sick them all up later, probably on the settee. Anyway, a duck called Richard waddled down the path because they were near a lake, weren't they? Hello, Richard Duck. How are you today? uttered Fluffy. It's my birthday, returned Richard. Do you want to come to my party? Yes, please, said Fluffy Duck. It's at half past two, and it waddled off back to where it came from. A party! How exciting! Oh, that means I have to get a present, said the cat to itself, obviously. The cat went home and got its money box, which was locked, so it got a knife and it stuck it in the slot and jiggled it about until enough money fell out to buy Walter Duck a present, like a comb or something that was useful. So the cat went to the shop, and the shopkeeper was a friendly elephant called Mr Jumbo. Good morning, fluffy cat. How are you today? said Mr Jumbo jollily. I'm very well, Mr Jumbo. Thank you for bothering. I've come to buy a birthday present for whatever the duck's called, purred Fluffy. What can I buy for a shiny new twenty-pence bit? Why, twenty-pence will buy you this apple, young man or woman cat. But I must warn you, this is a magic apple, and with it you get three wishes. And with these three wishes comes great responsibility. I'll take it, uttered the fish, cat, Fluffy cat. So anyway, the cat goes back to where it lived and it put the apple down on the kitchen table while it went to the lavatory. 
and the wicked fairy godmother looked through the window and saw the juicy apple on the table, and she said, Apple green, apple red, come to me, I must be fed. And she smashed the window with a brick and broke into the house and stole the apple. When the cat got back from the toilet, where it had licked its paws thoroughly like a good cat, and you must always lick your paws when you've done the toilet, children, it looked at the empty table and saw that it was empty, and it thought, What have I done with that bloody apple then? And it mewed loudly, like you hear tomcats do at half-past three in the morning when next door's cat's on heat. Hearing this plaintive mew, Walter, who'd been playing with his magic wand in the drawing room, hurried into the kitchen to see what was going on. What's going on? What are you mewing at? And the cat told Walter everything that had happened, and Walter looked in his crystal balls and saw that the wicked witch was outside, just about to fly off on her broomstick. Quick as a flash, he got a passing woodcutter to chop her in two, and lo and behold, Robin Hood's grandma jumped out, and the cow jumped over the moon. The End Chapter 57 The Wild Ones In the late 1980s, it wasn't only America's Marlboro Brandon that was rebelling. Over this side of the pond, we had some of that going on here as well. I was going through a difficult patch myself, and I take no pride in saying this. For a time, I turned my back on variety and became a junivile delinquent and teddy boy. Hang on a minute. That was the 1950s, not the 1980s. The late 50s, to me, were what I call my wildebeest years. I used to hang around street corners, chewing chewing gum with my mouth open, and I was cheeky to my mother. On one occasion, I spat as a fly, just for kicks. It was clear to everyone who loved me that I was going right off the rails. I remember when Bill Halley's Comet came to Stresomodium. I went to see them play with some of the guys, and when they did the song Blackboard Jungle, well, the place went wild, and we started throwing seats at each other. It was crazy, man, just plain crazy. So wonder someone wasn't seriously killed. Next thing we knew, the police, or pigs, were there. Scuffles broke out, and I was arrested. I tried to tell them that it was someone else's fault, but they weren't listening. They'd already made up their minds and threw me in the cells. I felt just about as low as a man could get. I remember a prison officer bringing me my chow. As he went to hand the tray to me, he said, Wait a minute, don't I recognise you? I said, Obviously not, Daddio, if you have to ask me. You're that kid who was doing that show at the Brixton Hippodrome. What the hell happened to you, kid? What the hell happened to me, kid? That phrase rang in my ears like a big bell ringing in my ears. I wished somebody would make it stop. I slumped in the corner moodily, a bit like Montgomery Cliftwood, and prayed that no one would try to molest me, because Mother had often said that I was a pretty boy, and you hear stories about what goes on. In the morning they came for me and took me to the courthouse. Ma was there holding a handkerchief up to her head. She was blowing her nose loudly. Sounded like she had a kazoo stuck up each nose hole. I couldn't bring myself to look at her. 
the judge read me the riot act, and I was found guilty of what I did last night. Everything went blurred. I wanted to shout out, but I couldn't speak. Through this sort of kind of fug, I heard the judge pass sentence. I was to be sent to Boston. Through it all, I've always loved. By Count Arthur Strong. Chapter fifty-eight. Borstal. Yes, that's right. I said Borstal. You want to make something of it? The prison van roared to a halt. The reinforced steel doors were thrown open, and I was roughly manhandled out of them. I stood there for a moment, letting my eyes become accustomed to the bright sunshine. Somebody shouted at us to line up. The prison governor, or gov, as we were not allowed to call him, slowly walked along the line, hands behind his back, fixing each of us with a meaningful glare, almost daring us to step out of line. After what seemed an eternity, but was probably about ten to fifteen seconds, I would estimate, he stopped and addressed us. Now I run a tight ship here. If you keep your noses down and do as you're told, you'll do all right. If you don't, I will crush you. Do I make myself clear? Do I make myself clear? He said again because no one answered him the first time. It's better on film, that sort of thing. Yes, sir. We responded in unison. Good, he opined. Make sure it stays that way. I leave you in the capable hands of Officer Campling. Carry on, Campling, and with that. Michael Redgrave nodded and walked, and with that he nodded and walked away. Campling eyed us hungrily. He was, it turned out, a baddie, and he was enjoying his moment. Look at you, miserable lot! You all look as if you could do with a haircut each. Let's see what we can do about that. Left turn, quick march! And with that, we were all taken off to have our heads cut off, hair cut off. And with that, we were all taken to have our hair cut off. Most of us were teddy boys, although there was one beatnik among our number who was doing time for being caught with a dope smoking. Anyway, us teddy boys had spent a lot of time perfecting our DAs, which stands for ducks' asses. I used to think it stood for district attorney, but apparently it is ducks' asses. Would have been much better if I'd have been right about that. Imagine the confusion a DA, district attorney, with a DA, duck's ass, could cause. For example, hello, I'm a DA. Hello, nice DA. Are you trying to be funny? No. Then stop saying stupid things. Then I'm not saying stupid things. You are. You see what I mean? Neither of me has any idea what the other one's on about. So that needs looking at. Anyway, whatever. They took us to the prison barber. And we all had our hair cut very short, like they used to do if you had nits. Of course, I've never had nits myself. Mother said that's what common people got, and that it was because my hair was so very fine, too fine for the nits to cling onto. I would imagine she meant. Can't think of what else she'd have meant. Perhaps she was drunk. Who knows? Anyway, I was locked up in the hokey for the night. In the morning. We were given vests and baggy shorts and made to run around a big field. 
I had been something of a cross-country runner on the outside, and to me this wasn't a punishment. I ran and ran like the wind and the wind, leaving the rest of the boys in my wake. When we finished, Campling, who had it in for me, told me the governor wanted to see me. Apparently he'd been watching me run, the governor, not Campling, and was rather impressed. I knocked on his door. Come in, Courtney, he said. Come in strong, he said. I came in. You wanted to see me, sir, I said. Do you know what this is? He handed me a photograph of someone holding a trophy. It was a cup, actually, but if I'd said cup, you'd have thought it was a picture of somebody just holding a cup, like a teacup. That's always a difficult one to do as a writer, that cup and cup. But good writers can always find a way round it, like I did, can't we? No, sir, I replied eventually, after I'd written that bit. That is a picture of a posh private school, who we do cross-country against every year, and they always beat us and win the cup or trophy, as some writers might call it, for clarification. Thank you for telling me, sir, I responded. Can I go now? No, I haven't told you the rest of the film yet. I was watching you run, and you think you have the beating of them. I want you to represent the Borstal in next week's sports day against them. I thought for a moment, and then I spoke for a moment. I'd rather not, sir, if it's all the same to you. He looked at me, and his eyes narrowed, and they were already quite narrow to start with. I don't think you understand, he proffered. I can make things very difficult for you here at Ruxton Towers. All right, I'll do it then. For the remainder of the week, I was excused normal duties, and allowed to practice running until the day of the event was upon me. I remember I awoke early and went to give a bit of bacon rind to my kestrel. When I got to the shed, the kestrel was just lying there on the floor, motionless. I knew enough about kestrels to know that they didn't do that. It was dead of a broken neck. I cried until I thought my heart would break. Just then, I heard the noise of a branch snapping as someone trod on it behind me. I turned around. It was Crampling who had it in for me. That's a shame, Casper, he said mockingly. You better get yourself ready for the race. I held back the tears and gritted my jaw. I would get even with them. I'd make them pay for killing my kestrel bird. We lined up for the race, and the starter fired the starting pistol. The posh ones tried to elbow me and trip me up, but I forced my way to the front, and I opened up an substantial lead. As I ran into the home straight, I could see the winning tape in front of me. The Michael Redgrave was standing there, willing me on. I could almost hear him. Come on, come on, I almost heard. Suddenly, quite deliberately, I started stopping, slowly. What are you doing, you fool? What are you doing? I could almost hear the gov say. I had slowed to a walk by now. I could see the others gaining on me with every stride. Do you know, I'll never forget the look of incredulousness on their faces as they overtook me. You know, I think this would be a much better film if I won the race. It's not very satisfying and just stopping. It's stupid. So, 
I think I might start running again. And I did. And I overtook all the people that had just overtaken me. And they all looked incredulous. And I did win the race. And everyone was cheering me on. And I had it very easy for the rest of Borstal. And then when I came out, I was in chariots of fire and a woman that as well. And if you want the truth, I'm rushing this now because writing this has made me late for an audition for chewing gum, which I have to learn a line for. This is nice chewing gum. I'll have to learn that on the bus now. Chapter Anyone for Tennis This could be in the 50s or the 80s. It doesn't affect me. Now, it's widely known that I am a natural sportsman with great ball sense. If I hadn't gone on to become what I am, I could have pursued a distinguished sporting career. It was tennis that I excelled in. And if I have a regret in life, which I don't, it was that I didn't turn professional and win Wimbledon. I instead distinguished myself in the equity mixed doubles. For those of you who don't know what equity is, it is the actors' union, and everybody used to have to be in equity. All of them were in it, Laurence Olivier, Dora Bryan, the lot. And once a year, they used to have a tennis tournament. One morning, on hearing the rattle of the letterbox rattling, I arose from bed and went to the door to find the postman forcing a gold-embossed envelope bearing the equity's coat of arms through the door. Obviously not through the door, through the letterbox. I remember thinking it was another bloody reminder about my subs being in arrears. On opening the envelope, however, I was highly delighted to find that inside was something else. It was a wild-card invitation to take part in that year's equity mixed doubles tennis tournament. I don't mind telling you I was thrilled. The only question was, who would partner me and where was my tennis bat? I knew Dora Bryan was doing a carry-on, so that ruled her out. And then it came to me. Of course! Why didn't I think of that a minute ago? Anita! Anita Harris! I called her immediately, and she said she'd be highly delighted to partner me. She'd just finished doing a bit on its Lulu on the BBC, and to use her own words, she was looking for a distraction. I said to her, Can I just stop you there, Anita? I said, If you're partnering me in this tournament, we're in it to win it. I said, This might be a distraction to you, but I want to use this opportunity to show I could have won Wimbledon. Are you with me? I said. Are you with me? Yes, she said. Yes, her eyes shining brightly like 200 watt light bulbs. And then we high-fived each other like they do on the voice. Once again, my motivational skills had come to the fore. Now the only thing I had to do was find my lucky racket. I called it my lucky racket because I'd found it in a bush shelter. And I know it was silly of me, but I was quite superstitious about playing with it. It was a real beauty, wooden framed like they used to be, and strung with cat gut. I would estimate there were the guts of at least two or possibly three cats went into stringing that racket, which I always found strangely reassuring. I'd won quite a few matches with that in my youth, the lob shot being one of my favourite shots. People would come from miles to see me lobbing it off the old cat's guts. I spent the next few weeks bringing myself to the peak of physical condition. 
I would start each day with fifteen minutes of Canadian Mountie exercises, then have a banana and then look for my racket for a bit. Pretty soon I was match ready. Then, on the eve of the match, right out of the blue, like a bouncing bomb on a Norwegian field, Anita dropped the bombshell she dropped on me. The telephone rang, just like it had on many, many occasions before, and in keeping with that statement, I answered it in the same vein. Hello, Tooting 2469, Count Arthur Strong speaking. How may I help you? It's Anita, Anita's voice said to me. She sounded slightly querulous in tone, and I noticed this, so I said, Why do you sound slightly querulous in tone, Anita? Oh, Arthur, I don't know how to tell you, she sobbed. Tell me, tell me what, my dear? Come, come, it can't be as bad as all that, can it? Just take your courage in both hands and tell me. After all, they do say a problem shared is a problem doubled or halved, I forget which. She then went on to drop the bombshell that she couldn't partner me in the equity mixed doubles after all. She'd been offered an engagement with Vince Hill on the Queen Mary and was setting sail that night. Vince had just had a version of Idleswine in the hip parade twenty years earlier, and his popularity was at an all-time high for five minutes. But not to worry, she said. She'd already spoken to Hattie Jakes, and that Hattie was free to partner me. Hattie Jakes? Hattie Jakes! I exclaimed. Tennis! Hattie Jakes! How's she going to get round a tennis court? She's good at net. Anita responded. Well, I hope we're playing against Mrs. Mills and Fred Emney. That's all I can say. You've let me down, Anita. You've let me down. The morning of the match was upon me. I starched and pressed my shorts and tennis skirt and set off for Queen's. The morning sky was overcast, almost brooding. Was that a spot of rain I felt on the back of my wrist? the beginnings of an idea began to form within my head of mine. As I arrived at Wimbledon, I felt more spots on the back of my wrist. I hoped I wasn't coming down with something. The masked spectators were sitting there expectantly. Hattie was pacing the corridor. "'What's up with you?' I said, nicely. "'Nothing,' she said. "'Where's your racket?' I inquired. "'What racket?' Your racket! She looked at me as though I was a complete idiot, which I'm not. The thing you hit the ball with, a racket. No one told me to bring a racket, she said defensively. You shouldn't need telling, I shouted, still nicely. Well, where's yours then, she said. I looked down at my hand, where my cat's gut racket should be. But it was empty of it. I'd left it on the bus and that thirty-one would be at the terminus in Camden Town by now, approximately six miles away, or it might be further. Things were going from bad to worse. How could we play tennis without a racket between us each? But wait! Just at that precise moment, I started to be hit on the head by lots of plops, and the plops were getting heavier. It was raining, torrentially. The umpire in his chair leant down toward me. What are we going to do? We can't play in this rain. We've only got the court book for an hour. They'll want another pound. We'll have to abandon the tournament. I could see he was becoming hysterical, so I slapped him in the face until he shut up, and then I leapt into action. I grabbed the microphone from him. 
Ladies and gentlemen, stay right where you are. In my business, we have a little saying. The show must go on. And I got up in the audience and I started singing to them all for ages, like Cliff Richards did, but better. And I did it first. And it was marvellous. They all said that. And afterwards, one of the locals, Barnsley Bob, who was watching from the other side of the wire netting, banging a dustbin lid to accompany me, gave me a can of something called Special Brew. And we adjourned to a park bench and I sang a few more songs with some of his friends. And it really was an unforgettable show. It was just my bad luck there weren't any television cameras there. He's a jammy sod, Cliff Richards. Chapter 59 The Entertainment Game Now, what you might not know about me is that as well as all the other things I am, I am also an inventor and entrepreneur. And actually, I have probably invented several things you use in your everyday life. Unfortunately, though, I can't currently tell you what they are or say anything about them because of several patent issues with small-minded companies. But one of the things I have invented, which I had a lot of fun with, is my entertainment-based board game called The Entertainment Game. And this will be coming out, hopefully, for Christmas. If we can't get it out in time for Christmas, we might hold it back for Easter, whenever that is. That should be a board game itself. When is Easter? I don't know why it can't be the same time every year. Apparently, it's the first Sunday after the first full moon after the venereal equinox, which is also the first day of spring. And that is when day and night are both 12 hours long. Marvellous, isn't it? And every year they expect us to do all that for them, instead of just saying it's on the so-and-so of so-and-so every year, which would be much simpler. Who decides these things? Anyway, what you do to play the entertainment game is... On the board, you... There's a board, obviously. On the board, it looks like a Monopoly board a bit, but it definitely isn't Monopoly. It's quite definitely not that, so don't even think it is. Right, I'm going to start this bit again. What you do to play the entertainment game is... There's a board... And on that board, there are theatres where there would be streets on a Monopoly board. And that is completely different if you're trades and standards people reading this. Streets and theatres are not similar. One's inside and one's outside for a start. And you have dice or dices because there's two of them. No, three of them. Because that's even more different to Monopoly. They only have two because it's cheap. Now, you throw the dices and you have counters you move along. And the counters are shaped like awards. One is an Oscar and one is a BAFTA. And one is a TV quick award and one is a British soap awards thing, if they have one. And for the others, I might have an ironing board and a hat if there aren't any more awards. But not a top hat like Bloody Monopoly has. A trilby, a proper hat like mine. And the dog would be a bloodhound or something, not a Highland thing, yapping all the time. And each player has some money, but more than you get in Monopoly. And what you do is, you roll the dices, and whoever gets a six goes first. And if you land on a theatre, you can buy it. And if anybody else lands on it, once you own it, they have to pay you for a ticket to see the show. And, and you have squares that you land on that you have to pick a card upon. One is auditions, and the other is reviews. And the reviews one might say, four-star review for your bottom at Midsummer Night's Murders. Go forward three spaces. And you go forward three spaces. And an audition one might say, 
Up for the part of James Bond in Goldenfinger with Love. Say something like James Bond would, but not when Roger Moore was doing it. And instead of free parking, I'd have the interval. And instead of mortgaging properties like that other game that I'm sick of saying the name of does, the theatre goes dark, which is a theatrical expression for when the Arts Council withdraws funding and you can't afford to open, except for Derham Brown shows and a lot of other stuff I can't be bothered with. Anyway, the point of the game is to buy all the theatres up and win all the money. Then, if you own all the theatres, you can put on what you like and play all the good parts instead of scratching around waiting for some halfwit to say you can push your trolley past the bottom of a corridor. And it's nothing like Monopoly. Chapter 60 Down and Out in France and Boulogne one of the things with being a highly recognisable celebrity like me is that you're never off duty. Even if you're just going to the shop for a loaf of bread or an orange, someone's going to recognise you and want to speak to you, so to speak. We've all heard of Beatlemania, haven't we? Well, you know, Beatlemania didn't start with the Beatles, as they would have you believe. I had Beatlemania happening to me long before they came along. I once remember going to the greengrocer and being followed home by an ardent fan. I had to push him a banana through the letterbox before he went away. Finally, though, he did. Anyway, things reached a peak for me in 1960-something. I was recognised three times in one week. Someone that lived in my street said hello. Someone I was briefly at school with nodded at me as they were walking past. I think it was me they were nodding at and the woman in the bank asked how I was. Life was becoming intolerable. I decided that the only thing for it was to remove myself from the merry-go-round of constant recognition and take a bit of time out before I broke down and had a breakdown. It was time to get back to myself and find me. I decided to buy a map of Europe, open it out on the kitchen table, Close my eyes and stick a pin in it. Wheresoever that pin wouldst falleth, wouldst be wherever I went to. The first time I tried it, I unfortunately missed the table, which could have been nasty. However, with nothing more than my pride wounded, I tried again. This time I stuck the pin in my leg, which was nasty. It was a big pin. But I was getting close to the map with every attempt. On the third, I stuck it in the middle of the North Sea, and I wasn't about to go there. For a kick-off, I didn't have a boat, and there's a lot of water there. But with the famous Count Arthur Strong ne'er-say-die attitude that's got me where I am today, it was fourth time lucky, and with a trembling something, I looked down at the map to see where fate had dictated I go to. It was Boulogne, in France. Oh, Boulogne! The very name conjured up a hundred images in my mind of mine. France, the country of Mireille Mathieu, Sasha Distel, Edam cheese, wine of every hue and colour, spaghetti, Papa and Nicole of the Renault, and cold soup. I was doing just what William the Conqueror had done thousands of years before me, but the other way round. I was going to France. The very next day, or the day after, I forget which, 
I went down to Thomas Cook's and booked passage on a cross-channel ferry. I decided, as I was escaping my celebrity, to travel incognito as a poor man out to make his way in the new world of Europe. So I travelled steerage and was given a berth in the bowels of the ship next to the engine room. I remember leaning against the railings, or whatever they call them on a boat, as the ship pulled out of the port of Dover, and thinking, what will become of me in this brave new world? I breathed a deep lungful of the ozone, but not enough to make the hole any bigger. I was very careful about that before you start complaining, and headed downstairs. There is a word for downstairs on a boat. I just can't remember it. No, it's gone. I'd never slept in a hammock before. In fact, when the purser said it to me, I thought he'd said a haddock, which would have been ludicrous, as I told him at the time. In fact, I suggested they change the name of them to avoid any confusion in the future. Someone that wasn't as clever as me at thinking things out might be very upset about the notion of having to sleep on a haddock. A pregnant woman, for instance. That would be a genuine ordeal for someone like that. And not everybody likes fish. But he was a surly individual, and I could see that my advice had fell on stony ground. During my passage, I decided to keep myself to myself. If word got out that I was on board, my journey would have become intolerable. So I kept my head down and spent most of my time in my haddock reading a book. A week later, we arrived at Boulogne. I'll never forget sailing into the harbour at Boulogne. I disembarked and got off the ship. I remember standing on the jetty and thinking, Here I was at last, somewhere where nobody knew me, somewhere where I didn't have to be Count Arthur Strong. I could be just plain old Arthur Strong. I have to say, my next thought was, Why would anyone want to be somewhere where nobody knew who you were? That's a death knell to a celebrity like me. I might as well be Barrymore. Once I'd realised the error of my ways, I thought, right, I've seen France, very nice. I then bought fourteen cot postals, as they're called over there, wrote a few wish-I-was-theirs on them, stuck them in a post-box and got back on the ship. I booked a nice cabin on the way back as well, with a proper bed. I thought, I'm not sleeping in a bloody haddock with a grate unwashed for another week. I booked my return passage without subterfuge, and of course, because of that, I was invited to dine every night with the ship's captain at the top table. My pilgrimage to Boulogne had taught me something, and it was not to turn my back on myself. Like the Queen, I was duty-bound to play with the hand that fate had dealt me, whatever the pressures. Those twelve minutes in France had reinvigorated me, and I've been there for twelve minutes many times since. Anyway, here I was, back from my travels, and I was ready, ready for anything. By the way, they've stopped asking at the tills in W.H. Smith's if you want any of our half-priced sweets and chocolate. They now say, would you like any of our offers? They're trying to come at you from another direction. They must think I was born yesterday. Mind you, two big bars of Galaxy for three pounds is quite a good offer. I can easily go through a whole bar at one sitting me, if I'm concentrating on something else. I ate half of one during Coronation Street on Monday, and I'll be eating the other half during Wednesdays, if I know me, which I do. 
So, you know, whilst I can appreciate a good offer, as well as the man stood next to the man stood next to me, Cam, I don't have to agree with the methods they employ. And I don't. They should just shut up when they talk to me and just have a sign up. They've even started in the bloody post office now. She said to me this morning, Can I get you any stamps or provide you with any of our other services today? I said, No, you can't. And stop asking me. I know what you're doing, you know. You're as bad as the woman in Smith's. This is the post office. This is one of the last bastions, is this? I'm just going to write down here now for all you fans of mine that are reading this book that work in WH Smith's or the bloody post office. Do not, I repeat, not ask me if I want things when I come into your shops. There isn't the time in the day for you to be asking me if I want things. I'm a busy man. I've got this book to write. In fact, this book is the only thing I could think of that would be valid for you to ask people if they want when they're standing at the tills. So the one exemption to what I'm saying is that you could ask everybody but me if they want this book when I've finished it, obviously. Do not, I repeat, do not, for God's sake, start asking me if I want my own book. That would be the straw that broke the camera's back off. Faber and Faber and Faber have said they'll send me a box full of the things. They better do, the bloody work I've put into this. Books don't make themselves up, you know. Anyway, either buy this or put it down now. You've been looking at it for long enough. Chapter 64 Lord Baden-Powell and the Scouting Movement The Scouting Movement is something that has always been very important to me and I have been involved in it all my life. And yes, I myself was a Boy Scout, which I didn't mention earlier, not because I'd forgotten, but because I'd just thought of it. So before I carry on, let me fill you in on some of the background of this wonderful and erstwhile organisation. Lord Baden-Powell was the founder of the Scouting Movement. In many ways it can be said, without fear of contradiction, that he was indeed the first Boy Scout. In fact, the Hollywood star, Harrison George, based Indiana Jones on him in the Lord of the Rings films, and he wrote Peter Pan. Lord Baden, uh, Baden did, not George Harrison. George Harrison was one of the Beatles. In 1900 and something, the story goes, Lord Baden-Baden was sitting at his desk, looking out of his window, and he saw two youths leaning against the bus stop, with their hands in their pockets. When he went to bed that night, he dreamed that he heard a voice, and that voice was someone telling him to invent the Boy Scouts. When he woke up in the morning, he sat at his desk and with a pencil in his hand, feverishly mapped out the Boy Scouts charter. Jobber Bob, the two-fingered salute, badges, saying dib-dib-dib, singing gingangoolies, the lot. Thus was laid the foundation stone of the Boy Scouts. But he still needed royal descent. So, because he was a lord, he phoned up Buckingham Palace. All the lords have a direct line through to the Queen. It dates back to the Knights of the Round Table. And he got the seal of royal approval. And the rest is history. Little did Lord Baden Harrison imagine that hundreds of years later, the Boy Scouts would still be going, and I would have become an indispensable part of it all. In 1970-something, I remember vividly, there was a knock at my door. 
On opening it, I was delighted to see the vicar stood there looking at me. Count Arthur, he said, I'd like to ask something of you because of all your expertise. Well, you'd better sit down, vicar, while I pour the tea, I ejaculated to him. Can I come in the house, then? he inquired politely. Of course, what must you think of me? I laughed out loud. I've always been able to laugh at myself. It's one of the good things about someone like me. Or me. I asked him in for tea and cake, if he'd brought one. And this is what he said to me. Count Arthur, I'm afraid I'm here to ask you a favour. Well, you mustn't be afraid to ask me a favour, vicar. I don't bite, you know, I joked. And even if I did, I would only do it in self-defence. And you'd have had to seriously provoke me for it to go that far. So you'd only have yourself to blame should that scenario occur. He looked at me with great understanding in his eyes before he went on thus. I'm afraid it's the scout's hut. You're afraid what's the scout's hut? I said quizzically, not fully understanding the thing he'd just said to me. Perhaps if you'd let me finish, he intoned. Yes, I think you should, I responded. But first, let me say this to you. You're among friends in this house, vicar. Never forget that. If you're afraid of the scout's hut, we'll get you through it. Once again, he gave me that look, and I felt we'd somehow connected on a deep and meaningful level. Look, he said, putting his hand over my mouth, which he sometimes did. Look, he said, the scout's hut will fall down if we don't raise some money for a new roof. Because of who you are, and as an ex-boy scout yourself, of some not inconsiderable distinction, I am here to ask you if you can think of any way we can raise the necessary funds to replace the roof I've just mentioned earlier in this speech. With that, he removed his hand, and I was once again free to commune with him, or in fact use my mouth for any purpose I wanted without recrimination. After all, we lived in a democracy last time I looked. As it happened, I couldn't really think of anything else to do with it but speak, so I did. You've come to the right house, vicar, I exclaimed with fire in my eyes. Vicar, an idea is beginning to unfold itself in my mind of mine. What if we were to do a gang show, vicar, like they used to do? I would direct, of course, like Ralph Reader, and possibly Star will not fall out over that. And I could get some of my showbiz pals to donate their services for naught. By hook or by crook, vicar, thou shalt have us thy new shed roof. The next few weeks went by in what seemed like just a few weeks, so busy was I. After the vicar's departure, I had wasted no time in contacting some of my old showbiz chums, and I spent many days in anticipation of the postman coming, sticking their replies through my letterbox, all crumpled up and folded in half because of a personal vendetta he was pursuing against me, which actually was a tragic accident that went terribly wrong. I was more a bystander, if anything. It was meant to give a cat an electric shock, not a human being. How was I to know the idiot postman was going to waltz up the path unannounced with letters for me, wearing steel toe caps? They should let you know they're coming. That is gross dereliction of duty, as I told him when we were waiting for the ambulance to come. It was only connected up to a car battery anyway. That's not going to kill you, is it? I said if you'd had the right shoes on, you probably wouldn't have felt anything. How can having the wrong shoes on be my fault? It was an act of God you walking up the path when I was doing a trial. 
Anyway, it's been very off with me ever since. It's laughable how some people can be so petty. He wants to get over it, if you ask me. It was a good idea, that as well, an electrified cat grid. I still might have a go with that on Dragon's Den. It's probably cost me a fortune, that idiot. I think, out of them all, I'd have to go with Peter Jones's offer. I think he would see the merit in my flap. And, and he knows a lot about the BT side of things, he's always saying. Whatever that means. He makes it sound as if it's a plus. I wouldn't go with Theo Pafitis, because he just has a stationer's shop, I think, and I can't see that being the right place to shift electrical cat flaps, unless it's W.H. Smith's. They could sell them at the tills, then. Could I interest you in any of our electrified cat flaps? I definitely wouldn't go with Duncan Ballantyne, because I can't understand what he's saying, and you can't have a business relationship based on incoherence. Anyway, by the end of the week... I'd had all the replies to my invitation to all my showbiz pals to participate, and my wonderful cast was finalised. They were seven scouts, two girl guides, three cubs, and topping the bill, none other than myself, Count Arthur Strong. What a show this was going to be! It was decided that the show would open with me singing the big Frankie Vaughan hit, Give Me the Moonlight. Then I'd say hello to the audience and tell them some jokes for about half an hour. Then I'd do a few magic tricks for a bit. Then I'd sing another song. Then it would be the interval. Then after the interval, I'd do another song to open the second half. Then I'd get someone up from the audience and make a fool of them for a bit, like Bruce Forsyth used to when he knew where he was. Then I might let the audience ask me a few questions, like on an audience with Ken Dodd. Then I'd do my Memory Man act, which would really bring the house down, and then I'd finish on a song, uh, probably the theme from Minder, or, or something from Fiddler on the Roof. Then the others would come on and do a bow. As I said to the vicar when I was running this by him, if a show like this doesn't get a new roof for the Scouts Hut, I don't know what will. Anyway, he said he'd mull it over. I must give him a ring about that, actually, because that was a good few years ago now. Come to think of it, he's not at the church anymore, Father Thompson. I'm sure I remember someone saying he'd gone to South Africa. It was probably the verger, which, as I was telling him, being a verger is a voluntary position. Any idiot can be a verger. Why he has to have a smock, I don't know. He's a retired mechanic. If truth be known, I think he's suffering a little bit from what they call delusions of grandeur, which is just a bit sad if you ask me. What do they say? Power corrupts. Chapter 65 The Party's Over When I finished at Margate that summer, I knew that something was wrong. Among other things, I had a ringing in my ears, which only stopped when I answered the telephone. Something had to be done. I decided to make an appointment to see a top Harley Street specialist in the field. I don't mean I saw him in a field. That would be stupid. I saw him in Harley Street. Why would anybody think a top Harley Street specialist would see me in a field? They wouldn't do that. For a kick-off, I would imagine it would be unhygienic to examine someone's ears in a field. What if there were sheep in it? Or worse, cows? You could end up with foot and mouth in your ear. I would say there's a very good chance that anyone that says they're a Harley Street specialist that suggests examining you in a field is a charlatan. 
and wouldn't fool me for a minute. A proper one would have a suite of Harley Street consulting rooms, and you could have a coffee and a custard cream while you were waiting, sitting on a faux leather Chesterfield with a side table bestrewed with posh magazines, horses and hounds and such like, houses and gardens, gardens and horses, horses and houses, exchange of mart. And he'd be titled. Sir Roger Manners, for instance, would be a good name for one of them. The only field you'd see Sir Roger in would be on a chute, bagging some braces of grouses or two. It's a ridiculous notion to even think for a second that someone like the admittedly fictional Sir Roger would ever, ever examine someone in a field. You're thinking of a vet. Anyway, I ended up going to my GP instead, because you can't get a Harley Street specialist on the national health. You have to pay hundreds of pounds to see one, which I think is scandalous. What kind of service is that? They were very off with me when I tried to make an appointment. Stuck up bunch. And they're all titled, you know. Oh, Lord this and Sir that. Anyway, the upshot of my examination was that it was most likely that there was something wrong with my telephone, not me. So that was a huge relief to myself. And yet again, not for the first time, I had defied the odds again. Chapter 66 The Telephone Ringeth Talking of the telephone, in this wonderful game I'm in, one never knows just what waits for one around one's corner. Those quiet times between engagements are often exciting times, filled with anticipation, because you just don't know what the next offer of work is going to be. And every time the telephone rings, your heart races just that bit faster. I recall one such occasion. It was just after what happened in the last chapter, and I was recovering at home from the shock of finding out that there was nothing wrong with me. The GPO had been and fixed my telephone, and Dr. Baker's diagnosis that that was the cause of the intermittent ringing in my ears proved to be accurate. Suddenly, the telephone rang, interrupting me as I was writing that. I put down the cheap typewriter that Faber and Faber and Faber had loaned me, if you can believe that, tight sods, and crossed to my chestnut formica telephone table, which was the phone's usual resting place. Hello, I spoke, after having first picked up the telephone and placed it against the side of my head, obviously. Do I have the pleasure of speaking to Count Arthur Strong, it said. Why, what's it to you, I responded, in a slightly guarded way. After all, this could have been anyone. I'd had crank calls before. For all I knew, this could have been a burglar casing the joint, or someone trying to missell me insurance, or a stupid yellow nine-year-old cartoon asking if Hugh Jass is there, as I'd recently seen on the television. My name is Sir Alex Guinness, and I would like to speak to Count Arthur Strong. If you would convey that message to him, I would be most grateful. Alex Guinness. Alex Guinness. It had been a long time since I'd heard that name and I was immediately transported back to the last time I'd seen him. It was in Berwick Street Market. I was buying some fruit and vegetables. If you got down there towards the end of the day, they did it a bit cheaper for you. Sometimes it was a lot cheaper if it was all on the turn. You could get a whole box of tomatoes for a bob, 
but that probably meant that you had to eat them all before it went off as soon as you got home, which often meant spending most of the following day or two on the lavatory. As I looked up from my transaction with a barrow boy for some of his plums, I spotted Alex over the other side of the road, buying bananas. He didn't see me, and I quickly concealed myself behind a shop-front awning, and waited until he had gone. I remembered our last meeting, and was in no hurry to speak with him. I'd never told anyone before the story of what went on between Alex and myself, why we fed out, and actually, something is literally just occurring to me, that I might be able to make more money out of this if I tell one of the magazines rather than write it here, like Hello, or that other one that's always got bloody Lorraine Kelly on the front, or the other one that's always got Kerry Katonka on it, saying how she's ballooned up or slimmed down, depending whether she's got a book coming out. It's ridiculous what some of them will do when they've got something to promote. Hey, that's not a bad idea, actually. If I get this story in Hello about Alex Guinness taking one of my shoes, that would be wonderful publicity for this coming out. Right, well, we'll forget that bit then, until I've heard what all the bids are from all the magazine people. Chapter 67 The Thing About Me The thing about me is that I never stop thinking about the next idea about what tomorrow might bring, about just what's around the next corner. I am to a degree what they call a good old-fashioned ideas man, and I always have been. It's what gets me out of bed in the morning, that and needing the toilet, and the water pipes knocking, which I will be having seen to. Apparently it's an airlock. How does the air get in there in the first place? I've a good mind to send a letter in to the unexplained, which is a periodical I subscribe to, about that. I could also ask them to explain why it never sodding came this morning. See what they say about that. Never mind flying saucers landing in the Grand Canyon and the ancient Egyptians coming from Mars. Where's my bloody unexplained today? And you know, it's funny where good ideas come from, if I can just bring you back to what I'm talking about. Most of my ideas come to me in my less guarded moments, shall we say, in the smallest room in the house, to put it delicately, with a toilet in it. Oh, yes, I've had some real crackerjack ideas in the lavatory. I should put a desk in there. I suppose it could be something to do with there always being a plentiful supply of paper to write on. And my particular brand of lavatory paper, Eisel, does lend itself very well to being written on. Makes a very good tracing paper as well. Also, you can put a sheet of it against the comb and bingo, you've got your own kazoo. And you can still use the easel for its intended purpose after you've written or kazooed on it. It's totally recyclable. So in my own small way, I'm single-handedly saving the planet as well. Some might say it's a good job there are people like me around and that's very nice of them. I couldn't possibly comment. One does what one can. I neither seek or expect plaudits for my small contribution to the Cohoto Agreement. It's up to other people if they want to nominate me for an OBE, say. In fact, now I think of it, there might be a potential sponsorship deal there with the toilet paper people. I don't think anybody's been hooked up with toilet paper before. I'll look into that. I know Johnny Vegas had hobnobs. I saw that on a poster. When I first read it, I thought it was some kind of medical condition. In fact, it was a long time before I could eat one with that in my head. 
I'd make a good ambassador for toilet paper, I would. I'm well-spoken, always smart, and most importantly, I use the product, which would be a real boost to consumer confidence. See what I mean? I've only been in the lavatory ten minutes with my typewriter on mini, and I've already come up with a bit of business. I wish I'd have thought of bringing the typewriter in here earlier. I'd have finished this bloody book by now. Anyway, I've had a wonderful idea for a book about me. A candid and open account of my life, peppered with wonderful stories about... No, I'm doubling up there. That's what this is supposed to be. I thought it sounded familiar. Forget that, then. All right, here you are, thinking on my feet. How about a radio documentary about me? That would be brilliant. A radio documentary of the book. We could get Mike Yarwood to do the impressions of all the famous people I knew. Of course, he'd only do impressions of the truth, obviously. That goes without saying. And I would please that most vociferously. Anyway, we don't need to tell him it's Yarwood. And I'd write what they say, because I know what they said. Of course, I'd have to dress it up a bit, because it is for radio. I'll get that on a piece of toilet paper, and I'll send it off to Alan Yentl at BBBC too. You see what I'm saying about ideas in here? I come to life in the toilet, me. Chapter 8. I Seek to Help Of course, in life, one must always think about what one can give back. And one can give back in many, many ways. One of the things that I did in 1960-something was I put a card in the post office window advertising acting classes at a reduced rate. I thought, what better way is there for me to give something back and spread some of my knowledge base I've accrued over the years than to encourage an aspiring student or two? And who knew, with my experience and tutelage, I might discover the next Audrey Hepworth or Marlborough Brandon again. I'll never forget that day I'm about to remember. I was making myself a cup of typhoon when I heard a little, timid, nervous knock at the door. It sounded like a tiny mouse was tapping on it with a twig or a feather, you decide. I opened the door. Standing there was a young man. He spoke but so quietly I couldn't hear the words he uttered. "'Come, come, young fellow, this won't do,' I ejaculated. "'Take a deep breath and start again.' Little did I know it, but my instruction to take this deep breath he took was the beginning of a relationship that would propel this young man to stardom. I won't say who he was. See if you can guess. "'Excuse me, sir,' he responded. My name is Ewan MacDonald of Trainspotting, although obviously I haven't done that yet, and I came in response to your card in the post office. Now I didn't understand a word of that, so strong was his Scottish brogue. But after a series of frantic gesticulations, it became apparent to me why he turned up on my doorstep, so I brought him a bucket of warm soapy water. Once he'd finished cleaning my windows, he tapped on the door again, barely as loud as a little sparrow's beak would if it had mistaken my door for bread. I opened the door. What's that? You've finished my windows, have you? He shook his head vigorously until I thought it might fall off. Such was his passion. He then reached inside his inside pocket 
and from inside pulled out a card from inside it. It was the card I myself had not two days hence of what I'm saying, placed in the post office window. He thrust the card before me and pointed with a trembling finger at my words. At once I understood. My card must have somehow fallen down and been wafted out onto the street, and this goodly, honest youth, seeing that this was so, had returned it to me. I put my hand in my pocket and pulled out a bright, shiny penny piece. Take this, young man, as a reward for your good deed. Today you have truly learned a valuable lesson. Honesty is the best policy. And without waiting to be thanked, I pocketed the card and slammed the door quietly shut. There then followed several more such episodes, but it eventually became apparent that as well as being a window cleaner, a gardener, a plumber, an electrician, and returning my post office card to me, he wanted me to give him acting classes. The next few weeks passed in a haze. I must admit there were many times when I thought I'd taken too much on. But somehow we got through it, and bit by bit I began to understand what he was saying. It was like Audrey Hepworth's eureka moment in Pigsmalian. Once he'd mastered the English language, there was no stopping him, and eventually I taught him as much as I could be bothered to. I'll never forget the day when he called round to my house to say goodbye. I was upstairs, dealing with some correspondences I'd had, when suddenly there was a loud, confident rat-a-tat-tat on my door. It sounded like a bazooka going off, so different to the tentative knockings of several weeks earlier. I walked along my hall, which was fitted with wall-to-wall axminster carpet from Cyril Lord, luxury you can afford, on easy payments, to the front door, passing several of my Capo de Monte figurines, which I was an avid collector of, along with the all-in wrestler, Mick McManus. My favourite one that I had was the one with the two men fishing, and one of them's got his hook caught in the other's shirt collar, and the dog's got a fish in its mouth. To me, they strike the perfect balance between classical art. They used to have, like, fleur-de-lis marks on them. If you ever see one of those at a car boot, buy it. They're worth a bomb. They're about 400 years old, those ones are, you know. My ones I've got are more 1970s up to today. They just have stickers on them now. I've got about three of them, all in fairly good condition, just like surface cracks, which you expect, and a broken fishing rod. Oh, the dog's only got three legs as well. But you do see three-legged dogs sometimes, don't you? So I might be able to get away with that, if I ever sell. Crack on, it's a three-legged sausage dog. Not that I would sell them. I'm what the experts call sentimentally attached to them. The condition is probably what an expert would call good to fine. And I didn't pay more than about 20 pence for any of them. They must be worth, well, I, I don't know. I'll have to get an auction house in to value them for insurance purposes. I've only got them on the house insurance, and that lapsed 10 or 15 years ago. I've always thought I'd make a good expert on the antiques roadshow me. I could be the ceramics expert with my vast knowledge. Or I could do watches. I've got about 30-odd watches. Timex, the lot. Oh, yes, I'm very well known in certain circles for my horological bent. I'll tell you something, though, about the antiques roadshow. Don't you think Hugh Scuddy looks like a werewolf? I do. You have a look next time he's on. 
And I'll tell you something else, you never see him doing it when there's a full moon, do you? It's all right, everybody. I'm only joking with you. I know there's no such thing. And even if there was, they wouldn't ask a werewolf to do songs of praise like he did, would they? Mind you, someone would be for the high jump if they did. Heads would roll at the BBBC, if it was true. I expect they'd call that Scullygate, or Werewolfgate, or Wolfgate. They might call it Songs of Praisegate, but that's a bit long. Still, it's not as long as Hugh Scully is a werewolf on Songs of Praisegate, is it? That would be ridiculous. There are forty letters in that. I've just counted them. The whole point of doing a something's gate is so it's short and catchy, not so it gives you a joy by the time you've said it, like signposts in Wales do. Chapter 68 I Angle Through my life, whenever I've wanted to get away from it all, I've always found great solace in the sport of kings. Fishing I'll never forget the first time I went fishing. I didn't catch a fish, but I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I'll never forget that, not catching a fish. I was hooked. I'm fortunate in that I don't live too far from the canal, and I have a fishing rod and a bicycle. So on quiet days, when I want to remove myself from the glare of life under the public spotlight, I dig up a handful of worms, pop on my cycle clips, or two generously proportioned rubber bands will do if you can't find your clips. If you can't find rubber bands, you can use string, and if you can't find any string, you can push off and bother someone else. And off I go. Incidentally, a good way of finding worms is to dig for them in your garden. If you don't have a garden, ask a neighbour if you can dig for worms in their garden. Any reasonable neighbour should accede to your request. If they don't, you can tell them to sod off from me. Other famous celebrity fishermen are Hugo Fernie Whitstable, the Squirrel Eater, and Roger Daventry from the top pop group The Who. And yes, that really is their name, before you ask. It's funny you should mention Hugo Fernie Whitstable, because a few years ago he contacted me and asked if I'd be a part, a small part, of his campaign for a chicken sanctuary which I was highly delighted so to do. Now, I have to say, until Hugo got in touch with me, I just used to buy chickens at the supermarket that were on offer, like six chickens for a pound, etc. I never used to give any thought to their welfare, and I, like Henry VIII before me, would wolf them down hungrily, without a care in the world, throwing the bones over my shoulder, where a lady-in-waiting would be waiting to clear them up. What Hugo told me about chickens froze me to my marrowfat. He told me that apparently some people, and I can't name any names because I don't know any of them, some people put batteries in chickens. As I said to him, that is scandalous, I said. I said, we all like to eat happy chickens for our dinner, don't we? But that really has broke the camel for me, that has, and I don't say that easily. And from that day forth... I vowed not to eat any meat that doesn't have a smile on its face. I know that doesn't sound much, but sometimes I'm in the supermarket for a couple of hours going through the meat, looking for anything that even half looks like half a half smile, some vein of fat shaped like an upturned mouth, anything. 
Very often, I have to have a tin of corned beef when I can't find anything, because corned beef isn't proper meat, so that doesn't count. It's like you can't sell ivory that's newer than 1940-something, which I also agree with. I'm a little bit of a pioneer when you think about it. Anyway, it must cost a fortune putting batteries in them, because you can't half get a lot of chickens in a hut, unless they're rechargeable. And that's what I do to relax. Fishing. Calling Inspector Maynard A novel by Count Arthur Strong Maynard was looking out of the window, deep in thought. It was a crystal-clear winter's morning in December 1960-something. Ahead of him, he could see the steeples of Oxford and Cambridge. He could never stop himself marvelling at the wonderfulness of these hallowed halls of learning. At first, he didn't hear the telephone ringing, so deep in thought was he, and then he did. He crossed the mahogany-panelled interior of his office, his shoes squeaking slightly on the polished pitch-pine floor, and arrived at his ash desk. The desk was made out of ash, ash wood, not ash from a cigarette or fire. I don't think they can do that. Hello, he said into the mouthpiece in an educated voice, after he'd picked up the telephone, obviously. Maynard here. For some moments, he listened intently to whatever whoever was talking to him said. Finally, when they'd stopped, he spoke again. Thank you. That's very interesting. Be assured that if I ever want my windows doing, your company shall be my first port of call. Good day to you. With that, he deftly hung up the telephone properly and returned to his vantage point at the window. Suddenly, there was a knock on the teak four-panelled Georgian door. Come, come, Maynard was here to say. The door opened, and in walked Detective Sergeant Branchcroom, wearing ordinary clothes. What is it, Branchcroom? Sorry to disturb you, sir, he said in his thick West Country burp. But there's someone as wants to see you at the desk. I said you were not to be disturbed, but they wouldn't take no for an answer, my lover. Maynard clicked his tongue irritably. Did they give no indication of what it was about? Zim that summer about they's from French Interpol, said Branchcroom, shooting Maynard a look laced with meaning. Maynard wasn't having any of that, and shot Branchcroom a better look back at himself. Branchcroom looked away, knowing he'd been bettered. Very well. Show whoever it is in. Proper job, said Branchcombe, and was gone. Maynard sighed. Sometimes being the cleverest police detective in Oxford and Cambridge weighed heavily on his broad soldiers of his. He turned off the classical music he was listening to, I forgot to tell you about, probably the Planet Suite by Brahms or Beethoven, and sat down in his antique captain's chair made from the wood of an elm tree. It was the only chair he could sit on comfortably since he got badly shot by a bullet hitting him. He shivered involuntarily as the memory of that night came back to him. He'd been having a large brandy in his conservatory when a sniper hidden in the woods which bordered his turn-of-the-century Georgian farmhouse which had been in the family for generations of years shot him in the shoulder, smashing a pane of hand-blown Georgian glass to smithereens which you can't get any more, and knocking him clean off his feet. 
The surgeon later told him that if it had been a millimetre in either direction, he wouldn't have been telling him this, because he would be dead, shot through the heart by person or persons unknown. However, the bullet passed clean through the soft tissue of his scapula. He absent-mindedly massaged his shoulder, because that's where a scapula is. His reverie was interrupted by a knock on another door. His reverie was interrupted by another knock on the door. The door opened, and in came Sergeant Branchcroom again. Behind him followed a French-looking woman. She was tall, slim, with mischievous eyes that Maynard found hard to read, a bit like the old curiosity shop. Mademoiselle Dupont from Enterpol, my lover, Branchcombe uttered. Very pleased to meet you. Coffee? That would be acceptable. Thank you. Get us two coffees, Branchcombe, would you? Maynard ejaculated. Proper job, replied Branchcombe, and left the room. Please sit down, Mademoiselle Dupont. Thank you. Please call me Bernice. What a beautiful name, uttered Maynard urbanely. Thank you. Would you be happier if we conducted this conversation in your own tongue? Maynard said in word-perfect French. He had mastered in French at Oxford and Cambridge, and had a first degree in it. You speak very good French, but it's not necessary, thank you, Bernice said coquettishly. There was a knock, and the door opened for one final last time in this chapter, because it's getting on my nerves. Branchcroom came in, carefully carrying a tray which had coffee things on it for two. He set the coffee-making implement down on Maynard's Hogmanay desk and withdrew from the room, silently not saying anything this time. Maynard deftly poured two cups of coffee each out. He then waited until Bernard picked up a cup, had a sip, and put it down again before he spoke. So... What can I do for Interpol? he said. Without speaking, Bernard, Bernice, tossed the file across the table at him, which she had in a bag. She had a bag with her. Maynard raised an eyebrow and looked at her. She met his gaze and looked back at him. There was fire in those eyes, he remembered thinking. He held her gaze for a moment or two. Eventually, he nodded. I'm not sure why, and looked down at the file. Taking his time, he opened it. He read it. When he'd finished, he sat back and let out a low, even whistle. I presume your intelligence is sound? Yes, she replied, her eyes never once leaving his face. Maynard put both his elbows on his wooden desk and then put his fingertips together. He sucked his cheeks in, the ones in his head, uh, deep in thought, while he processed what he'd just read. Eventually, he spoke, and when he did this time, his voice had taken on a new edge. So let's get this straight, Bernard. What Interflora is saying is that the Mafia will attempt to assassinate the Prime Minister of England at the G8 summit at six o'clock tonight, correct? Yes, she responded to his question. That is correct. I'm not going to do any more of this at the moment, because it's getting on my nerves how she talks, and I might make her not come from France, and I don't want to give the story away.
because I don't want someone seeing it lying on a desk, uh, Faber and Faber and Faber, and copying it, and then crocking on they made it up, T.S. Eliot or someone. But you get the gist of how good the book will be. I mean, there could be car chases and poisonings and a, a fight in a cable car. I've got enough ideas for dozens of these books. And then there's the television side of it all. Now Morse is dead, ITV will be on the lookout for another one. As far as I know, there's never been an Inspector Maynard before, so tell them the need to get in quick before someone else comes up with it. That's the name of the game in this business, the next big thing. His first name's Enterprise, tell them that, Enterprise Maynard. Never mind Endeavour, which is a ridiculous name for a person called it. The End Chapter 74 Call Me Ishmael After the bleak years of the Second World War, which I outlined thoroughly in an earlier chapter, it was the war that Hitler did, if you've forgotten, we all desperately needed cheering up a bit. A young entrepreneur called Billy Butlin had an idea. His idea was to transform the notion of the family holiday by building holiday camps like they had in Heidi High. Thus was laid the foundation stone of what we affectionately know today as Butlins. Now, over the years, Butlins has been a home to many top stars, including my good self, and a lot of today's celebrities got the starts there. Stars such as Des O'Connor, Orville, Mike and Bernie Winters, Joan Littlewood, Arthur Mullard, Laurence Olivier and Spencer Tracy are just some of the celebrities I can remember. To be honest, I don't think they all went to Butlins, but uh, it doesn't really matter anyway if they did or not, because I'm using them illustratively. John Gielgud and Ralph Richardson are another two I've just remembered. And John Nettles of Bergerac. It's amazing, if you put your mind to it, just how many you can remember. Why don't you try remembering celebrities at home? See how many you can come up with. You could call it the Count Arthur Strong Celebrity Challenge. But you can't use the ones I've just mentioned. That would be cheating, and cheats never beat. I was playing Monopoly once with someone who will have to remain nameless who cheated. You wouldn't believe who it was if I told you. He looked a lot like Christopher Timothy, if that's not too much of a clue. It was his turn, and he moved the hat on to go. I said, what are you playing at? He said, what? I said, you're on Mayfair, not go. That's Mayfair with one hotel on £2,000, please. He said, I'm not on Mayfair. I said, you are. He said, I'm not. I said, look, what did you throw? He said, ten. I said, you didn't. He said, I did. A four and a six. Four and six is ten. I said, I know what four and six is, thank you. I said, listen, if you threw a ten, that would mean you were on go to jail to end up on go. So I've caught you out there, haven't I? He said, oh, I'll take me go again then, because of all this confusion. I said, you will not take your bloody go again. You should be in jail, not roaming the streets free. He said, oh, shut up. I said, don't tell me to shut up. He said, well, don't tell me to shut up. I said, I don't think I did. He said, well, you did. I said, all right, I'll tell you what then, Clever Dick. I'm going to read this back. And if I didn't tell you to shut up in it, then I want a full apology. And I've just read it back. And nowhere in this chapter did I tell you to shut up. So come on then, apologise, wherever you are. Chapter 79 Twelve Good Men and Women and True On Saturday the something of, I think it might have been January 1990-something, 
I stood up in my hall after having bended down to pick up that morning's post. Amongst the usual raft of fan letters was secreted one brown manila envelope. Intrigued, I stuck my finger in its flap and tore it open. I pulled out the piece of paper from within and proceeded to read what I am about to write. It said, This letter is to confirm that you are required to attend the law courts of the Old Bailey this day of our Lord, 1990-something. If you, for any reason, consider yourself illegible, would you please contact the clerk of the court forthwith? Unfortunately, I was illegible for jury duty, owing to something I can't go into, which was more of a misunderstanding than anything, which was a shame, because I would have liked to have written something about it here. It would have been the perfect place for it, wouldn't it? I wonder what the case was they wanted me to preside over. Lord Lucan, possibly, or Ten Rillington Place, when Richard Attenborough murdered all those women. I don't think they ever got him for that, Richard Attenborough, did they? They hung John Hurt for it, which, when you think about it, it didn't do his career any harm, did it, being hung? He went on from strength to strength. They obviously wouldn't have asked someone like me to do parking fines. It would be a waste of who I am. They'd probably get some minor celebrity to do motor-related offences. Maybe someone like Mike Brewer and Ed China off Wheeler Dealers, because that's their thing, motoring, isn't it? That, that would make sense. That's what they should do. Get all the experts off the telly. If it's a property issue, get Phil and Kirsty off location, location, location. Or him off Grand Designs that's always chopping herbs up in other people's kitchens. I'll speak to someone about that. I'll tell you something I've noticed, though. How many times do you hear, when there's a trial on, that the jury has retired? It happens all the time. Why, for goodness sake, don't they just get younger people? It's not rocket salad, is it? The money they must waste. And now I heard on the radio, yesterday I think it was, that Eddie Stobart's lorry drivers are going to be solicitors as well. How's that going to work? What if they've got a case on in Liverpool, say, and he's stuck in Newcastle with a full load because his tachometer says he's got to have a two-hour break? Honestly, that will just make a mockery of the legal system, if you ask me. We'll be the laughing stock of the rest of the world. They say our legal system is admired the world over, don't they? And then in the next breath, they're making a nonsense of everything we hold dear to ourselves. You couldn't make it up, could you? Chapter 70 or 80. The Final Curtain It was 1990-something, or 1960-something, it depends which way up you do the six, approximately 5.17am in the morning. I woke suddenly from a deep sleep. As both my eyes accustomed themselves to the light, or dark, really, if I'm being accurate, I could make out the familiar images of my roomful of possessions, accrued over the years. Possessions that had come to mean so very much to me, like a chair, or a sideboard, or a cuckoo clock, possibly. And I thought to myself, if I... Suddenly, this sentence was interrupted by a noise coming from downstairs. I quickly realised that my house was being broken into by anywhere between four and twelve people probably armed. I silently applied my dressing gown to myself, walked to the door, and listened. Yes, 
There was definitely a number of people involved in the felony taking place in my downstairs. What to do? I thought for a bit longer, then I made up my mind. With the famous Count Arthur's steely resolve, I decided that... If you want to find out what Count Arthur Strong did next, then could I suggest that you buy volume number two of his wonderful memoirs of his when it comes out. Through it all, I always laughed again, and it will all be in there up to date. Or I might not do it completely up to date, because I want to get at least another volume or two out of this after that one. And furthermore, can I just say that it really is terrific value for money, my life. I don't know how much they charge him for these books, but they could double the price and it would still be sound economics to get it. It really is a very astute investment all round books of mine. The Institute of Fiscal Studies would probably be right behind that assertion. In fact, I might phone them up this afternoon and get a quote from them to put in here, if they're on the phone. And another plus is, my memoirs would be equally as impressive displayed as a conversation piece on your shelving units or on a glass-topped coffee table if you've got one of those. I have no way of knowing that. So, you see, you don't even have to read my book to impress people. Although my suggestion would be that you do read it because you'll be missing out on all my wonderful memories. Or at least read this bit. Uh, but as long as you buy it, that's the important thing. I'm not one of those authors that likes to tell you what to do when you buy a book. I believe in freedom of expression. And that's what you get with Through It All. I always laughed. Audible hopes you've enjoyed this program.